Never forget the moment we kissed the night of the hayride. The way that we hugged to try to keep warm while taking the sleigh ride. Magic moments, memories we've been sharing. Magic moments when two hearts are caring. Time can't The telephone call that tied up the line for hours and hours. The Saturday dance that got up the nerve to send you some flowers. Magic moments, memories we've Magic moments, when two hearts are caring. Time can't be. It is Saturday night, September the 16th, year 2017. I'm Wong and hello, Dave Kane. How are you? Uh, peek-a-boo, peek-a-boo, here I are. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was very disappointed. I thought you were going to play my Patricia theme. Well, you're not Patricia, me. Oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> Let me look. Oh, no. I'm not. Yeah. Well, well, you know, Although I, tonight, I, I kind of am. You, you I'm kind of you, know, you know, well, well. We can make that up by, you know, we're playing a few bars of this, you know. There we go. Ah, yeah. oh, there you go. There you go. Oh, Patricia, my darling, Patricia. Now, who else would have their own theme song in the radio like that? I, isn't that something? I know. It's really terrific, isn't it? <laughs> It's a good one. I had never heard it until you... How did you find that? I, accidentally. You know, I had... I, I think I have the same... CD set you do, the Perry Como double hit, you know, song. And I'm just going through it, and bam, Patricia. Uh, I mean, most people remember, uh, oh gosh, the instrumental from the late Diffy called Patricia. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I never knew there was such a song written for that Perry did. I had no idea. And Me either, yeah. You know. I, I know in the old days, Dick Jockey would even have performers cut their personal theme song. I know uh, it was done for Martin Block. I know other Dick Jockeys around the country in the 40s. Would oh, do yeah. Um, um, Joey Reynolds, uh, the Four Seasons did Joey Reynolds. Holy cats. Joey Reynolds, Joey, Joey Reynolds, show what a show on TV and radio. So did yeah, you, did you ever have anybody do anything for you? No, 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 no. <laughs> they won't, they don't even want to, they don't want to admit they even listen. 
to me. You know, Joe, yeah. Joe, Although, I, 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 huh? Joe could have done something for you last night. Oh, yeah, you got a chance to meet Joe. Isn't that cool? Huh? Boy, what a voice. He and I go back a long way. Yeah, he's got a great set of pipes. Yeah, he did a bunch of stuff for me. I used to do shows in uh, drive-in theaters. Uh, I used to do live shows where I would uh, also, you know, mess around with the uh, audience. And he made a whole bunch of bump pieces for me that were really good in and out. He he was very young, but he always had that voice. Now, what would you do with the... the I'm assuming they ran a movie eventually. So, did were you a warm up act? Yeah. What happened? Is, yeah, 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 yeah. During during the uh, this was really funny because mm-hmm. during the summer, you know, I don't know, uh, the, the drive-ins would open early and people would come to the drive-in and get their place and and then the kids would play in the in the the little um, playground area in front of the screen. And uh, people would stand around and talk to each other. They'd go to the snack bar and get a bunch of trash, and uh, and it was really. And so I, uh, I, I did not work at a radio station in those days. So what I did was, uh, I sold um, the idea uh, to the drive-ins of letting me do a live show at the snack bar, and we fed it. We fed it into the into the speakers. You know, into the. And then um, I, I play oldies, you know, oldies. I play songs and talk to people and interview people at the snack bar and have some laughs. And then we did, I used to do it, I think I told you guys about this, where I did a, a, a game where we play water balloon catch. No. And I would be, oh, what I did was I, well, play water balloon catch. I invite somebody to come down. Not people, you know, they go to a, a drive in and they're not dressed, no. you know, like they're going to a gala. But I would always have a suit and tie on and in those days. And so people would come down and I'd play water balloon catch with some guy that looked like he just got out from under a car. right? <laughs> and uh, and he and I would play water balloon catch. People would come down to see if I got soaked because I was all dressed up. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. And I did it for a lot of years, these drive-in shows. I had people still come up to me and say, I remember you from the borough drive-in. Or I remember you, <laughs> you know. So that was really fun, so, and uh, so, so that's. So I'm asking you, say, hey, come down to the concession stand, and you'll get ten percent off. Or you could, I guess, you could have done something like yep, that. Yeah, yeah, we did, we did all kinds. Of, yeah, we do all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, we had a lot of fun, and uh, and uh, I, I, a lot of people, a lot of listeners from that. And then when I started going more on the air, because I wasn't working for stations in those days. I mean, at that time, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, people would. When I got on the end, they'd say, "Oh, I remember you from such and such," you know. And it was really, it was good. It's good to promote my my name and stuff. So that's what I did. Nowadays, it would be your, nowadays be your brand, whatever that is. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, my brand. Excuse me, that's exactly right. My brand. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny, you know, all of these fancy schmancy names now. And I was doing it years ago before they called it that, whatever that is, you know. Uh, I don't. I don't know. How long did you talk to Joe? You talked to him for a while because I. I heard him just. A while because I heard him just at the beginning. Yeah, we went till. Yeah. yeah, we actually went until one in the morning with him. Oh, terrific! Yeah. Wow. He performed. Yeah, yeah, I would. Tonight and he's huh? gonna. He might call us after he gets off his gig, but uh, he he yeah last night free he gave us a call. He called, right after you, and he went till one. Yeah, because he yeah. 
he well he had called me during the in the afternoon and asked me um should he listen to the red network or the blue network yeah. and uh, I told him that you guys simulcast the toss up but I didn't know you were having problems so uh, but I told him either one and so he did hear me on I guess and and then uh, then he called and I heard some of it but then I had to hit the sack because I had stuff to do I was on the end of sporting and so I finally had to leave but I'm, mean, glad I, you, I'm glad you got a chance to meet how many hours do you sleep for crying out right I mean you stayed up all night with us Dave then do an early morning radio show for crying out loud. Well, I do the the radio show, and then I would um, run home, have lunch, take a quick nap if I could, maybe twenty minutes, half an hour, and then uh, get dressed and go do the show at night, do the mm-hmm. stage show, mm-hmm. wherever I had to go, and then come back and you know. So I mean, but I mean, I, 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 I I'm a I'm a great napper though. I can nap anywhere, anytime. 20 minutes and I can get another eight hours. You know? Definitely the That's all I need. Yeah. Let me give an yeah. update on everybody. That way we heck know what's going on this weekend. It's sort of a crazy schedule. Um, as many of you know, Patricia lives in Fort Myers, Florida. And that's where a big bunt of the storm hit last Sunday, Monday slash. It was about 20 miles south of her where the storm actually landed the big eye. And uh, she had flooding about a month ago in her unit, and this wound up being twice as much water. I'm not surprised. Knocked down a tree, knocked out everything you can think of in terms of power, utilities, etc., etc., etc. And so they moved her and her group Wednesday out of that facility and so she's not at her at her uh, office that we could call her tonight so I'm assuming it's going to be next week before the move her in and so we plan like what's the schedule thing to Dave to talk to Bobby Rydell but it's not, if Patricia's not ready to go uh, I just might move that back a few weeks because I would like to have Patricia part of that interview with Bobby a week from tonight and uh so that's where Patricia's at. So occasionally we see some emails from her based upon uh, her power situation. John Lurie will be with mm-hmm. us in an hour. Uh, they're off and having dinner. They went and had lunch. Now they're off having dinner. They're getting ready for a barbecue. Isn't that nice? Yeah. <laughs> they're off doing a very barbecue. nice. That's very nice. They're yeah. off doing a barbershop show in a month where they're honoring John and Lurie because they've been doing it for 44 years. And so I think they're talking. Wow. They're talking about that big event in October. So, so John will be home in an hour. Um, tomorrow will be a really mixed up scramble. Michael Beal is in Germany for the next three weeks. So I will be recording. Oh. I will be recording him sometime during the day in Germany. So I have to watch Facebook and see where he's at, and then I'll record him. So tomorrow night we have two live guests. Uh, we have Perry Huntoon with us, our big band expert, because we'll get coming across the anniversary of Bing Crosby's passing of 40 years ago. Now I asked Dave mm-hmm. where he, he remembers. So we're going to do a Bing Crosby salute with the big bands tomorrow night. And then uh, at quarter to midnight Eastern time or 8.45 8 on the West Coast, 
we're going to have legendary program director George Green on with us. George Green was the guy, the driving force behind KABC Talk Radio out here in L.A. And he sort of tells you where he sees it. He made one critical mistake in his career. Uh, he was always very loyal to Michael Jackson, the uh, South African British talk show host. And oh, yeah. And so Michael, for years, always had the 9 to 1 o'clock slot. Well, in the early 80s when the... Uh, the company, the, I forgot who's with ABC, was given Rush Limbaugh. They asked, would they, George, move Michael out, give Rush that time spot, and Michael didn't want to move. So George let Rush Limbaugh go to KFI, and KFI became the number one talk station in L.A. So that was probably the most critical thing he ever known in the radio, but you know, I mean, Michael Jackson was a successful, well-known talk show host in the LA market forever. But uh, you know, you, you got to make calls, and that's when you're on the hot seat. So we're going to talk about the talk radio, how he sees it, things like that tomorrow night, and that will be live. So yeah. no, is he still no, is he still around, Jackson? Anywhere? Uh, yes, he, yes, he is. He, he passed. Nope, he's pretty much retired. Uh, he d- he's yeah. doing voiceover work. He's now in his early 80. He is married to Alan Ladd's daughter. Oh, yeah. And his two so- he got a couple of sons. His son owns a fa- runs and owns a famous restaurant in Beverly Hills. So, uh, but no, he, ever since KBC, he bumped around to a couple of stations, but it just never took for him. I think... And you, maybe you can relate to this, and you can talk about it. I think Michael style was so intellectual, he was so nice about it, even though he, we knew where he stood politically, but he was always fair to both sides, and he had both sides on. So, and let's face it, the guys that were coming up in the 80s were rougher, tougher, tougher combination style, and I just, you know, he just sort of felt... I can't like, remember... I can't remember if was he was he a left winger or right. I can't remember his work. He was left. Uh, George Green had the yeah, same, okay. George Green had the same philosophy as you did, and he we had an expert that he said I didn't care what they were politically. All I cared about were they interesting. That's the way he judged yeah. because he would have a left wing and a right wing. He, he would mix them up. Alternate them throughout the day. He didn't care. Long they bought people, yeah. and long they bought, and yeah. long they were interesting. Right. That's all he cared about. Yeah, and that, and that that I can tell you that worked for me because I had people all day long that were we were we were like a, a ping pong ball. We went left, right, left, right, left, and and people stayed. The people who were agitated by the next listener would call that listener that talk host. And give him a rafted whatever, and then and then yeah, they commiserate with each other. It was it was it was very, it was great. You, and I don't know now it doesn't seem like they did that. You think part of the problem is now, Mike, that we have so many stations in the same market doing talk radio, so a program director doesn't feel like he has to be balanced. He can just go one way or another, just based upon 
Well, the trend, yeah, but the trend now is is conservative. Yeah. The trend is conservative, and period. And I mean, uh, you know, uh, USA uh, the left wing radio station uh, went out. They couldn't make any money. Yeah. You know, they they went down. And so that's a reality you have to just acknowledge. And it's too bad. And I'm I'm working. I'm doing fill in stuff. At a, at a conservative radio station, I still don't know why they keep calling me. <laughs> they call me to fill in. They call me to fill in for a guy who on the weekends goes and, and you know, uh, mows Trump's lawn at his house, you know. <laughs> and uh, and then they call me up to fill in. And they want me to be as, as left-wing as I am. Uh-huh. You know, they, I mean, they just, you go ahead, Dave. And, and they encourage me to be worse, which cracks me up. <laughs> You know. So I'm not, I don't know what that's about. So when you started talk radio, would you ask to keep it? Yeah. Would you ask to keep it somewhat civil? Well, there was there was a different time in the sense that you know you knew what you could do and not do. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I I I started I changed a little bit because I didn't I, I decided I didn't care what I was supposed to do. Uh, I wanted to do something that I found interesting, and I thought that you know, telling what I, saying what I really thought is the way I worked, and so I did it, and it caught on pretty well. I mean, I you know, I did get fired a lot, but I only got fired because I ticked off the wrong people, not because I was left or right. And most of the time, I got fired had to do with local issues where the, the, the advertisers or somebody had a cousin who was who was a, a city councilor and they didn't like it. And then they threatened the owner with pulling the commercials, you know, stuff like that, you know. So, that, old, that, so that was more important to the station than the ratings you got, right, with the bugs? Well, they, they didn't understand it. You know, the people, these were, these were mom-and-pop owners, a lot of the stations, you know. They weren't like they now. Now they're corporate. I was never fired from a corporate entity. Hmm. I was always fired from the mom-and-pop stores. From the places where, you know, the local, I don't know, bobber could uh-huh. call up and say, Fred, did you hear what he said today? You know, you know I'm, I'm, I don't want my show. You know, I don't want, I, I had a real interesting thing about with that, which was funny. Um, I was at WARA where I am now, but at the time I was, I was the manager mm-hmm. and I was doing nine to noon on the air. And, um, the local one of the local banks called the owner of the station and said that they didn't want my commercials in and they didn't want their commercials in my show <laughs> right they, i mean because they didn't like my politics right. they didn't want their commercials in my show and this sounded so stupid to me i couldn't believe it because i thought well wait let me understand this now do you ever drive by a furniture store and see a sign outside that says if you voted for Nixon, don't come in here. You know, what I, mean? I mean, that, uh, that, that doesn't happen. I mean, you know, it, and so uh, they wanted, they were just trying to pressure me or pressure him to get rid of me. And it really irritated me. So I went on the air. I, I was told about this one morning. He came in and told me what was going on. So I said, well, don't, don't miss my show today. <laughs> So I went on the air and I said, listen, uh, this bank, they're out of business now, by the way, uh, this bank 
um, has told the owners that they do not want any of their commercials to run in my show. So that tells me that they don't want your business because of because, because if you're listening to me and they don't want you to know that they're open, they obviously don't want you to go in there and, and save your money there or anything else. So I'm just telling you that, you know, they're, they're making it very clear they don't want your business. Well, you know. And I and I went on and I did, I did like a I did a bit on this I must have done forty minutes on it just for you know just a so I thought this is funny you know and I'm making them look foolish as hell yeah. right and and at the same time everybody's laughing and I'm I'm getting it to you know I'm filling three hours on the air you know so and then the, the next morning I get a, the owner says to me you got to come in and talk to me I don't want, he said, the bank is furious. He said, two old ladies, I mean, I don't know how old they were, two old ladies went into the bank that day and took out their CDs. They, they, they took them out of the bit. Well, that, that threw, there was such a panic. There was such a panic in the bank that they, they you know, and, and, and there was a big deal. I guess there was a big thing went on. I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. And so then they wanted, they, then they wanted to see me. Like they were, I don't remember exactly how this went after that, but but needless to say, they came back on the air with me, and, and that was the end of that. You know, but I mean, how stupid you have to be, you know? So, you think small town influence small town radio more more than big city slash corporate? Well, the trouble is that the corporate people, you know, the, the corporate people are funny. You know, the corporate people don't really care if they're selling time. The suits, as we like to refer to it, they, they, they don't really care. They don't care about your politics. All they care about is if their client is not ticked off, mm-hmm. <laughs> then it's okay, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and and uh, and so that's really been the problem over the years is that the people who – are selling time. For instance, you you, you know how this goes. Um, some of the local stations will sell local time to you know a Lithuanian program yeah. or a polka program, yeah. right? Yeah. And the salesman, and the, right, which is fine. The salesman, they will just say, "Oh God, I can get people to buy this time. Let me sell the whole day like this." You know, and so you'd have two hours of Polish, two hours of Lithuanian, two hours or whatever. And I say, yeah, it's fine, but you're not going to get any listeners. No, they they didn't understand how that kills listeners. All they cared about was they thought, well, as long as I'm making the money, that's all that matters. Which is fine, unless of course you want listeners. <laughs> well, that's why you I know? think in a lot of radio stations on the weekends, it's just it's nothing but info commercials. Especially the talk station, you know, if, if they're not number yeah, one yeah, in the world, it's yep. all info commercials. Yep. I, I called W O R R New York, and they, I just wanted to get an idea what the the rate card was. And I think it was for an hour to buy on W O R, because they were selling the info for four thousand dollars an hour. Oh sure, yeah. Four thousand. Yep. I, I, and they said yep. that they didn't never have any really turnover, basically. But I got. That's a lot of money going out the door. There had to be a major markup that, for them to even sell out their time like that. 
Oh, yeah, well, well, you can't get it. It's a premium. And and these people who want to be on the air, like the old days when we used to sell advertising to the car dealers, we let the dealers do the commercial. And they they become little celebrities, you know, and they just loved it, especially the TV stuff that I did. You know, you'd have some some local TV guy, some local guy who gets to be on TV, and his, his kids and his nieces and nephews all think he's a celebrity, you know. And he pays to do that. Whether he sells any cars or not, he, yeah, that's all he wants to do, be on TV. Oh, he always seemed like it, about every 15 minutes over overnight TV, he always Cal Worthington and his dog Spot. You know, the yep, local, that's right. That's right. And I imagine you probably should see that throughout all America, whoever yeah. with the deep pocket. Yeah, well, some, sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it'll make sense. It depends. On where it is, generally speaking, it's not a good idea. But like we have, a, we have a company here. We have a furniture company here, the Cardi Brothers. And there are these three brothers who do the commercials all the time, and uh, and, and they're cool. They're, they're they're well done, and they're you know, some some of them are parodies of major commercials and stuff. You know, they're very cool, and so that's not too bad. I mean, as long as you get a product that you can you don't look like a fool. You know, then, then that's okay. But it's really funny how people just, they don't have any respect for talk radio, a lot of them. They don't understand the, the, the pressure and the importance of what can be done with talk radio. I feel a, a real obligation to make sure that I, that I do something with my airtime aside from just taking up the space. You know, try to get something done. Well, I don't know, my, I, I have felt the last few, 10 years, 10 to 15 years that talk radio, maybe because we got so much of it, we don't see the cream of the crop like we did 30, 40 years ago, when it was probably a lot harder to get on the air, because you didn't have as many outlets, but it just, yeah. it's just my observation, yeah. you know. Well, the trouble, the thing with the thing about cream of the crop, the thing, the reason the people would consider cream of the crop is because everybody listened to them mm-hmm. because there are only three stations, right? <laughs> you know, and so you had the whole audience listening to you. Now, because of the multi stations, oh my God, it, it's like I, I mean, I, I was saying this the other day to Joanne. We had my wife is Joanne, and. We were watching the Today Show, and they have these people, and they have the, they have the, um, the concerts, right? And they have these concerts on Fridays outside the Today Show, and these people come on, and there's huge crowds, and people are singing along to their music, and I have no freaking idea who these people are. I mean, it's like I, it's like I came in from another country. It's like I have no idea. It's astounding because now everybody there's you know there's there's media everywhere and you can be, become very very well known while the rest of the country has no idea who you are. You know what, you is, know what I'm trying to say. What they're saying what that now time to, you're a successful prime time television show if you have 14 million people basically or whatever the yeah. number is. It's just. And yeah. as you think about the U.S. population, that just, you know, that's less than five percent of the U.S. population. So. Yeah, but 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 it's a good number because the rest of the people aren't getting even that. No. 
I mean, well, we elected a president with, uh, you know, who who got two million votes less than (laughs) you need to win. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's just odd. I mean, you don't know who these people are. And, uh, oh, my God. And, you know, you you know, it's funny, Walden, I don't know if you've had this happen to you, but I'll have somebody come up to me and say, oh, why don't you give Cain and you know, shake hands with the husband and say something. And then they'll turn to their friend and they'll say, you know who this is? And the friend goes, no. Say, yeah, 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 you do. This is Dave Cain. No, no. No, yeah, you do. You know, he used to do this and that, that and that. I used to hear him. No, I don't know who he is. Yeah, no, really. I want to say, well, you shut up. <laughs> shut up. They never heard of me. Leave me alone. <laughs> So over the years, when yeah. you when you and your wife would go out for dinner or the family go out to dinner, would people who maybe never saw you on television would they recognize your voice? Oh yeah, I had I used to do I I, I, I used to do traffic reports years and years ago. I did traffic reports when I was first very young, and every morning I'd be in a plane doing the traffic reports, and I was in a bar, and this is before I was married, I was in a bar with a young lady having dinner, and a guy walked across the bar, I mean, it wasn't a bar, it was a restaurant bar, Mm -hmm. but he came from the bar side, walked all the way over to my booth and said, are you the eye in the sky? I mean, I couldn't get over that he would recognize my voice under those conditions. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, you do that every once in a while. Somebody would do that. Every now and then, somebody would walk up to me and say, Father Misgivings. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of fun. 714-545-2071. Dave, nice enough to sit in with me, with me for a while before he needs to go off the bed. But uh, if you'd like to give us a call, you're welcome to. 714-545-2071. Yeah, I, I from people. I'd like to have some people call in and chat with them. I hear them here. Uh, but they need to know that I have a short attention span. <laughs> so they need to they need to uh they need to bring it to the table. They gotta bring something with here and let's, okay. let's have it. So so you got any shows, any theater gig coming up the next month or so that we should help promote for a local charity uh, or anything? Well I got a bunch of stuff happening uh, uh that, that um let me see now what's going on that I should know. Actually, I'm doing Friday night. I'm doing the show for this is an organization I have I have not heard of. It's a it's a it's a national society to prevent a suicide. And uh, I'm doing a show with my friend Charlie Hall. Uh, he has a thing called the Ocean State Follies here in Rhode Island. It's a, it's a parody. It's it's a political satire mm-hmm. group. You know, like the, like the, you know, the one in Washington, the, yes, uh, the Washington Capitol, something, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, Capitol, yeah, and, and he does that, and yeah, and uh, he he called me and asked me if I'd open for him uh, on Friday for the show, and of course I'm going to run over and do that, and I'll just go in and do about not about half hour or so, and. You know, then move on, and then uh, and then I've got some other. It's starting to get busy now. I I was off a lot of the summer from. Uh, I mean, I had a big run, and then all of a sudden I was off. It was really weird. 
So now we're getting busy again. So we'll be, I'll be traveling again and doing stuff. So when when you know you don't have enough gigs in a, a cycle, how much effort do you put in marketing to try to reach out to people? How, how do you handle your book, for example? Um, well, well, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Um, I haven't had too much of a problem with that. I I get a lot of repeat business, but the thing is, it it's re it's um, seasonal. I, well, I shouldn't say seasonal. Well, it is. Yeah. It's seasonal. Like in the summer, it quiets down because I only do nonprofits and they don't do fundraisers because nobody comes in the summer. They're all I don't know. I don't know where they are. And then in January, February, because of, you just went by Christmas and it's cold, uh, it gets a little quiet there. But then the rest of the, the rest of the year is fine, you know. So most of my marketing is for beyond because I can't. It's not like I sell uh, rocking chairs or something. I you know you have to have that long time for them to be able to sell the tickets and everything. You know what I mean? You need run time. So if I book something now, it's probably for two to three months out. Yeah, because I was thinking in some cases, wouldn't want some of them want to book you at least six to nine months out? At least they could try to do as much. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, 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 and and yeah, that happens too, of course. Uh, people will call up and want to book me. Well, I'm I'm already booked into next year, of course, um, and people will want to book me. And I always say when they'll say to me. And one lady called not long ago and wanted to book me in 2000. I think it's April 2000. And I said, "Oh no, I think I'm I'm going to lunch that day." <laughs> <laughs> and she went, "Oh, you are." <laughs> I think I talked yeah. to a, a producer who produced show security out here, and I think it's the same business. I think it's cyclical. It's based upon seasonal, and I I think out here by March or April, but after that point, it's pretty much quiet until the fall, you know, to put on. Is that right? Yeah. I'm surprised at that, because I, I hear it's because of uh, weather. I, I think it's because... And they, school they think, vacation. I think yeah. it's because a lot of people figured it by May or June, people are on the road, and they're just not on the... Uh, they're not... The, the ones that probably... Or the, the deep yeah. pockets are probably not even around, not in town, probably, that uh, be my guess. Um, yeah, they, they used to make me laugh when I sold radio advertising or, or when the, the people who worked for me were doing it. It only made me laugh that nobody, people, it would be hard to sell advertising, radio advertising in the summer. And I said, because people always said, oh, well, everybody's going away. Like, who the hell goes away? <laughs> well, the hell goes away for the entire summer? You know what I mean? I mean, like, we're talking to people who are got jobs and responsibilities and kids and bills. They're not. They're still here, you know. But that whole concept. There was a concept for a long time about that. I would think nowadays a salesman can say, "Well, you can. They'll take. They'll take us on the road with them, or whatever." I. I, don't, I mean, there could be a. a yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So oh, there's always an answer to the to the you know the objection. But it was just it was just one of those odd things that people said all the time. You know, oh no, well, in the summer nobody's nobody's around. You know, like like we're <laughs> hideous. I want to talk to you tonight. I was thinking about what topic, and I got think we. I want to talk to you for a little bit about comedy. And, oh, okay. And uh, were there people when you were a kid that you just loved the technique and style so so much? 
that you found yourself studying them in order to adapt for your particular style? Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't, I, I, there were people that I loved, you know, uh, Benny, as an example, you know, mm-hmm. Jack Benny, and, and uh, the, uh, Woody Allen, uh, the name, you know, just two, um, but I didn't, I didn't try to model myself after anybody because they, they already had a Jack Benny, you right. know, um, most of my humor comes from uh, dealing with um, what happens to you in life, uh, you know, trying to trying to see the funniness of what, no matter how bad it seems, trying to find something funny in there. Uh, that, that was usually the way I would try to make people laugh, talk about they talk about my poverty as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and things like that, and. Uh, so they could relate to you in that way, and um, and on the air a lot, and and in in my stand-up especially, I didn't take any prisoners. I, I pretty much told people what I thought, and I didn't allow myself to be um, heckled too much, if you know what I mean. So you you gave it back. You, know, to, you gave it back to them. Oh yeah! Oh absolutely! Oh absolutely! I'd make them famous. Oh, are you kidding? Oh, absolutely. And you have to do it right off the bat because if you do it to the first one, the others decide, well, maybe I don't want to try this. You know, and tell these people, you know, I I make a living doing this. You don't want to stop playing with me. You know, just sit there and drink your beer or whatever you're doing and have a good time and do your butt out. But how do you, how do you, when you're in the heat of battle, maybe there are better words (laughs) than that. How do you you manage your time? Because I imagine the owner said, you got 30 minutes, and if I got going so good, I think I might lose track of time to realize I need to wrap it up here. I mean, how did you manage Oh, there's no shortage of somebody standing over there and waving at you. (laughs) You know, you you know, believe me. It's funny, I did I was talking about Charlie Hall. I just did something for him the other night. And I was doing a bit, and I all of a sudden I look up and I see him. He's in the back of the audience, and he's giving me a cut sign. You know, he's giving me a because I I didn't I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. I didn't know I didn't know how long he wanted, and so I just look up and I see him, you know, give me a little note, and I just wrap it. You know, remember the audience doesn't know what your act is if they haven't seen you, or you know, and so they don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You know, and so they think, oh, that must be the way it goes. <laughs> just so off, you know. So on Friday, so, I mean, because you got a particular show to your mind, do you take that into account, what your presentation is going to be on Friday? Uh, yeah, a, li- a little bit I do. Um, I, I have to rem- I remind myself, especially for the stand-up, see, the, the misgiving stuff is scripted, right. so that's different, but... But for the stand-up, I do because I have to be careful about about ad libs because this is an example. Um, when I was told that it was about you know a sui- organization yes. that prevents suicide, you know, uh, my first thought was, "Gee, it's too bad," because I would have said, "This is very uh, very appropriate because after they see my act, a lot of people are compl- contemplating suicide," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. But I can't do it in that room. That's not going to be funny to that audience. 
you know. So as an example, things like that you think about, you know. I mean, you can add live something and really stick it, stick your foot in it. When you if you forget where you are, or who you're playing yeah. to. Who 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 was the best comedian you saw that could give it back? Would, would it have been Don Rickles? Who 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 you think would have been the best? <laughs> well, I I know I I know Rickles Rickles is good, but Rickles is. People are there to hear that particular thing. Mm-hmm. As far as somebody off off book, so to speak, right. just ad lib, um, you wouldn't know them. I mean, I guess okay. the local couple of local people, okay. but they just don't. They just don't mess. They go immediately to the jugular. They go immediately. They they don't mess around. You know. You think that you think that geographic. Oh no 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 no! I, I no, I think it's just human nature, you know. Yeah, you know, these people don't. You know, the people that come and they want to play, you know. And, and I was, I sounded like a wise guy a little while ago, but I mean, they come and, and they think they're helping you sometimes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They think they're giving you something to make fun of or something. Uh, they don't realize that they're really screwing it up because they're breaking your rhythm. And they're breaking what you're trying to get to, and, and a lot of the stuff is set up for later on. And if you don't get to the setup, the later on joke doesn't work. You know, I mean, so sometimes, and in, in they're trying to—I don't know what they're trying to do—be be pals or something—and it, it doesn't work, and uh, it, they, they end up doing more damage than they do help. You know, just sit back and enjoy the show. <laughs> So what about what about Roger Roger Dangerfield? His comic style? Would you, could you relate to that? Oh God, he he was hyster- Yeah, he was hysterical. He had, he you know, all of these guys, these one-liners, these. Yeah. He had such terrific stuff. Absolutely hysterical. Very cool. Very cool. The thing that I'm doing now is features a lot of this stuff. I'm doing this new show called um, Jokes My Irish Father Told Me. Mm-hmm. And in the show, I just frankly, simply, and tell the audience, I'm just going to tell you a joke. I'm going to tell you jokes all night long. That's all I'm going to do. And it's like if you and I were sitting someplace and we just took turns telling jokes, you know. But the stuff I've, I've picked, stuff that I think is pretty strong. And uh, and so and we'll just have a good time doing that. You know, but people try too hard sometimes. Do you remember the first time you ever did stand-up comic in front of a live audience, you know, outside of a radio studio? Oh, let me see. Do I remember the first time? Oh, my God. Yeah, fifth grade. Sister <laughs> 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 uh, Mary Gertrude didn't like it too much, but, yeah. Uh, I, I guess, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I did some stand-up, um, you know, uh, actually, working for radio stations, I would host the, you know, the promotions that we would have, and people would come someplace, and I would usually I'd be the host, mm-hmm. and I would I would just you know host for the station, you know, like that. So and, how did uh, you, and that's where it started. So how did you transition that it became a part of your business? That, that, uh, being a warm up for a uh, you know I, well I started I started doing it and then um, 
you know, I was doing it like everybody else, you know, you're going to clubs and doing either opening first and then being what they call a middle, you know, and then doing headline stuff, you know. I didn't like headline stuff. I used to turn down the headline stuff because I wanted to go do the gig and get out and split, you know. Um, and, uh, and the other guy, the guys that really um, made this their career, they wanted the headline stuff, you know, because there was more money and, and et cetera. But I I was happy just to go and, you know, do 20 and and leave, you know, or or do 20 and go to another gig. <laughs> yeah, I like that, you know. So, so did you, it, what, what kind, were they comedy clubs or were they, uh, what kind of club did you normally would get the A lot gigs? of them were comedy clubs. In, in, the, in the 80s, what they did was that big, you know, that big whole deal with it, you know, it was a big deal thing. And every nightclub or every restaurant and bar was putting in comedy nights. There were comedy clubs that were actually designed for that. But then there were a lot of clubs that just said, okay, we're going to have Thursday night is comedy night, you know, or open mic night or whatever. And they would have, so there were a lot of places to work. And, uh, were they offer prize money? Were they offer prize money? How would they attract an audience or... People who would well, 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 well. The the open mic night, everybody would bring their friends and they would get up and everything. But the paid guys all got a flat, just got, they got paid to okay. perform, you know. And then the and then the the, um, the amateurs would get up and try it out and whatever. And, and then a couple of months later, you'd see some kid who was an amateur in one of your shows and. He's opening for you, or he's in the middle. You know, they build and they do their own thing, and it works out good. So, in, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. In the Rhode Island area, were there were there producers that try to book traveling shows in the area, or was it always handled by the venue that they would go out and produce, you know, produce the show for that? Yeah, usually it was yeah yeah yeah. It was usually just the venue that did it. You know, and people went and got got good jobs that way you know yeah i mean there were a couple of agents and stuff like that but i didn't i didn't deal with them i've always been my own agent you know so um but you know but it wasn't heavy it wasn't a heavy deal like that so if somebody had a, a well-known music act come in town would that be a good gig to get to be a warm-up would, would, in other words if you knew there was a well-known music performer coming in would the venue pay pretty good money to for a warm up act, or how would they? Oh, oh, oh yeah, sure. They they give you good money. I uh, yeah, I did several things. I was with several people. We had a, a theater in the round here, War Musical Theater, mm-hmm. and uh, they brought in all kinds. I've I've opened for, oh God, I mean that and other places too. But I've opened. I opened for Jerry Vale and Anna Marie Albaghetti and and. Um, um, Oh God, the guy who did The Godfather, um, Al Martino. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked, you know, um, I, I opened for the Coasters and the Belmonts and, and um, a whole bunch of other people, you know. Um, and I worked for, um, I just go out and do whatever they want. They ask you to do 20 minutes or they'll ask you to do. One night, I think I told this on the air there, but one night I was asked to, to do, to open for Jerry Vale and Al Martino. 
and I had already I had already done it at Warwick Musical Theater, and that's in in the southern part of uh, under the south of, of Providence, and then there's a place called the Peapack, which is a huge theater in Providence, and about six or seven months later, I got a call to open for them again because they were coming into the Peapack, uh, but they said this time this time we want you to do eight minutes. <laughs> I said, what? They said, we need, we just need eight minutes. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I went and uh, being, being a radio guy, you tell me eight minutes, I give you eight minutes. Yeah. You know, it's on, it's on the money. Other people, you know, I mean, these comedians, they don't know me. They, you know, they do, probably would have done 10 to 12 or who knows, you know. So I said, okay, eight minutes. So I had eight minutes planned and I went and they did my eight minutes and, I was leaving, and Jerry Vale was going to be coming out, and he was standing right off stage left. He was standing just behind the curtains, stage left. And I said, well, that's not any time. Thanks a lot. Stick on Jerry Vale's next. I'll see you there. And I walked off stage, stage left, and I walked by. I was walking by Jerry, and he, he grabbed my arm, and he said to me, you work very neat. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, thank you very much. And that was, and that was the top one. Well, comedian, good guests on your talk show over the years, have, or have you found them to be a mixed bag? What, what do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty good. Yeah, you know, what I used to do, they're, they're good to have a, on a guest. You, you can get something out of them. Because what's happened is, you know, I, I, I used to do a TV show here, too, and um, every week and I'd have somebody on. And all I used to do is just sit and say, okay, here's, you know, Eddie Regine or whoever it is. I, and, and then I would throw them straight lines. A lot of them I hadn't seen their acts, so I knew a lot of their act. So I would, like, set them up, if you know what I mean. And I'd say, yep. gee, uh, uh, you know, did you ever, yeah, did you ever, did you ever have trouble, you know, on, uh, polishing your shoes? Because I, well, oh, let me tell you. And then that would be it, and they'd go off on their routine and I just sit back and pretend I was hearing it for the first time, you know, and, and, oh yeah, they can be really good. The trouble is, um, I'll tell you who a lousy uh, guess a lot of time is, um, anybody, uh, who does radio, um, who doesn't, who doesn't have to have lib, like, like disc jockeys. Yeah. A lot of times disc jockeys are just horrible because, and I don't mean the horrible people I'm saying, because they're 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 shy. A lot of these guys in broadcasters, you know, Walden, they're they're shy. You know, they're on the air and they're like, can you hear me smiling? <laughs> you know, uh, but when you try to talk to them, they they really don't know what to say or they don't they don't feel comfortable talking too much, and it can be pretty tough for them. Yeah, I I, I think. Tough. I think some of the disc jockeys I know now here, at least out here, were also made a TV game show hosts and things like that out here. And I would think that's almost like two separate skill sets, I think. It, to be a disc jockey on the air and and to be a game host. You almost it's you gotta you gotta be on your on your Yeah, you, you gotta be an yeah, you gotta be an actor to be a game host. I I did a show I produced a thing called the Great American Game Show that I traveled, uh all over New England uh, for malls and shopping centers. So I hosted this game, this game show thing that I put together. 
and but you've got to be you've got to be gregarious. You've got to be open. You've got to be you got to make these people feel like they're okay. That you know that you're friendly, and it's tough for these people to do because a lot of these guys who can be on the air and say. 56 degrees, you know, if they're going to want to land them down, but they're in a room all by themselves and they don't have to look at anybody and nobody's looking at them. Um, and so when they get out in public, they, they don't know what to do. They're really uncomfortable. You know, that's one of the things that really bothers me, by the way. I don't know how you feel on this. I hate cameras in radio studios. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, you know, I, th I, th I think I think it takes I think it takes some illusion away. What? What? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I watched um, um, Imus. Yes. I used to listen to Imus all the time, and then they put a, they put Imus on TV, and here was the thing. Now I I've, I've been in this business since I was a kid. I I know the business. I'm experienced in this business. I'm not surprised by anything that happens. I know how they do stuff. You know, I'm I'm very hip in this area. Right. But when I saw him, now he used to he used to have those pre-recorded bits that they would do. You know, where he's when the whole studio was laughing and everybody's and it sounds all spontaneous. And the first time on the end, they showed it on TV. And while that whole bit is running, you see Imus and he's sipping a cup of coffee or he's looking at the newspaper or, you know, it's a pre-recorded piece. And, mm -hmm. and it just destroyed the whole image for me. And I knew it. I mean, I knew what was going on anyway, but I didn't see it. Sure. Am I making myself clear? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it tells you that the, the producer, the guy who ran the camp, maybe they didn't have a, 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 a producer for the TV side. You would think they would have done some well, backdrop or something to get get away from. Yeah, the yeah, exactly. Yeah, do yeah, do something so you don't see it. Right. I mean, you know that's that, that was really. I mean, it just it's just awful. And it's funny because when I ran a array at one time, right in the beginning, this is way when they first started doing this. I was going to put a camera in our studios. Mm -hmm. And I was going to have that. I was going to have simulcasting because at the time it sounded great to me. And now I realize what a mistake that would have been. Because here they've got a couple of stations. And I mean, you know, you're on the air, especially in talk radio, somebody calls you and they can't, you know, you, you, you don't like what they say or whatever. And you get a chance to roll your eyes and make a face, you know. You can't do it if there's a camera sitting there. <laughs> Unless you're saying it on the air, you know. So what happens right? when you've been a talk show host? What happens when a caller gets really into your, under your skin? And he just, she or he is just hitting you every single day. I, I, I know some market, yeah, well, well, some market would have a restriction. You can only call once a week or once a month, blah, blah, blah. But how would you handle something like that? Well, I let them go ahead and talk, and, and I've done two different things that I thought. There was one guy that used to drive me nuts, as you described him just now. Mm -hmm. He'd call, and he'd just rant and rave and say the most stupid things. And just. And so I said to him, you know, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I said, you come on here, we give everybody about three to five minutes, right? Three, three, usually three minutes. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. 
from now on, when you call, I'm going to say, okay, time starts now. And I'm going to shut my mic off and I'm going to let you talk for three minutes. And almost without, uh, uh, without exception, these people could not fill three minutes <laughs> when nobody was challenging them. They just, you know, I mean, think about it yourself. You, I mean, you do this all, all the stuff you're doing. People don't know how long three minutes is. No. That's an eternity if you don't know what to do or what to say. Or if you've already said everything you ever wanted to say in your whole life and you spew it out in a minute and 40. <laughs> and now you got nothing to say. I remember there was, so st that, that, I remember there was, huh? I remember there was stations out here on the West Coast, out like Arcade uh, uh, on uh, Las Vegas. They always had a clock. Every three minutes, you always heard it go off with the call. I mean, that's just how they ran the station. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, that, that's okay. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I didn't need to do that. But no. here's the other thing I, I, I do now. Even now I do this um, when I'm at the other station. Because when I'm at AR, I'm at my own station. It's, mu it's much more lighthearted. It, it's, you know, I'm, I'm just doing general stuff. Yeah, I'm not doing heavy stuff like I used to do. I mean, I can, but I, if somebody wants to, I'll be glad to dance. But, you know, I, I don't start it. But what I, I, I created this years ago for myself, and I, I, I called the radio station the last word in talk radio. And what we did was when you called, if you and I disagreed, you and I would go do battle, whatever, right? And then at the, near the end of the three or five minutes, whatever it is, I would say, okay, last word. And then you would get to say, and your mother wears army boots, and your father was gay, and da da ba 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 da 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 bum. Okay, thanks for the call. And I, and we'd move on. And it was great because people didn't get hung up on, and they didn't feel like they were, you know, cut off, and they didn't feel frustrated, like they didn't get to say what they wanted to say, you know. And it worked really great. Still does. The punchlines, one day, the punchline, yeah. the reason I did that and I was so magnanimous is because I was still on for three hours. I could reiterate what I wanted to say over and over again. <laughs> so I wasn't giving anybody anything. It was great. I'm sorry, what were we going to ask I would think, I was wondering, if you think talk radio is a geographic thing? In other words, the country, the... Do, do some whole feel vulnerable in some market versus other? I remember, well, you remember the early 80s when the talk show host out Denver, Colorado, got shot in the parking lot. And we, yes. we had Larry Cox on who had the all-night slot for KOA. And one of the things he talked about is how vulnerable he felt that people were threatening his life and things like that. And I was just wondering... Is that sort of a regional thing? Did you you think that, you think that's just part of the business? No, I think it's it's part of the business. It depends on what you bring to your you know. I mean, it, it, there's no doubt that the different parts of the country have different ways of thinking. I mean, mm -hmm. people. Uh, I, I might be as an example. If I was very uh, well liked here, uh, and then I moved to North Carolina, you know, they'd be you know they'd be tar and feathering me. Who the hell knows? You know, I mean. It's a different time. But I never worried about being threatened. I mean, 
I was I was threatened many times. And I, one time I was threatened before I made an appearance at a, at a city hall, at a, at a city council meeting, and uh, the mayor had been listening to my radio show, and this guy called up and threatened my life, said, if you go there, then you're going to go home in a box. And um, I couldn't wait to get there. I even had, I think I told you this, I had a, I had a, a giant bullseye made with my face on it. And I, I wore it around my neck so, so that the, the wrong person wouldn't get shot. Mm. You know, I wanted to make sure, that, yeah, I wanted to make sure the wrong person got shot. But one of the things that you learn with these people is that they never call first. They don't call for us. You know, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't call Jack Kennedy and say, yeah. I'll, I'll meet you in Dallas. Yeah. You know, uh, they just show up and they do it if they're, if they're going to do it. So I never worried about that because if it happens, there's nothing I can do about it and it probably won't even know what happened until it's over. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to allow that. I just, you know, so I didn't care. Were there, were there local legislations over the years that you backed that got through because of the radio platform? I was thinking out here, a lot, yeah. of, pe- a lot of people felt Ray Breen was behind Prop 13, and he had Howard Jarvis on almost like so many days in a row. And it, you know, Howard Jarvis always gave Ray Breen and Talk Radio the, the, the boots to get Prop 13 passed out here in California. But that, I imagine that you probably would think that you backed over the years that got through just because you had the radio platform to get it out there. Yeah, we had yeah we had a we had a good one. We had a couple of them, but we had a good one. Um, they were building they built a train station. Well, there was an old train station, but they renovated this train station uh, here in Attleboro. And somebody called me one day and said to me. Um, do you know that they're building that station and it's not handicapped accessible? Mm. I said, why? And they said, no. They said, and, and I don't know what happened, so I went and did some homework, and, and, and I started, you know, screaming about it on the air, and people went, yada, yada, yada. Well, the next thing you know, uh, it was it was seven months they couldn't open the train station <laughs> because of the hell that we raised they couldn't well they were illegal first of all they were illegal it wasn't just it wasn't just people saying oh we're not in favor of this it was illegal and and i made sure people knew so we kept that thing closed and they had to retrofit it right and and that station right now and i go by there all the time there is a huge long zigzag ramp that goes from the parking lot over to the left and over to the right and then over to the left and over to the right so that you can get a wheelchair up to the platform of the, of the train. And that was a monument to the people of Attleboro who decided that this was not acceptable to them. But, I'm, but I didn't do it. I just talked about it. Right. If nobody were to support it, it wouldn't happen. If I, and I used to talk about it, I'd get interviewed every once. I said, look, if I said, if I had said, okay, we're all going to go up there, we're all going to get together and walk up the main street and we're going to shoot the mayor. Come on, let's go. I'd be the only one walking up the road. Oh, oh, oh. You know, it, it is the people that get it done. 
not me. I can talk about it, I can give them their time, and I can try to cajole them into doing something. But they're the ones that do it. The people can do it. And that's why I've always had faith in our government and faith in our people, because it does get done. Things do get fixed. And there's nothing to panic about. So, and you just over, keep at it. Over the years, how did you do research on a local issue? Did you have sources inside local city government? Or did how did you make sure... Well, I had people, I had people, well, yeah, well, people, well, of course, I would check everything, but I, I had people who, you know, they're all people always willing to tell you what you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I went into a new, I didn't have to do a lot of research. Anytime I went into a new market, a new radio station, I'd just say, okay, so tell me what I should know about this place. <laughs> That's all I had to do. And the phones would ring up, and they'd tell me who's a jerk and who's a this and who's a that. And, you know, and then other people call up and say, well, he's not a jerk, the real jerk, and da-da-da. And they're all the same. It's all the same. It's like WKRP in Cincinnati. You watch WKRP in Cincinnati, and I've worked in every single radio station that is exactly like WKRP. Only the names are changed to protect the people. All the sales managers are the same way. All the receptionists are the same way. All the all-night disc jockeys are the same way. They're they're all stereotyped, and it's really funny. So it, it it's all it's all the same. It's all the same. There's nothing new. I would tell you something that's funny though. After we did this uh, handicapped uh, train station, yeah. about a year later, a year and a half later, they had uh, a mayoral race in the city. Again, this was Attleboro again. Mm-hmm. And one night they were going to have a candidate's night. And um, the candidate's night was going to be at this VFW hall that was not handicapped accessible. Mm-hmm. And that got my attention to begin with. But then I remembered one of the candidates for mayor, one of the primary candidates for, not mayor, for city council, was a polio victim, a post-polio victim. And, wow. And that meant she wouldn't be able to get into the hall, or at least not easily. So I cried and yelled about it on the air, and I said, look, come on, we've got to find another place. And and the powers that be, these local yokos, decided, oh, no, we're not going to let him do this. You know, we're not going to let him make us do this. So they they ignored it. They, they, They wouldn't change the venue. So because I ran the station, I said, okay, fine. We are not covering it. I'm keeping the news department away from there because if it's not open to the public all the public it's a private event and we don't cover private events uh and then that night and they still had it and that night we went out and we picketed that night Mm -hmm. we picketed with the candidates that couldn't get in and a whole bunch of people came down to picket the the outrageous behavior and the following Friday, I was fired. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yep, I was fired. Um, because of the pressure of, we were talking about earlier of, of the local yokels, you know. They just put the pressure on them. Did they have a but here's the punchline. Uh, well, wait to say, here's the punchline, okay? You ready? Ready. The Friday, the Friday, um, I get the accent. 
I had gotten a, a terrific surprise. The National Association of Broadcasters had given our radio station the Crystal Award for Community Service. And so my, so my meeting came up, and I went into Peter, the owner, and I said, Pete, look what I got for you. This is the National Association of Like 30 stations in the country get it, and we got one. I said, here you go. After all of the stuff we've been through, you know, I said, here you go. And he said, thank you. And he put it aside and he said, you're fired. <laughs> Is that great? Is that great? <laughs> Shouldn't I write the book? Shouldn't I write the book? So, I should write the book. So I imagine you never had to write a resume. I mean, every radio, they, probably the whole radio community knew what you were all about. So you, when you called up, hey, you got an opening. Yeah, I stopped calling. I got I got calls from people. I, I I I didn't call anymore. People would say, you know, hell, it's like it was like whose turn is it to have Uncle Fred? <laughs> I'll go over here and get fired after a while. You know. Did they ever ask you to run for office, like mayor or city council or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. People say it all the time. I would never never do that because I was getting a lot more accomplished. Where I was, I think so. That I could ever get as as yeah yeah you, you, you see that's your problem. You got to make sure you don't believe your own press. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean I'd read stuff about I see stuff about me in the in the newspaper and I'd I'd laugh because I mean I'm I was not any of the things they said, good or bad. <laughs> you know I used to say on the and they write crap about me. I used to say, you know I got to tell you my real life is far more in more interesting than the stuff you guys are doing. God, I mean, if you knew the real deal with me, you know, you'd be you'd be bored with what you're writing, you know. So, so I never really took that. Oh, I I, I have a story I want to tell you yeah. um, about radio. This is this is really interesting. Now, all of the players in this, I think, are past now. But I'll, but I'll just tell you. Oh, by the way, the guy that I did, they, that fired me, like, that I just told you about, his name was Peter Oddmar. He, he passed not long ago. And I really liked this guy. Mm-hmm. I really liked him. He's a great guy. He he made, he and I had a handshake. Yeah, we had a handshake. The deal was that I would run the radio station and he would leave me alone. Not, I mean, in the sense, not force me to do anything. Yeah. And if he let me run the radio station, that if things got too bad and he wanted to hang up, I would just leave. He wouldn't have to. It would be a big deal. He kept his word to me, and the day he fired, I, I left. And in the paper, I told everybody what an honorable man he was, that he, he had never broken his word to me. And people could not imagine that I wasn't you know, jumping ugly with this guy. Or being mean to him, sure. he was a great. I liked him. I still liked him to this day. And he he just recently passed suddenly. It's very young, and uh, and so he was just a great guy, regardless of him the deal he was in. But he had a lot of pressure on him mm-hmm. from people. He was a he was a country club. He was in the country club crowd, and okay. those people who made it, they were unmerciful to him. But let me tell you this story. You'll like this. Am I boring you yet? Heck no. Walden. Heck no. All right. 
All right, because um, nobody's calling, so I'm just presuming they fell asleep. So <laughs> they're so entertained um, by us that they've forgotten that seven one four five four oh, five two zero oh, seven one. If not, Dave and I are having a good time. So yeah, yeah, right. So I get a, I'm on the air one day and I just go on the air and um, my the news is on and this and, and 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 I open my mail. And there's a little note in there, and it says, Dave, what do you think of this? And there was a little article in there that a local, um, oh, boy, who is he? A local um, coroner, mm-hmm. local coroner, uh, there was a, a motorcycle accident, and a young man died on a, in this motorcycle accident. And they got his name and everything out of his wallet. And they called his mother, and this coroner said to the mother, uh, your son just died in a, in a motorcycle accident, and I need his social security number. That's how she found out. Wow. So she was, of course, you, you, you can imagine, it, but she was just, and so she was trying, she, and this is the oldest before cell phones and everything, I mean, She's she's trying to to call her husband and she she hangs up, but the coroner won't hang up the phone, so she can't get a dial tone oh. to get out. So and and she keeps saying, "Give me the number." She said, "Hang up, hang on, I gotta talk to my husband." So, I read this article, right? This is what this guy did, right? That's all I did was read the article. And my I said on the air, okay, what do you think about this? You know, what, what do you think about this? My phones rang off the hook for a week. Everybody had another horror story about this guy. Uh, it, it was it was unbelievable. Another horror story about this guy, and um, it got worse and worse. So finally, I said, "Okay, this is this is way in my beginning at, at WARI." And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sign a petition. We're going to get up a petition, and we're going to see about getting this guy put out of his job. So the following week, I said, Tuesday night, come on by. And, they, and I figured I'll get a few people, you know, and get a, you know, have a table out there with some signatures, whatever. And that night, one of the other executives came up to me and said, have you been outside yet? I said, no. He said, I think you ought to go out there. I said, yeah, I'm going to go out there. I'm just going to. You know, call my hair and no, no, no. You, you, you really got to go out there. So I go outside, and there was something like a thousand people wow. outside. There was emergency equipment going, uh, uh, rescue squads going up and down the street, and every time they come by, I think, whoop, 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 with lights flashing. All of these people, all of these EMTs, had horror stories about this guy who had, according to them, taken the wallets out of people's, you know, who had passed in a car accident, taken the money out of their wallets, taken rings off them. It was just, it was unbelievable. And there's a a very long and intricate story, but the bottom line is um, they they were going to get rid of him. Well, during this time, I'm just going to tell you this part. During this time, he got cancer. 
And now, of course, now I know all the press because the newspaper's not on my side at all, the local newspaper. And now I'm the bad guy who's who's jumping ugly mm-hmm. with the guy who's got cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's all about him and his cancer, and I'm 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 the jerk. Okay. So the so he passed anyway, and everything. You know, no, everything. Yeah, everything quieted down, and he, he was ill, and he stepped down, or whatever happened. And about a month and a half later, he passed away. And the newspaper writes this beautiful article about. You know that he was dedicated this guy and da, 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 da. so on the air that that morning, I read that article with some nice music behind it and tried to put it behind us. You know, just trying to put everything aside. Yeah. But the last thing that they wrote about this guy in the article was that he had these huge um, hedges in his house big, tall hedges, and they were his pride and joy, and he always was, you know, out pruning them, and, but they were huge hedges. So I read that whole thing. The phone rings, and I say, hello, Dave, you know those hedges they're talking about? <laughs> Do you know where they were or what? They were on the corner of such and such and such and such. Do you know how many accidents they had on that corner? Because that son of a bitch wouldn't have cut his hedges. <laughs> And here I was trying to make nice, <laughs> and uh, that so that's the story. It's, it's um, anyway. So, uh, somebody's on the phone. No, actually, John, we're already so we're gonna bring both of them in. So Dave and I'll have. Oh, great! Company, so stand by, everybody. Welcome to Skype. Press Jaws key sure plus H for a list. Active call favorites. Here, Select favorites. Select a de- search no. edit. Okay. Search e- favorite. Dave, Patricia, Andrea, oh, Ray from Chick, Jim right Tate, Patricia from F. Larry Gassman applications. Cut video. Oh, send, I- send, vid- send, des- send, send, f- shares, invite, enter, leaving menus. Contacts Larry Gassman, Larry. Gas. Active. John Gassman, John. Application. Video call. Send, send video message. Send SMS. Send send five shares. Invite to enter. Leaving menus. Contacts John Gassman. John. Gassman. Online. As a blind person, I can say that we live in a wonderful time for accessibility and assistive technology. Favorite Walton Hughes added John Gassman. Sent on Saturday, September 16th. Well, we can talk about it a little bit, I guess. Whatever. Enter. with dinner dinner was awesome we um we went our, our tenor belongs to a, a golf club um it's a country club really it's well, but it's a golf club and and we perform up there quite often and oftentimes when his wife is out of town as she is this weekend he said hey i'm a bachelor for a while do you want to go to dinner and of course we said fine and so who drove? Up, what's that who drove uh we did flip for it Okay. And, and since since I don't do freeways and John doesn't either, and since there weren't any, he drove. Okay. So yeah, so I mean, good stuff. It, you know, it's very very nice. I had chicken Madeira and mashed potatoes and uh, asparagus, and caramel almond cheesecake. And I rarely do dessert, but you know they put those menus in front of you and they make you look at the pictures. And so what could I do? What can you do? Right. Yeah, you know, I, I, you, it's tempting. 
You can't ha- I just can't handle all those photos. That's all there is to it. I understand. They come by with this dessert tray. The, you know, now, the, tr- the big old trap. They do. And if they made me smell all those desserts, it would be worse. They don't do well, that. I, would, that. I wouldn't mind you smelling them, Larry. It's when you put your hands in them to feel them that gets me. Do you know how horrible it made me feel? And that's happened a few times. The When we were in Nashville uh, performing, we were singing and performing. This is for a week. And we would, John and I went up for breakfast early in the morning by ourselves. And there was nobody serving. You just, you know, grab the food, ladle in, and, and go. Well, there's nobody in line. And I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to do this? This is going to be gross. How do we know what's in front of us? Now, we can smell that there are mashed, but there are, there are eggs. But yeah. where are they? So I just had to, I don't do this often, but I had no choice. I reached in, touched them, and then made sure the spoon touched what I had touched. Yeah, And yeah. it worked until finally somebody came by and helped. But it's just a horrible feeling. Because what other choices do you have? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's too bad. That's... And and then we had to find our way to a table, which was in another room almost. So, you know, when they see two blind people coming with trays in their hands, all of a sudden the tables and chairs empty and plenty of people are there to help. Yeah, yeah, good. good. That's the way to do it. But, that, but it's, it must be terribly irritating. I mean... To be able to, not to be able to do that. We, uh, it was very, it, it was, it was very irritating. Irritating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happened a couple of times, but you know, not often, but once in a while, and it's just frustrating. Because you know, we don't want to put our hands in food. And the other alternative is, you know, what if I don't want it? But in some, you could just take your spoon and put it in something and just guess. But that's yeah. that's not the greatest situation either. So you know, happens once in a while. Fortunately, not often. I found myself um, lately, and, I, and Walden and I talked about it a little bit. But all of the things that I thought about with you guys, especially who were born without sight, like when we say, like when we say picture, I have a picture. I'm not even. You don't really even realize what that is do you i mean you, you can't envision it in any it de- way it depends on what it is because i mean if you're talking about a picture that you have if we can imagine it based on association we may know what it no i don't or, mean or, I, I, the item i mean just the picture itself oh what is, we what have is a, a picture what is well, a walden has you know? walden has a totally different concept of what it looks like because he had some sight for 11 10 or 11 years we right, have right. we have I a mean. different picture. Yeah. yeah, we have a different picture because we've never seen. So our perception of what something looks like is probably going to be completely different uh, than yours. My my perception and picture of my parents who are now gone is completely different than my younger brother and younger sister's perception of my parents because they saw them and we didn't. So we have a different picture. It's completely different. Melinda, when she was alive, her picture of her parents was when Melinda, when she could see, when she was 22. So obviously, her picture of her parents in her mind's eye was of young people. Yeah, same thing with my case. I, I, right. The last time I saw my mom you, your parents dad, have never aged as far as you can tell. I, the last time no. I saw them was in 1975. 
Right. So I still I, I have that in my mind. Mm-hmm. So for you and John, who've never saw your mom and dad, do you put form a body of your mom and dad, or how do you? Yeah, because we felt them. Uh-huh. You know, they hugged us. Yeah. You know, when we were little, they we were on their knees. I don't remember that as much, but I remember hugging my mom, and I remember you know hugging my dad. So I have a a, a picture of them, but not a visual picture. I, I, it's something weird happened to me the other day. Speaking of that, about changing, um, there was an incident in front of my house, and there were some police officers there. And this police officer, I went out to see what was going on, and this police officer walked up to me and said, are you Mr. Kane? And I said, yes. Well, years and years and years ago, my, my ex-wife and I had a drama club with 80 fourth through eighth graders. And this police officer who came up the door to me was one of those kids. Oh my. And and now he's like thirty five or whatever the hell he is, forty five, whatever the hell. And he said to me, You haven't changed a bit. And I thought, Holy God, if I look this bad when I was that <laughs> young <laughs> Boy, I, if, if you were blind, you could have given him your cane, and you should have said, "You, you need this more than I do." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you yeah, imagine? Man. You haven't changed a bit. Oh, really? Well, but this is interesting, though, though, because when you're a child, and 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 when you're a child, and you can see someone, they look old, even if they're only young. But because you're very young, they they look older. And then as you grow up, you've kind of held that picture in your mind. Right. And then when you see them later, even though they have indeed, especially in my case, I mean, oh, God, I look like I've been rode hot and put away wet. I mean, <laughs> um, and, and but it, it's almost an expression. What they really mean is, oh, my God, you're still upright. Yeah, I guess I never, from a blind person's perspective who's been blind all of his life, I never thought about the fact that when I'm young and I'm talking to somebody my parents' age when they were in their 30s, that they were old. Obviously, they were older, but I never got that kind of uh, inference. And I don't know whether it's it's because I didn't see them. Not sure. But I never thought about that. It's, it's, I've been thinking a lot about you guys because uh, this whole thing of, uh, like, I tried to explain something. I started to explain something to, to um, Walden today, tonight, and I can't remember what it was now. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, I thought, I'm going to give him something he's not going to have a reference to. But he would have more of a reference than you would. But I mean, right. I can't remember what it was, Walden. We were talking about seeing something. I forget what it was. And, and it's just. I can't, I can't fathom, like, I can't make my mind think of what it's like for you guys because I've had the experience of sight. I have an, an interesting hypothesis that I've never thought about. I'm wondering, is it easier for John Lerner and I to make friends with different generations of people because we're not, we're not, stopped, we're not stopped by somebody's looks? 
than maybe the other person. Like, let's say a young kid who uh, looks at somebody uh, 50, 60, 70 years older. And they say, oh, you know, the old saying, but he's really old. You know, so I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. yeah. I'm not go sure. Ahead, go ahead, Larry. I'm not sure. Um, I know some very young well, people. Well, it just looks. Yes. Yeah, but I know some very young people who are blind who don't surround themselves with older people. They surround themselves with people in their particular circles. Uh, we have interests and passions that would lend themselves to people who are older than we are, uh, and even younger than you are, but mostly older, like the radio hobby. Right. You know. So I don't know if it's that. I think it's more the, that. Than the fact that that see, looks think, don't enter into our conversation. I think, I think we I think we have a comfort level from people from all white age range because of a maybe because we we don't have that barrier that visual barrier that some people maybe because so, I tell you for example some of the young people that we have that we know in the copy like Hager and other who I cite they you know for them what bothers them about the hobby is death. You know, they, they make friends they make friends with older people and they're gone. And they that, But I that probably would bother them anyway, I, whether it's so. the hobby or not. Maybe so. But but, but just, when you if you think about it, I mean John and I are barbershoppers. And that hobby, although there are a lot of young people in it now, that hobby is predominantly made up of older people. Mm-hmm many of whom are now gone. Radio people, many of whom are now gone. Right. So I think a lot of that has to do with passions and not necessarily the fact that not being able to see them uh, is impactful. I, I don't I don't know. I yeah, don't I know think, if you're right. Yeah, I think that, yeah, yeah, I think that, I think that uh, Walt is a good song here because one of the reasons that we have trouble in our society is that people can see each other and decide however subconsciously, however knee-jerk, oh, okay, you must be this because you look like that. Yeah, they have a stereotypical viewpoint. Uh, right, right. First impressions, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after, you know, then you talk to them and you get to, if, if you can. But one of the problems of being able to see like this is that it's tough to undo your knee-jerk reaction uh, to the visual. If I see somebody and go, oh, he's, oh, he's 75, oh, he's probably, I'm going to, oh, well, hey, for instance, um, do you guys, when, when someone realizes you're blind, do, do you find that people tend to yell at you? Uh, not often, but there are occasions when some might, but not very, not often anymore. What I notice over yeah. the years, what I've noticed over the years, Dave, they don't think we're as intelligent people sometimes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, well, you're not going to. Yeah, we never had that problem, Walden. I don't know what about you necessarily. Well, well thinking, yeah. I, well, I meant just him. Yeah, I meant just him. Yeah. I'm thinking of when I walk yeah. into a classroom, I, I think pe- teachers especially have a preconceived notion. And then when they start realizing I'm always the top guy, get the top grade in the score, I think that re- it reshaped their directions of uh, you know, the mental capacity of fellow students in there. Yeah, yep. well, that's true. Of, yeah. That's true of everybody, though. It isn't, it isn't just handicapped. I mean, people are doing it uh, based on skin color. Yeah, 
based on you know uh, poverty. You know the uh, you know that the you know these kids are from a poverty neighborhood. You immediately think that they're not smart. You know, I mean, not me, but I mean sure. people do do that. And, but that's just part of it. It's, it's, it's but in in thinking about trying to get my own head around. Not the points of reference are so interesting. I, I hear you guys always say, "Well, I saw this and I was looking at this and I checked this out," which is great. Um, but when I think about, like I said, like about a picture. Now I'm not talking about the item. I'm talking about what a picture is. You don't have a concept of that, do you, Larry? No. 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 That's what I was thinking. We only have the concept of how it was described to us by people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And just both you feel that you don't have a a good grasp concept of those types of issues? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. When I'm playing on the computer and I look at web pages, uh, they are laid out differently than how we perceive them using our screen reader. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a while for me, but I try and get to the point where I can um, imagine them the way a sighted person would see them. Because oftentimes when I'm in conversations with them, I have to be able to understand what they're talking about. So uh, that takes some time, but it's doable. I find that, you know, one of the things I realized I, I have done before, and I, I, I should apologize for this, but I, I brag about you guys, all three of you, when I'm talking about USA Today, and I'm very well, and I always say, they do all this, and they can do that, and blah, 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 they put on these things, and they're blind. Like, I mean, I mean, I say it like, like me, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I couldn't do this. If I had that problem as well i couldn't do it it's amazing because you guys do i never thought of this before but many years ago many decades ago we were on a plane john and i with uh, another quartet and they had gone up to do a show i think it was in fresno california and we went with them or actually we got there before they did and we flew home together and we were talking about sighted people and their perceptions of blind people and and one of us said, might have been me, but I don't remember. I'm just amazed sometimes at why sighted people treat us. And I'm not saying this blanketly, but some sighted people treat yeah. us the way they treat us. And the baritone in the quartet, who was incredibly perceptive, sharp, sharp guy, who loved watching people, said, well, I'm not sure, but I think maybe it is because they imagine themselves in your shoes and they can't imagine them being able to do half the stuff that you guys do. And exactly right. And I, I, yeah, I think he's exactly right. The right. older I've gotten, the more I tend to believe that he's absolutely correct. I see it all the time in public transportation. If I get on a bus, I get on at my normal speed, which is, you know, not fast, fast but, but I move along running people over. And the and the driver, you know, reacts as furniture. If, the re- driver reacts as if I should be walking at like half a mile an hour because that's how he envisions other blind people doing it. Well, oh, yeah, but also it's how they 
it also is how they would be they right. would be doing it correct if, you, if i put a blindfold on right now i would be walking like that making sure i didn't smash my head in front of a into a door or something so that's why too that they they get nervous i'm, I'm guessing they get nervous because they watch you and they're afraid you're going to get hurt because I would be like that. Absolutely. And watching how quickly John runs down the stairs on a bus, he just moves. You know, we don't have any fear because we've always been blind, so we've always moved like that. Hopefully, right. slower yeah, now with age. Good. But 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 the guy, the sighted bus driver doesn't know that. You know, he's only a, a, aware of other blind people and some of them moving a lot slower than we do. And he's constantly slow down, please. Oh no 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 slow down slow down. He's just going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Slowing down like crazy. He's going nuts. Uh, John, do you remember the time when, when, when John? Do you remember when Melinda and I got married, and you and Kathy were walking down the aisle? Yeah. And you're walking fast, and she's pulling on your arm, saying, "Slow down, slow down." And what you did? And I got oh, a big laugh. Uh, well, yeah, because all of a sudden I did. I went into slow mo, slow motion, and I took <laughs> one step forward every five seconds. And and you can hear him on the tape going. It's on the video. <laughs> and people in the audience are laughing. They're not watching the bride and the groom. They're watching his stupid brother. Something like upstaging your brother, John. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I I, I said you have music? I can't wait you get married. What? I said, didn't you have music to to know that there's a certain pace at which you walk, John? This was after the music. Oh, yeah, this after. was afterwards. This is afterwards. Oh, it leaving. Was, you mean it wasn't leaving. during Here Comes the Bride. <laughs> oh, I thought it was. Oh, no, no, no. The, 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 yeah, the processional. Okay, all right. Yeah, it was after, after yeah. the wedding. Yeah, I tried to convince him to do Here Comes the Bride as a march, but they wouldn't go for it, so. Yeah. Well, your friend, your friend was right, uh, Larry. That's that's exactly how I feel that I would never be able to do what you can do. I mean, I just, I have great respect for you. And, and to say that almost sounds like I'm, I'm putting you down, but you know, I don't mean it like that. Oh no. I'm, not, I'm, I'm fascinated by your abilities to be able to, to deal with what you have. And, and boy, it's great. I mean, I'm very impressed with it. You know what I'm, wonder, uh, what I'm wondering, too, just to get another angle, I wonder if it because John Lurie and I were blessed with parents to integrate us into society as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah. And Th I, they let us try anything. You yeah, know, they I, may not have been too happy about it. First time we ever crossed the street, I'm sure there were some nervous moments for them, but they never stopped us. Or off a high dive. So, oh, going off a high dive. Yeah, that too. I forgot about that. So I, I feel... That we are very... <laughs> the high dive. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just, sure. Come on, Dave. You just don't look down. <laughs> Man, the first time I ever went off a high dive, I went in on my stomach, and, and, and it was a huge belly flop. I remember when Larry went in the first time. My brother, my younger brother, yelled, Larry, there's no water in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that didn't really happen. into society so much that we have a comfortability in the sighted world. A lot of blind people who I don't think were blessed with that kind of upbringing have always felt isolated. 
and the ones that have affected their social interaction with people. Well, that's probably true. It's probably true. A lot of them went to, quote, blind schools. Oh, I wish I had some reverb. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Uh, someone has to teach you how to be blind. Well, that's what you would think. But yeah. unfortunately, there were a lot of a lot of good things came out of blind schools, from what I understand, and a lot of not good things came out of blind schools. But what I what out what Walden was talking about is from the from an isolationist standpoint, they weren't often able to be in regular society, so you know they weren't interacting with people, and that was so important for us. And I, sometimes it wouldn't work as well because people being people, sometimes they were they were interested in kind of seeing what we were all about, sometimes not, and they would avoid us like the plague. Sighted people basically react to you in two ways. There are there are sighted people who are te- treat you just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Come up and say hi and how are you doing and react and just you know, we're lucky we're we're friends with a lot of those. The other are they're. They really don't know how to react, so it's almost like, to give you an example, they treat you as if you had leprosy. Uh, they won't come anywhere near you or interact because they put, they must, they must put something in front of them that says, "How do I react? How do I talk? How do I do this? How do I do that? I don't know, so I just won't do anything." Yeah, they, yeah, they're afraid to do the wrong thing, and they're also afraid. What happens with something like that, too, in my opinion, is that people, because of the fear. They're afraid you're contagious, in a weird sense. Um, oh, we are. Same thing is true. <laughs> yeah, why? Well, I mean, yeah, but it's clearing <laughs> up now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. After um, all these years, I yeah. would hope. Yeah. Well, Open water work. Yeah. yeah, but but it's the same thing that happens when someone gets cancer many times, or when when someone loses a child. Uh, you will be amazed at the people who all of a sudden disappear from your life um, because they just don't know how to deal with it. They're afraid that it's going to happen to them. They're afraid that uh, they're going to say something awful or stupid in your presence. And I think that uh, most of it is fear that some people are not going to measure up, however that is. And it's too bad because it stops them from experiencing so much. Well, I noticed a uh, uh the bulk of my really close friends in my life, it's a certain personality trait. They're more expressive. They're more outgoing. And I think, I think they are willing to accept my disability so they in a, in a, uh, incorporate us into their lives. People who are more reserved or things, I don't have the same bondage to. And uh, it's it, so I, for me over the years, I've noticed the bulk of my close friends who have been very outgoing, very expressive type of people. Yep, 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 yep. And they're I not agree. Well, because they've, they've, over, they've overcome their fear or hasn't been allowed it. You know, it goes back to that, I think, you know. Um, and, and But even even you, Walter, I think your situation is so different from Larry and John's that your whole deal is very different from them. And I think I don't, well, that's my observation anyway. They were just different, and the ability that you had to be able to see for a little while kind of make all the difference in the world. I think it does in a lot of ways. There are things I'm, you know, I have certain strength that 
Sean Gloria don't have, they have others that I don't have. And I think I think um, we we partnered well. We covered for each other. And but there were some things that I was blessed with early in life that I took advantage of. My mathematical skills, my business side, all that kind of stuff that I was able to expose. And um, those those skill sets, especially with math, I have the older I gotten, the more and more I noticed that less blind people have the ability to do high mathematics. I don't I don't know why, but that's just definitely all we seem to run in the uh, in the field. It's just just an observation of mine. Okay, quick. No, it's nine times six. Quick. <laughs> Fifty-four. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was a little Question. slow. I think the lab got in the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was Skype latency advocate. got in the way. No, it wasn't Skype yeah. latency. Don't give Skype any benefit of the doubt. Okay. Now, what happened to Zoom? I heard you guys talking about Zoom last night. Yeah, yeah we're, we we that- we played with it today. We're not quite there yet, uh, but I would guess in another week, we very well may be moving to Zoom. We'll see. We'll let you know in plenty of... Now, that, it doesn't matter whether we conference? let you know. You'll know. It's not like Skype, right? It's a conference call? It's or a conference it... call. Set no, it's, it's exactly... It does exactly what Skype does, only um, it's generally dependent on links. You go into a room, uh, a virtual room, and you can yeah. put uh, as little as one or as many as 100 people in that room. Wow. Uh, now, wow. before everybody gets their hand up and excited uh, the the ma the person who has the um the hosting duties can mute so can you imagine what a hundred people of yesterday usa would sound like in a room it would be chaos but we may use it for um we can use it for playing radio shows we can use it for interviews we can do pretty much what skype was doing but the sound now will be better and uh, and so we're we're really excited about it. It was generally used as designed for the business field for video conferences. That was its original intent. Yes. Yeah. But the audio is so good on it, so that's why more and more people are using it for audio. It's good. Oh, there okay. is some noise cancellation issues in there that I'm looking because I'm going to get rid of them for us because we don't want them because it takes a little bit of the sound out. And I understand why they did it, but I don't want it for us. So we'll get rid of those. And we'll play with it. Well, uh, another week or so, we'll have it down. Well, Larry, have you guys ever met Patricia in person? No. Really no. As a matter no. of fact, in 2010, when I first heard her, I called Walden and I said, who is that? Because vocalically, she sounds, uh, she's younger sounding, but she sounds a lot like Barbara Watkins. Did you notice that, Walden? Yeah, I thought. She has, she has a little, I don't think so. Has, you don't think so, John? No. She has a low. Uh, I think. I think Patricia has a low higher range than Barbara does. So she does. Yeah. yeah, and she's a lot more animated. Mm-hmm. No, but she had vocalically sounds. She sounded like her. At least I thought so. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't. Who cares? I don't care. Um, I think she. I, I think she's some, some cross-based reference points. I think she. Is. Yeah. But no, we've not met her. Walden has. We have not. Yeah. 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 
Didn't she come out here for a convention? Walden? No. I'm sorry. I said, didn't she come out here for a convention? Yep, she came out here for, for, to, the, to the 2007 Spurback luncheon. Oh, the infamous Sam Spade luncheon. No, the Jack Benny luncheon, the one the whole sound system collapsed. And... Oh, I got it mixed up. Sorry, yeah. I knew it was the one where the sound system died. Yeah. That I was, was thinking that was Sam Spade. It was Jack Benny? Jack Benny. That was Jack wow. Benny. That's what and what happened? What happened? What, what happened? happened? Well, Frank... Frank wanted some of the old Pacific Pioneer broadcasters, engineers, to run the meeting. And they, these are well-known guys, Marty and Don McCroskey, Marty Halpern and Don McCroskey, Don Roy ran the meeting. And all the equipment they brought, they couldn't get enough volume, or the volume would just die during the recreations. And oh, wow. here you had Eddie Carroll and, Jack, and Chuck McCann Starting to cover for every single thing that was going on. Good thing the cast knew what was going on, so they projected the voice, and we had 280 people for the lunch. So well, we got we got a good recording because we uh, we had the mic still worked, and so the, the mics were going through the board, and we have copies that came from the board. It's just that there wasn't enough volume to get it to the house. Right. In so, the room, yeah. Okay, in the room. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we also have a camera version of that. And I don't know where the hell the camera was, outside maybe, but, I mean, in the back, in the back row. And you can hear the uh, actors, but you lose so much because there's so much echo involved as well. It's tough to follow. So we have two different feeds, two or three. Anyway, it got to the point that even the audio clips weren't working. So Chuck McCann was jumping in to do the Maxwell cars and everything else to cover for the whole day. And so when I walked back to talk to Eddie and Chuck, and Chuck said, you want me back next time? Get a new audio people. We need a cleaner So that's when I got really looking, looking for people with, with help. But uh, that was the... That was the it wasn't the audio people so much. It was the audio equipment. Yeah. It was the audio equipment. Yeah. Because yeah. the people were good. Wow. They were. Yeah. They were, but that, that, that's what happened to me. And uh, I see that Eddie Kill, why just got out of the hospital today. After, after five, five months. months. Was this related to her cancer? Might have been. She doesn't say. No. Uh, I'll probably get killed on a call here, Phil. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking about that too. But g- well, let's give her a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. She's a she a uh, sweetheart. She is um. New Joyce Burns. It'd be fun to have him back on. Get to talk about her personal career with uh, everybody. Yeah. But Ed, do you know who Eddie Carroll was, uh, Dave? Dave? No. Eddie Carroll was... First, he worked for Disney for I don't know how many years. 30, um, 38 years, I think. The voice and of Jiminy Cricket. The yeah. voice of Jiminy Cricket. And then later was uh, the best well-renowned the best probably I've ever heard of a, he was a Jack Benny imitator and oh. oh my gosh if you go to eddiecarroll.com the website is still up because his wife Carolyn still keeps it up there are clips both audio and video of him doing Jack Benny he did he a one man like show him. sounds like him I know his one man show is not up there no I'm saying that's what he did yeah, yeah. he did it for Spurred back in 2000 and later on for other conventions but if you go to Eddie, I think it's eddiecarroll.com, is it not, Walden? Uh-huh. Yep. It, it's terrific. You ought to go up and watch him. I was interested 
Interesting. And he passed away in 2009. Yeah. Or so. yeah, nine he had a death. tumor. But Eddie Carroll yeah. was a uh, really a wonderful... And he looked like Jack. Yeah. He looked like Jack. He could sound like Jack. And so he was approved by the family. So he wanted to put together a 90-minute stage show, one-man show. And my line club brought him down. We did a, a tribute. And he would hit all 30, 40 theaters around the country every year mm-hmm. with this one-man I, show. And then I interviewed him in 2009. And we first had him out to Spurred back in 2000. And it was amazing because his Jack, his natural voice wasn't that much different than Jack Benny's. He spoke a little faster. Um, he didn't have the pauses Jack had. But it was very close. And, and he loved Jack Benny and knew a ton about him, talked a lot about him and the people who surrounded him. And all those people, including, I believe it was Phil Harris, also Frank Nelson, when they first... When they first encountered him, they said, "What kind of crap is this? There's never going to be another Jack Benny." Uh, in fact, when I think Frank Nelson was doing a a spot in which Eddie Carroll was also involved, and he was not very favorable at first because he'd never heard him, never seen him. After he saw and heard him imitate Jack Benny, he said, "I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. He is the spitting image of Jack Benny. He sounds like him, and he's a nice guy." And they were friends for a long time. So that's no, a pretty did, high compliment did, coming from people who he, knew yeah. and worked with Jack. And he did Jiminy Cricket. When, uh, when did he do it? He did it once Ukulele Ike passed away in 1972. So he had oh. 72 until he passed. Oh, from 72. And, wow. And his agent was so excited when he got the gig. And Eddie said, oh, I'm glad I got, I got the gig. And he said, you don't understand. You realize this is going to be a lifetime job because with Disney, they generally have him do all the narration for all the things. So he had worked every month for Disney. And so that was steady income uh, for Eddie for till the years he passed away. Just Disney had him working always. You know. Yeah, I mean, he, wow. he was working to that year. Because, you know, I think once once the tumor was discovered and once he began to slow down a little bit, it was only a few months before he passed away. I think it was, uh, was it April of 2010? Yeah. yeah okay. And I interviewed him in September of 2009. And I think he had just found out that he was having some issues. Correct. Or shortly thereafter, within a month at least. And then it, he went downhill real quick, really, really quickly and passed away. And known by millions of radio people because he went to all the conventions and the hobby as well. And it was a very sad day when he passed. His memorial service, wow. his memorial service is interesting. Uh, Caroline had it in mind the last week or so of Eddie White, who she wanted to speak at his memorial service. And so she asked about 15 to 17 of us. Uh, and there was 600 people showed up. And, but it was mostly she wanted to be lively and happy. And so she had, you know, guys who were, you know, gift, you know, comedians and talk show hosts. And uh, she had a wide gamut, but it was such a, a celebration of a life of being upbeat. It, it was a, it's a great 90 minutes. We should play that sometime. It's, oh, we should. It's, 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 it's,
I've got it somewhere here. I don't know if I've copied it yeah. yet. Do you? I think I think my copy is probably with you, so it's probably in your box. Oh, you know? I should go look for it because I I've got it. I just have to find it and transfer it. Even Peter Marshall came and sang a few songs. You know, it was just one of those afternoons. Um, you know, I, I, Peter Marshall. No, when's the last time you guys talked to him? Oh, been a few years. Uh, he was at a Pacific Pioneer luncheon about three or four years ago that we was at. But I think the last time I talked to him to put him at a Kovac event was about nine years ago. But I don't know if the current, wow. uh, the current number I have for him in Palm Springs is any good. He, he, was, he lives in Palm Springs and up in L.A. half and half, so. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I worked with him. Um, I did a, I was doing mall shows, and he was doing a, a Hollywood Square thing mm-hmm. in malls. Um, yeah, and, and this is interesting. Speaking of voices, by the way, yeah. he um, he and I were. What happened was, I had I was doing three shows a day in the, my contract. And in this one mall, I forget where it was, but in this one mall, they were bringing him in. So I was only going to do two shows that, you know, one show that day was a Sunday, one show. And the other show, they wanted me to warm up the audience for Peter, for his thing. So I went out and I, I, I went out and, and, and uh, I'm sorry, I think he did two shows because we've spent time together. But anyway... Um, so I go out and I get the audience. I said, listen, I said, whenever you introduce these people, I said, they always want me to yell their voice. I'm not feeling that good today. I'm just going to say, here he is, and you yell Peter Marshall. Okay? <laughs> so that's what we did. I, I He was in the back hall, and I said, oh, here he is. Here he is. And then everybody went, Peter Marshall. You know, like and the place went crazy, and he loved it. He loved it. And after we were talking, and he told me a joke that was very funny that I can't say on the air. And then, and and he gave me, at the time, this is before cell phones, he gave me, I guess, his L.A. number, his uh, Beach House number, and some other number, and said, we should get together sometime when we get together. Well, about a year later, Paul Lynn died, and I knew they were pal, had been pals. So I called one of the numbers, just at a shot, and Peter answered the phone. And I said, hi, Peter? And he said, hi, Dave. And I said, I said, no, 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 this is, this is Dave. He said, yeah, Dave came from the mall, right? That's all I said was, hi, Peter, and he remembered me. <laughs> Is that unbelievable? Yeah. 
Send that to. I'll double check if he. What's that? Boysinger.com. Chuck Southcott? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, good grief. And, and uh, so anyway, that, that was my Peter Marshall story. I thought you might like that. that was That's a great cool. story. You know, yeah, yeah. He, he was a great guy. You know, another person you should have on, Dave, I think you'd enjoy it, is Frank Ferrante. I, oh. I was just going to ask you about him because I looked. I went over to the Eddie Carroll thing and I saw him just yeah. now and it reminded me. He does Groucho, right? Oh, he is fabulous. He's terrific. Yeah. And uh, he lives here. Yes. And oftentimes, not recently because we changed the dates, but he's always kind of done shows around the time we've done reps conventions up in Seattle. So he was always available. Mm -hmm. And we we brought him in two, what, at least three times, four times, maybe, whatever. Um, But he lives in LA and he is, if you see him on Facebook, um, he's got a tremendous following and he does funny, funny stuff up there too. And he's quite a historian of Groucho. Yes. And he started as a young man doing this. And uh, I saw him originally do his one-man show in Costa Mesa, and he said, what I mentioned, oh, man, I've gotten so much better since then. You know, he, he, even him, he could be a tough critic of his own work, that he figured the more he'd done it, the better he'd gotten to do mm-hmm. it. But uh, I think you would enjoy having him on, Dave, because he's a... Oh, yeah, I would love to have him on. Yeah. Uh, and especially, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, if you hear or have heard it, that you're, I don't think you're listening when I'm doing it, but my show, I end my show uh, with, Hello, oh, I must be going. I must be going. Yeah. Sure, yeah, I hear it every yeah, week. Yeah. That's the only oh, thing yeah, I listen to, yeah, but I hear sure. it every week. Yeah. <laughs> don't blame <laughs> you. Well, I always said the end of my show is always the best. <laughs> the best part, the end. <clears throat> yeah, and so... Um, yeah, I'd love to have him. Yeah, I'd love to have him. Actually, uh, that's what I'm going to call my book about my career. Hello, I must be going. <laughs> I like it. That's funny. Yeah, it, it's perfect. But, you know, and and so, and so this guy for Andy yeah, is good, huh? Oh, he's great. Yeah. We often sort of talk about, at least up in the U.S., it can we find more and more impressions, people who could do George Burns or do such and such. And also, not always defined, you know, people who are, can, A, have the looks, and B, pull off the vocal, you know, have the mm-hmm. timing to make that work. But, well, even that, if you just have the vocal, the, the, the look thing is okay for me, but you can do that. It's the vocal part. And I'm, I'm wondering about you, um, Larry and John, especially, and, and you, whether or not you can hear how crummy some of these impressionists really are. Absolutely. But people with sight. But people with sight don't, they're not as attuned to it. 
people with sight are more impressed with some of these guys that are really not that good. Yeah. No, I, I hear it often, unfortunately. Yep. The story of your friend Keith Scott and Bill Conrad's story. That's such a great story. Well, I'm trying to remember it. Um, Keith Scott is the, I, the rich little of Australia, basically. Yeah, he is. He he does more stuff, gets more gigs, and is dead on. And he he did a lot of cart. He wrote a lot of books about cartoon people. So he was often here in the United States, and he collects the old time radio shows. And whenever he was here. We always met, always chatted. We've got some just horrendously filthy uh, voiceovers. We we would just let our hair down and had fun. We could never play them for anybody, but we laughed. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was fun. Uh, but he um, he met Bill Conrad and and did Bill Conrad in front of Bill Conrad. Is that the story you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I was thinking about the time they wanted permission, so he called Bill Conrad. And he told Bill Conrad, I'm the real Bill Conrad. So the two, uh, Keith Scott and Bill Conrad, had a fight over the phone who was the real, the true Bill Conrad when they both were sounding exactly yeah. alike. Oh, he, I mean, he does so many people in America with, without, n- there's no Australian accent. But he does, you know, people, uh, I mean, anybody you can <clears throat> imagine, he does. And in many cases, we have him doing some, a celebrity voice impersonator after the person had died, and we use it on the show. And you can't tell the difference. Ah. Lots of fun. He's written many books, including books on um, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and um, who else am I leaving out? Bill Scott. Uh, There's more. I'll have to go back and Google and see. Terrific guy, lots of fun. Haven't seen him in a long time, but we had him here on the air about uh, two years ago and had a terrific time. I'm laughing, pounding on the walls, pounding on furniture, you know, trying to get away from the mic uh, so you don't hear me. Oh, God. Yeah. I had the chance of doing George Burns to George Burns, and I I declined it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, my God. It's, uh, it takes a lot. Yeah, for I, you, you know, what do you do when somebody says, hey, do your George Burns? And it's in front oh, of George no, Burns. No, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you, well, that's exactly what happened to me. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm not going to make a fool of myself. <laughs> oh, well, I think Joan Benny tells a story that she was at a dinner party that was Rich Riddle. And she was in the kitchen, and Rich Riddle did Jack Benny all night in the other room. And it was to her, it was really spooky. You know, to hear, to hear her dad. Yeah. Her dad, day. who was gone by that time. Yeah. yeah. But her dad and Rich Little knew each other very well. Right. And he told us that he had done Jack Benny in front of Jack Benny. And Jack Benny loved yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I yeah. can imagine if somebody does it good, but it's when they do it lousy and the the, the person has to go, oh, yeah, oh, yes, very good, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he wanted to get out of the building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been funnier. I, 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 yeah. It, it would have been funnier if... If the Jack Benny would have said, uh, now, you're close, but can we work on this part? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine what, what kind of visual facial expression that person would have gone through when Jack begins to work with him on his own impression? 
Always. I do this thing with my hand, you see, <laughs> like this. Uh, let me hear you say it. Let me hear you say it. Well, no, well, no, that's not it. That's geez. not it. Okay. Need a little more uh, vocal inflection, a little higher, uh, a little uh, more sustain. Try it again. Oh, oh, Dennis. <laughs> well, that's close, but can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little more sincerity, you know. <laughs> well, I even never, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, oh, everybody, I, I I used to do impressions in my uh, in my stand-up act uh, just for fun. But everybody I do is dead now. So, <laughs> and nobody knows who they are. It's yeah. like when I have. Were we talking about this the other night? I don't know when we had people on, and nobody they're not old enough to know who they are. You were talking about the comedian team, young, uh, Shane and Young, or whatever. No, no. Uh, no, they were singers. They were Sandler and Young. Okay. Sandler oh, sure. And Young. Yeah. Yeah. Larry was the only one I knew. Larry, yeah, and, the rest uh, of the audience are going, what is he talking Larry, about? Okay, Larry's so much older than John and I. That's why. Well, that's what it is. Now, that yeah, actually right. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and so, but that that's, you know, everybody I had is dead. And yeah. that's why they always they they say, okay, we're gonna go to we're taking you to heaven now, <laughs> you know, well, some I stupid think, premise. I think, like think Rich Woodall's still pretty much doing all dead folks in his in his act, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, probably so. I think that's yeah. probably the president. See, that can you know he. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. I I saw a piece of it online. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, have you seen the new? Have you seen, have you seen the? Uh, the Wayne Newton show now in Vegas. The new Wayne no, Newton show. no, I've heard about oh, it, but I've never seen really, it. Yeah, it's really something. It's I've mm. only seen pieces. Well, I've seen most of it, I think, because he put it up online. I don't know why. And he has a couple of big screen TVs, and he plays video of him with famous people. You know, when doing like Dean Martin on a Dean Martin show, and him and Perry Como, and and he sings along and watches it like like you've gone to his house you know and mm. he's showing you old family movies you know it's an interesting concept is it entertaining you know? to the audience they really seem to like it but I mean if you if you I mean think about it his audience if somebody has paid whatever they've paid to sit there they must be a Wayne Newton fan right Right, no. Nineteen fifty-nine in Las Vegas. I don't know how much downtime he wow. had since fifty-nine. So he probably had to come yeah, well, to yeah. wrinkles every so often, you know. Yeah, but this is not about that. This is about finding. This is he's in the nostalgia place mm. now, and he's you know. And then I wrote, or then I sang, and then I you know. Um, he doesn't have any. I mean, and he's not the uh, sexy. Wayne Newton that he was, of course. I mean, none of us are. And it's, it's. I mean, it's okay. He looks like he's having a good time. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's a little sad to watch. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be putting them down. I don't mean to sound like that. <laughs> Just the, the reality of it, you know. Yeah, maybe I'll have to go up on YouTube and uh, find something. Registry? I mean, I'm thinking of him and Donkey Kong. Oh, no. no oh, no, no, no. He, 
he, God he forgive took, me, his voice is gone. It's yeah. gone. Completely gone. He sounds like somebody with laryngitis. I haven't heard yeah, him recently, he, but I, I know oh, he it's took... horrible. God bless yeah. him. Yeah. Well, so like Harry Belafonte. I mean, if you listen to Harry Belafonte sing, he still can pretty much get that. But when yeah. he talks, it, it's yeah. like his voice is not there. Yeah, but Belafonte, in my opinion, wasn't really a singer anyway. I mean, he was a... He was a storyteller, kind of. I mean, he didn't have a great voice. He never had a great voice. He talked Wayne his Newton lyrics. had a great voice. Yeah, yeah he, he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Wayne Newton had a great voice and gone. I mean, he just, it's driven into the ground. God bless him. You know, I, I, and, and he, I mean, he's trying to sing. He's still trying to sing. He's doing, Daddy, Don't You Walk So Fast. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to sing it like he's got a voice. It's like he's, ignoring, I mean, he's not even, you know what I'm trying to say, Larry? He's not, yeah. He's yeah. not uh, coaching it, or he's not trying to fudge it. You know, he's not trying to pretend that, you know, or, you know, I don't know. He's not trying to acknowledge that he really doesn't have it anymore. House I Neil, House, I, I haven't listened in a while. House Neil Diamond and Barry Manilow, are they, are they still able to carry a tune? Well, Manilow's got it. Yeah, I think he's all right. I oh, yeah. Diamond, yeah. Hey, okay. Has, has yeah, he, I mean, he's he was at one time an incredible act. People loved him, yeah. and he had so much energy and was so dynamic. I haven't heard him recently, but the last couple of times, a few years ago, he was still very entertaining, and was still playing uh, the big the big places. So I assume he still is. You know who's you know who's got a good voice still is uh, Pat Boone. Yes, I worked. I worked with him uh, back a couple of years, and he went out there and right on the money. Yeah, great voice. He's eighty-one now, and uh, yeah, he was was a great guest when we had him on the show. Bill and I about seventeen years ago, and uh, he's so busy. Oh, it's only only fifty-three then. He should have been, (laughs) (laughs) or sixty-three, whatever. But you know, but his his storytelling ability was just. Jack Jones always had a good voice, too. Um, I mean, I haven't seen Jack sing in a while, but I always thought he, was, mm-hmm. he always had it together. Yeah. I'm sorry, who'd you say? Jack who'd you Jones. say? Who? Jack Jones. Oh, Jack, yeah, well, yeah, but Jack Jones is a singer. Yeah. I mean, we knew he was a singer. That boy was a singer, you know. Balafonte, in my opinion, was never a singer. You know who had a good voice was Alan, um, Alan, um, Oh God, Sarah Jackman, Sarah. Jackman. Alice, Alan Sherman. Alan, Alan Sherman. Sherman. Yeah, yeah, nice little voice. You know, he was a writer. He wrote for radio and stuff prior to that. Yeah, yeah. I, oh yeah. I didn't know he that produced, at first. He produced. He produced. What's my line? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody yeah. thinks of him from the '60s writing these hilariously funny bits. And he, they were, they were great. They were funny, but my gosh, the careers he had even prior to that. Well, and, and, it, and it was funny because it happened to him like a 2,000-year-old man happened to... Uh, Carl Reiner. Yeah, and Carl, Carl Reiner. Reiner. I mean, yeah. he, he, did it, he did it at a party. And oh. everybody went, oh, you've got to put this on, you know, on record. I got terrific. those records somewhere in the garage. Yeah. My son, my son, the nut, my son, the celebrity, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I shoot. I can't remember them all now. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what's funny? That one. I didn't. That one's the one that made him famous initially. But I like. um, um, You gotta have skin. Yeah, lots and lots and lots of skin. Keep your outsides out, your insides in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's so clever. Your nose and it wraps around your toes. You know, it's <laughs> just really great stuff. You know, much better than, uh, you know, the Sarah Jarkman thing or the camp, whatever. I mean, it was cute, but he had so much better stuff. Yeah. Um, and one of them I like, and I, I considered using it in my new show, I'm doing a new show called um, Jokes My Irish Father Told Me. And I'm just going to do jokes all night, just old, just old and Irish jokes. And uh, and one of the things I thought maybe I would do the Alan Sherman thing about she wheels her wheelbarrows, the oh. streets that are narrow. Her barrow is narrow, her hips are too wide. So whenever she wheels it, the neighborhood feels it. Her girl keeps scraping the homes on each side. That that paints its wonderful pictures. I remember that song. Yeah, yeah. So clever. Really clever. Oh. And then you see these people. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking, you don't see comedy records or things come out like they used to. That that whole genre sort of disappeared in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess everybody's what you know. They got so much TV time or whatever, or video stuff. They they saw on that format. Well, you know, it, it, the whole world has changed in, in so many ways. I mean, well before I did, of course. But I mean, like you had people who were in vaudeville, and they have an act, and they did that act for forty years because they went town to town to town. When television hit, radio hit, and then television hit. All of a sudden, you needed writers. You needed to replace this stuff. So, the, the uh, albums and stuff is, is another example of that, I think, where people don't want to use the material because once they do it on an album, then you, you, that's it, it's gone. Never use it again. Frank Rasheed, for a while, I don't know how long the station lasted. He and a couple guys bought a radio station, and all that's all they did. They play comedy records 24 hours a day. Comedy yeah, radio, yeah, eight, they, yeah. yeah. I don't think it lasts any more than two or three years. No, but at least it's yeah, no, no. It's a it's a cute idea, and 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 a lot of people I think liked it. Um, and it was, it was done in other parts of the country too, by the way. Um, but you know, it's like a, a commercial. I used to write a lot of commercials. And the trouble with the funny commercial is after you've seen it, that's it. And you buy these things in there, they have 400 runs. And you get you get irritated because you're, you're going to see it again. Uh, I did a whole series of commercials for uh, some supermarkets, and they were allegedly funny. But I did like five versions of the same commercial each time so that when they ran, it wouldn't get worn out. The joke wouldn't get worn out, whatever it was. A lot of work. Was it TV or audio? 
Uh, both. I mean, TV and radio. Yeah, yeah. We did the TV stuff and uh, as TV stuff, and then we lifted the audio to make the radio commercials. So it was both. Yeah. You want to hear a funny thing? Want to hear a funny story? Sure. Uh, I was doing. I was. I was doing these Almax commercials in Rhode Island, and I was everywhere. I mean, we were on every radio, every TV station, the radio station. They had me on there. They, they send out the the flyers for the sales. I was on the flyers with the woman who played my wife. Uh, they had giant cutouts of Carol and me on, on, on in in the store, going to purchase in the store. I was everywhere. I couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. And one of the things I used to like to do when I had a, I had a beach house down in Narragansett, and one of the things I used to like to do was to sneak off and we had a nude beach down in Narragansett. And I used to like to sneak off because nobody would bother me to go down there. You know? And one day, I um, get there, and I take my things off, and I go in the water. And I'm in the water about up to my knees. And these two young girls come running in, these very, you know, gorgeous young girls, naked, running into the water. And one of them turns and looks at me and says, you know, you look just like the guy on the Almax commercial. <laughs> and I said, I said, Almax, what's that? <laughs> and she said, oh, that's a, that's a supermarket here. And we really like, I said, oh, so I said, no, I'm, I'm from New York. I said, I'm just visiting. I'm from New York. And I quietly turned around and grabbed my blanket and ran like a thief. Only <laughs> one oh, maybe it wasn't that funny. That story reminds me of um, a story I think it was Casey Kate Kasim told that uh, Jimmy Buffett wanted to get away for a while, and so he had a yacht. And so he took a couple buddies, and they went on the yacht in some ocean, and they bumped into a, another people, and so they invite them over to the yacht, and they didn't recognize who Jimmy was, but in the background, and the music, it was all Jimmy Buffett music, he couldn't get away from it, you know, so, it happens. Oh, there's something, they didn't, yeah, but I thought you were going to say, and they started saying how much they hated that kind of, that music. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going. You know, yeah. And these people thought they probably, I hate that. Can we change that channel? Boy, that's really stuck. Guys, wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't that be funny? That'd be better than uh, Jack Benny telling you how to do his thing. Yeah. What was the toy that you, you, you guys, you, you got me Tom Gleason, Gleason, Gleason on the website? Dreeson. What was it? Tom Dreeson. Dreeson. With a D, Dreeson. Yeah. About two months ago. And the last story I asked yeah. for was a Frank Sinatra story. And he told me the yeah. time when he and Sinatra were picked out in Palm Springs and they were closing a bar. And the, oh, yeah. the yeah. owner gave Sinatra the key. He said, you can just lock it up when you want to go home. And so it was 2 or 3 in the morning and they saw this lady drive up and she was running in and she was looking for a place for a jukebox. And said, I want a jukebox. I want to play some music. And Sinatra turned over and said, well, I'll be happy to sing you a song. He said, no, I, I, I'm looking for a jukebox. So she left. And then... <laughs> and there's Tom saying, who else would have gotten a chance to have Sinatra sing them a song for free? 
Imagine. A lot of different stuff that happens. I'll tell you, it's really funny. Um, and are you, uh, did John fall asleep? Did we lose John? I don't know where he is. John, what are you doing back there? Oh, good night. I don't hear him. <laughs> I, I don't even hear. Yeah, I know. You don't even hear that. Yeah. No, I don't hear nothing. I don't even know if his mic's up. Did yeah. he go out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Uh, yes, he did. Wow. Wow. That's true. I don't even know if his mic's up. Do you guys, do you guys um, watch what you eat at all? Or, I mean, oh yeah. You said you don't do you don't do the dessert, but do you? I I don't do it often. I, I, well, I'm, I'm pretty careful. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Watch, watch yourself, I guess. Yeah. Walden, of course, watches what he eats by watching what he eats. Yeah. And then and then watches some more. And yeah. then watches, yeah. watches some more. more. What did you have for dinner tonight, Walden? Uh, taking all, all my mom's girlfriends are bringing over food. It was, right. It was uh, South America. Oh. So the the lineup is next week. More people, and so Dad will cook spaghetti tomorrow. So we'll have spaghetti. How, that's cool. Yeah. Glad to hear you're not you know you're not diving down to the realms of TV dinners yet. And and uh, and what happened to your mom? What did she have done? Okay, yep, yep, and yep, yep. So, so they told her she can't bend or do anything for six weeks. So, uh, and she can't sneeze. <laughs> I guess not. So, Definitely don't sneeze. So I'm in charge of cleaning, I'm in charge of uh, cleaning all the bathrooms and the bathtubs and the showers and do the floors this week, the next six weeks. So I'll be, I'll be cleaning all that stuff. So that will be my contribution. Before I put everything else in. Uh-huh. So, we'll manage. We'll manage. I have posted on Facebook. We'll see if three, if this, if Mom will be able to survive the three of us managing the room, the house, with with her supervision. Well, that's, that's good. I mean, it's nice that you may be able to chip in and help out like that. You know. <laughs> oh. Although I don't know if I clean. I'm not sure I'd let you clean. Well. I think I'd have to feed the dog or something. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. that was a big deal um, for my mom. She uh, she really wanted me to think about going to living school. Uh, and going to what? Living school, living, you know, skill living, you know, for blind people who. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. I knew okay. she was going to help out, so I went straight into college. And I have friends who did that. And I guess some of the facilities were so loosey-goosey, they, they never picked up or told these blind people to pick up. They would, I had a friend who stepped on broken glasses in, kitchen, in kitchens to these places and would be infected for three months. So I, I don't know how oh, yeah, I know. it really yeah. was. Um, yeah. Did you, did you go, Larry? Did you go off to school? Yeah. I went between, between, I think between college, junior college and uh, the four-year college, yeah. And it was up 
near San Francisco in Albany, California. And, and I thought it was great for me. It was terrific. Yeah, um, I guess Jeff, my friend Jeff, who went through, I guess the whole staff was on drugs. Oh, my. Yeah, it was a, it, it was well, a, a lot of it depends on where you go, obviously. It was a mess, I guess, to where he went for a whole year. Mm. So. I, I went for six months. And um, and and then flew down for barbershop shows that we had to do and things like that on the weekends. But but I had a, I had a great time. Met a lot of nice people, and uh, it did me a lot of good. Helped me learn how to cook and things like that, and do all the stuff. Some of the stuff which I had already been doing, but still, there's different ways to do things when you're blind, which make more sense and make and it's easier to do. So I learned a lot, and I uh, enjoyed going. I had no problems with it at all. How do you know, how do you know when something? Well, then you 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 wash the tub as an example. Yeah. How do you know that it you've gotten it clean? I I, I would have because to, you know. I would have it. I would I I would scrub it completely, you know, backwards and forwards to make sure I was happy with before I would have somebody go look at it. Uh, uh, so that's how I personally do the tub the tubs and I do the showers. Uh, yeah, you know, obviously, just somebody check it to make sure that yeah, you got the everything. Only, the, only thing, the only thing that's going to be probably tough is actually doing the toilets. Because my mom yeah. has to do really yeah. heavy chemicals in there. And, uh, yeah. So that, that'd, be, that'd probably be, be the one I'll yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I have, an, I have an Italian wife. You can, you, you can make jello in our toilet. <laughs> That is a disgusting picture, by the way, and I don't have to know what it looks like to know what it is. And uh, and uh, no, but I, I mean, I I don't think I would pass her inspection. That's why I'm asking, because I can see fine. But I don't think I would pass her inspection if she said to me, "Go clean the job." I know that she would say, "Well, you did all right, but you know, you, you missed here and you missed there and." Is that, is, is that the yeah. old line, you know, uh, I cleaned that toilet so clean I could see Jello in it? <laughs> so this is this is actually make Jello in it. I said <laughs> very specific. <laughs> yeah, so that's another thing. Cleaning up. Are you guys? Do you have a a neat house? Do you know, Larry? <laughs> yeah. You don't know. Uh, well, yeah, I clean, but. I also have, we also pay uh, a service to come in every couple of weeks. Because, oh, yeah. but I have sighted people come in often, friends and things like that. And I ask, and, and they're really mostly, mostly very good about telling me if, if maybe I've dropped a piece of paper on the floor and don't know it, they'll say, oh, hang on, there's a piece of paper here. Yeah. But, but yeah. they're always yeah. good about that. They're always good about if I've, especially my family, <sighs> if I've made a mess, uh, for instance, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, for instance, I've washed something. And there's still detergent or soap or something on it, and it looks yeah, like yeah. that. They'll say, "Wait a minute, you can't wear that." Uh, and yeah. that's cool too. But you know, we try and make sure things are cleaned, and especially in the kitchen. But it's always good. We have people coming in every couple of weeks purposely, and I'll tell them, "Just let me know if you see something that we've missed." And they're really how good. About, how about how about clothes? Do you have like granimals or something? Or you can't have the you can't have granimals. Um, how do you know what to wear, what goes with what? Uh, there are a lot of ways to do it. I mean, you can use clothes tags, you know, and, and read the Braille on the tags. 
and okay, somebody yeah, in that case yeah. somebody has to help affix them to the for, yeah the, they, they got to tag them first yeah, yeah. right yeah, yeah 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 and for my socks I have little yeah. sock locks that you can buy and I I put the socks both you know a pair in the same sock lock so I know, I know yeah. it's the same pair yeah it, yeah you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would like to get. I'm going to get some of those because I keep losing socks. Do you? They just disappear. They just, uh, yeah, they I don't lose many. Rarely do yeah. I lose a sock. Sometimes it's yeah. it's. I'll, all of a sudden, whoops! There's a hole in it, and I'll toss it uh, if it's really bad. But then I got one sock. I hate having just one sock from a pair. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping it will get ripped soon, so I can throw it away. I wonder where the hell they go. I mean, there must be a sock heaven somewhere. There, I, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah, they, they, all of a sudden they just disappear. They don't have these anymore, but 50 years ago, I would swear they went to a sock hop. Oh. Huh. That was very good. That was really good. Thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. That I'll be here for good. most of the week. Well, yeah, don't forget the tip of your waitress. I know. <laughs> you know, I um, it's late enough now I can reference this, but um, I was um, Walden was asking me about my stand-up days, and I want to tell you a story that I think you'll like. Um, when we when we first started doing stand-up. Oh, I did. Uh, there were these clubs that I told you that would have open mic nights and people could go and they could try out. And we had one uh, in a place called Periwinkles. And we all went on a Wednesday night and, you know, everybody would come to see the open micers and stuff like that. And the other thing that would happen, it's funny because talking about looking at people, remember we talked about mm-hmm. drawing impressions? Mm-hmm. As people came into the club, uh, we would we would call them, like I'd say, Okay, I got the, I got the fat blonde broad. I got her. I got her. Like you know, don't don't pick on her. I'm gonna go get her. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do her first. You know what I mean? Or I'm gonna you know, you know the guy with the cigar. See, the guy's like, oh, I'm gonna let me go. So they everybody would pick everybody stuff like that. Well, anyway, one night I come in, and Charlie, my friend Charlie Hall says, I look at all of the comedians, these young amateurs. They're all. They look like they're at a wake. I can't understand why they're all upset. And I said, what's going on? And Charlie said, the ownership, this guy Mike, the owner has decided that they're not going to allow the F word anymore in the club. Now, in the 80s, when this was a big deal thing, first came out stand-up, that was like half some of these guys' acts. You know, like they would they wouldn't have anything to say if that was taken out. So they were all panicked. I mean, they were amateurs. They were all panicked. And but it was a ridiculous rule. First of all, it was really stupid. I don't know what he got. So I said to Charlie, "Well, let me go up first <laughs> And he said, "No, no, no, no. You got on. He's serious. He's serious. If anybody does that, they're gone. They won't work." I said, "Let me go first Dave, I said, Charlie, let me go first. So I get up and I welcome everybody. I say, and I announce that the new the owner of the club is here. We're going to give a big round of applause to Mike. I said, I want you to know he has a new rule here now that none of the comedians can use the F word. 
and the whole audience went, what? <laughs> I said, no, I'm sorry. And then they were like, what? I said, I'm sorry. Can't. I said, but just to be clear, we can't do it. But they didn't say, you can't do it. So when I throw my arm up, would you throw that in for me, please? <laughs> and and so I and I did stuff in my act I never did. I mean, I never even used to use it in my act almost ever. So, but I just to, to make the point, I started throwing my hand up, and the, the entire audience was screaming it. And that lasted about fifteen minutes. And I got a note that came up and said the no F word rule has been rescinded. <laughs> and uh, so years later, when the club was going to close, maybe 15 years later, I was telling the story on stage because some of the comedians thought that was a great moment. And in the other room at the bar was a neon sign that was over the bar that said time to... There you go. So the world had changed in 15 years. Imagine that. It has. Or not. So, it has. Huh? It has. It has a great deal. Oh, yeah. I was just saying, yeah, yeah, wasn't, wasn't it Richard Pryor the first one to really were doing that kind of material in the early 80s? Like maybe, maybe there were some others that were really using the F word and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pryor did a lot of did a lot of racial stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, the N word was big, and, and and that was a big deal thing in those days. I I didn't need that. I never used that. Mm-hmm. I not. I mean, I wasn't offended by it. I just didn't think it was that funny. You know. But I got to tell you, there have been times I, I I could make an argument that not having that word in a particular joke makes the joke less funny. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like you don't really need to use that material. I, I am, I'm in favor of not using it because I don't think it, I don't think it's so what do you think, worth it. But what do you there think, are some jokes. That, what do you think uh, the biggest mistake that amateur comedians do when you saw an open mic night? Were there a couple profiles that you saw? Well, well, they don't. They don't have any material. They don't have it. They haven't done anything. They don't have any material. Number one. Um, you know, the, the language is, I mean, people will accept that. But you know what happens is you've got somebody and and you're going to get up and you think you're funny because you do a really good Uncle Fred. <laughs> and they think they can come in and do Uncle Fred on stage and everybody's going to fall down. The problem is nobody knows who the hell Uncle Fred is. Yep. And, and so that's really a problem. And that's when they start to panic because, you know, their, their relatives are all screaming at him, you're going to be great. And then he gets up there and they're staring at you like you're an oil painting. I, I Very think, tough. I think Rich Rowe told us a story, a story that time when he was, um, he was from Canada. And the time he did his first show in New York, his teachers all came down. And he said, I think all my teachers were dis- disappointed because I didn't use any impersonations of them in my act. You know, I think he he knew that when he went to New York, oh, yeah, yeah. he had a 
he had a, had a bigger landscape to play with rather than yeah. strictly yeah. the venues that he was growing up with. You know, there's a lot of stories about people, and, and, and starting out in comedy is very tough. I remember one night, I waited to go on and waited to go on and waited to go on, you know, right in the beginning. And when the, by the time I get out there, there was one couple in the audience. One couple. And I went out there, and I was doing my stuff. I was saying, and about quarter of the way through my act they got up and they left <laughs> and so here I am doing this act to now nobody I'm just I went right ahead did the whole thing and then later on about about an hour later I went home I was very young I went home and my I went upstairs and my to my parents room and I went in walked in and they said hi, and I said, "Why did you leave?" <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Oh, dear. Wait one. I'm sorry. Wait one. <laughs> well, listen, honey, if, if you're done with me, I'm gonna go. All righty, Dave. You, you did, you did good for are two you, and half. You, you did. You did good for two and a half hours. Listen, I bored more people tonight than you have had bored in a long time. No, really, I I I I get bored even hearing myself. We do. I had a good time. I had a good time. Did you? Okay, good. And Larry have a good time. I don't remember Larry had any fun. Larry went to bed. He probably went to bed too. No good. Nobody ever says good night anymore. You know what I mean? They just go to bed. They don't bother. You know, they don't yawn. They say, oh. um, This has been fun, though. Right, Thanks yeah. for letting me do this, Walden. I had a good time. I had a great time. Thanks for fun. All right. Time. We'll talk again. You bet. Take care, Dave. All right. All right. God bless you. Good night. Good night. It is 10 after 10 here on the West Coast, Saturday night. It's oh, shoot. My board, my board just died. You didn't hear me the last couple of minutes, no, did you? Not a, not a, not I didn't know it. Yeah. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, I don't know what the, what's going on. I don't know if that's a safety valve if it gets too warm. Could be. Did you add stuff to it? Uh -huh. I added the interview that I did with the, Tom, the American Songbook Foundation. Yeah, What's it, what I added doesn't matter. It was just September 16, 1946, so you can play all of it or none of it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll play some of it, maybe. Well, if not, we'll play some of it tomorrow. You know. Well, that's true. What happened? All of a sudden, uh, hang on. All of a sudden, my computer started making noise. Wow. <clears throat> it said end call button. Why it said that, I don't know. That's a Skype thing, I think. Yeah, it was Skype. I, won't, I don't know if Skype was bored. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, so we'll... Uh,
Well, John's still on. I can hear me echoing. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Hello, you're on with Larry and I. Yeah, Walden, Ray Mitchell out of Chicago. Ray, how are you doing? Real good, Walden. I tell you, I really enjoyed that interview with Dave. You enjoyed Dave? That's good. That will make Dave happy. We'll have to... That was one of his shorter interviews, that three and a half hours. <laughs> Now, just just so I'm I'm aware. Now that wasn't a tape from some earlier, was it? That was oh no, live. That, that that was live. That was live. Wow, because I I tell you, the guy was really just tremendously interesting. I really enjoyed that. Dave has a wide range of of life experiences, from you know, stand up comic to radio to management well, to everything he's done. It, it was really fascinating. I agree. Uh, uh, Walden, I also wanted to ask you, I'm sure you might have mentioned something. Dave was uh, uh, mentioned uh, Patricia's name at one point uh, when you were, you may not even have heard it, uh, you were trying to connect uh, John and Larry, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any event, uh, have you heard any, uh, yep. anything two, more? I got two emails from Patricia this week. Uh, so here's the update with Patricia. I think many of us know she lives in Fort Myers, Florida, which is uh, the storm. The Irish storm is 20 miles south of her. She lives. She lives in part of Fort Myers, Florida, the part that's left. Yes. <laughs> and so she thought she was going to be okay because she was in the higher part of Fort Myers, and next door was the hospital. And so, you know, the place where she's been at to work on her muscles and everything has three floors. And about a month ago, they had flooding in the unit. And so they moved her and a bunch of people up to the second and third floor. Her shoes got wet and they had a foot of water. So they finally repaired the first floor. And so she was on with this uh, last Saturday night for an hour. And she sent me some emails Sunday morning, but basically the storm uh, dumped over two, at least two feet of water throughout the first floor, uh, knocked out a tree right in front of her window, wow. and just knocked out power, everything out of the facility. And so they moved her and the group Wednesday. Wednesday because the staff and people were complaining about all the heat and there was no air conditioning. And Patricia is pretty used to running without air conditioning, so it didn't bother her. But they decided to move her to a different place. So she sent out two emails this week. And so she's not too sure when they're going to get phone service back in that part of Florida. And I saw uh, today there's still a million people without electricity in Florida. Oh, yeah. In Florida, overall Florida, yeah. yeah I mean, they they gone from seven million down to a million, which is actually pretty terrific. That's amazing. That's pretty good. But has she yeah. has she talked about her apartment? How it fared? No, but her apartment's on the second floor, so it should be okay. Right, but the building, yeah, the building itself. She haven't mentioned that part. Um, and you know, her plan is to move completely by end of November anyway. But uh, but so. We know she's safe. We know she's not in a position that she can, uh, she has, you know, Wi-Fi or telephone facilities. So we're hoping 
a week by week a week tonight or probably in two weeks she'll be back and running again before we'll have her on the show but uh at least he's safe that that's what counts so well, thank god for that i have uh two or three friends who have uh homes down there and one of them planned on going before the announcement of the storm so he put it off but he'll be heading there probably in the next couple of days and i we we debate whether that's a good idea anyway he'll be coming out of wisconsin but um my other friend who's there has a place on um, pine island uh, which is um, you know maybe a in the same general area, and uh, he also has a place right in Fort Myers. Mm. Um, he's a fisherman, and his wife is more of a golfer, so they have two places. I guess it's nice to have uh, a few extra bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, his report as of um, a couple of days ago that um, his Pine Island place got a lot of water, and his place on Fort Myers uh, Heritage Palm, I guess that's what it's called, uh, half of the community had electricity. The other half did not. Wow. So um, he, uh, he is still up in the air as to uh, what's going on out there. So I was anxious to, to hear about uh, Patricia. Yeah, so my, my Uncle Jim lives in Tampa. And so he and his wife and sister-in-law and the, and the pets Sunday morning decided to leave Tampa. Try to, uh, they drove 11 hours to Alabama. They were supposed to, they could find a hotel that would allow pets. And they rode out the storm went and then drove back. And they said Tampa was in pretty good shape. You know, there was a lot of hubba hubba that was not going to be in good shape. But it wound up being pretty decent shape. So when they got back, they ran a generator for another 10 hours until they got utilities. So I think in a lot of cases, the, the storm wasn't as bad as it was going to be. Um, you know, it sounds like the Keys got the bulk of it, really. Um, yeah. And I have a first cousin whose daughter works down there, and she hasn't heard anything yet. Mm. Uh, now, when I say she hasn't heard anything yet, this was as of last uh, Tuesday. Yeah. So I'm sure she's heard from her daughter by then. You know. Yeah. It tells you how much we're, we're dependent on power. And, yeah. you know, Patricia reminds me about what was Andrew, I think when Andrew hit and. 2005, she was out without power for five days down there in Fort Myers. So, you know, you got to be prepared in those parts of the environment to be without yeah. power. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I've always enjoyed Florida, but I've been spending the last seven, eight, nine years going to Arizona. Ah. And uh, so, um, it's I don't know if Florida looks too inviting <laughs> to me these days. Well, it seems like a lot of people from the Midwest, especially from Iowa, and I know you're Wisconsin, Illinois, they seem always come out to Arizona. It seems like that seems to be the way the snowbirds will come out. 
makes it to a shorter drive, drive resistance. I, I don't know why, but it, it definitely, you know, for Yeah, well, it, it's, you know, some of my friend, friends fly down there and uh, others uh, drive. Mm-hmm. Um, in Arizona, it would be really hard to drive to. You know, it, it's probably more of a three-day trip as opposed to two and maybe four, you know, the way I drive these days. But I did, oh, just as an aside, uh, Walden, I drove up to, um, I don't know if I ever told anybody, but uh, um, about, uh, let's see, three weeks ago, I went to a family reunion up in Montana on our, um, uh, our, uh, my father's Indian reservation. And that was a pretty exciting event to meet uh, dozens of uh, family members that I haven't met, ever met, you know. So, And that was a 16-hour drive. I did it in two shots, though. And, um, you know, nice driving all the way. So how many days was the reunion? Was it a two- or three-day deal, or how big was well, we, we went Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then I stayed over to get my, uh, on Monday, to get my um, my uh, uh, identity card, um, my Indian identity card, you know. Um, and, you know, that's good to use at different museums and places, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know... Uh, so I got that renewed. I got a brand new one, and uh, you know, <clears throat> it comes in handy from time to time. Are there many reservations in the Illinois, Wisconsin area, Ray? Do well, you know? actually, uh, Illinois doesn't have any, but uh, Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, has a few, and uh, down around the Milwaukee area there, because of the casinos. Yep. They, they have reservations. Ours is so far out in the boonies in Montana, we really don't have any. There are small casinos, but nothing uh, like resort area and whatever. Um, there are some beautiful ones out in, uh, well, I know of one for sure that I really enjoy when I go to Arizona. They call, it's called, uh, I always get it mixed up to Walking Stick. Yeah, I think it's Walking Stick. Um, and it's, uh, they've got two beautiful golf courses out there. I love to play and, uh, they recognize native Americans, uh, in terms of, um, uh, fees, you know, so you get a better fee if, um, you're registered, uh, native American. Now picture this Walden. Yeah. I, I grew up as uh, an Italian American. Right. My mother's Italian. My father was Native American. And here, there's this big conflict about Columbus Day. <laughs> so here I'm in the middle, you know. <laughs> but um, it's not a big issue for me. I just think instead of calling it uh, Indigenous People's Day uh, instead of Columbus Day, they should just choose another day. You know, sometimes... All this political razzle-dazzle is nothing more than political razzle-dazzle. I was looking on an online calendar a couple of weeks ago, and how many Native American days nationally or locally 
like a, like a local holiday. There were throughout the country, and I was really surprised to see that, you know, different areas of the country had something like that. So, yeah, well, I you know this whole political mess and uh, what uh, what do they call it? Uh, politically correct. That's just so much bugaboo that the uh, politicians, I think, uh, and, well, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired of all that. I do my, most of my listening of, uh, uh, in terms of entertainment, I, I listen to uh, talking books, right. uh, audio books, I guess they call them, and um, um, audio books and... Um, and you know, selected TV, computer programs. You know, I, 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 I just, I almost really can't watch television. You know, unless it's a movie or you know something other than nonsense. You well, know. you know, if you look at what TV, it drives TV anymore. It, or sports, live sports events is what gets the numbers for them. I mean, that's. Yeah, now, see, I'm a golfer. I enjoy, I, I have the golf channel. Yeah. So I'm watching that. Of course, the Cubs and the Bears, you know, I mean, uh, I even enjoy watching tennis. I, I basically love sports, so I'll watch anything, whether uh, it's my teams or not, you know. And that's what gets the ratings in television, you know. And that's, that, you know, a lot of things don't anymore. But you look at the top 20 uh, events, Throughout the TV year, most of them are sports related. That gets the numbers for them. Yeah, you see that? I didn't know that, mm -hmm. but now that you say it, it makes sense to me, you know. Well, that's probably why they spend so much money, you know, on television rights, because, you know, it drives the bus. Mm. Well, Walden, again, uh, your interview tonight, all you guys did just a tremendous job. I, I can't tell you, I couldn't get enough of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, you know, you said it was two and a half hours. I could have taken another two and a half. Oh, yeah. But, uh, well, you know, when you, when you hear someone like him talking, you know, uh, it just it's so enjoyable. I can't even tell you. It's well, that's why I listen to you guys all the time. Thank you, Ray. All right. You have a nice you night. You Take care. Okay. Bye-bye now. Good night. Ray from Chicago. Am I still on? Yep. You're still on. Okay. My bo I think my board shuts down when it gets warm. Not too bad. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Five four five two zero seven one is our number. I'd like to give Larry and I a call. We're definitely here. Yeah, I might leave pretty soon. I haven't. I got a haircut today, and I have need to take a shower and get that hair out. Oh, that's always drives me nuts. I always yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah. And I'll go turn John's computer down. Maybe I'll turn it up. So have the Angels won, lost? What do we know? They won two to nothing. Britwell did very well. Okay, and the Minnesota Upton hit two home runs. And Minnesota lost. One down, fourteen to go. Yep. I, I had a hunch if, if it works right, the Angels would be dead even with thirteen to go. Could be. It take could it. be. We'll take it. We'll yep. take it. I I'm very happy how the season turned out, considering how many injuries this team had all year. I, mm -hmm. I think it's been a good season for them. Really. It's amazing. Tomorrow we'll have a really good show. We'll have Perry with us at the top of the show doing our Bing Crosby. Uh, salute to the big band. That will be fun. And then we're going to have George Green on with us. 
longtime executive over at KABC Radio, and, and Joy doesn't pull, doesn't hide anything. He he just tells you the way he feels, and so it'll be fun to talk about the history of KBC and talk radio in general with George tomorrow night. So, and then we'll probably record Michael Beal sometime during the day because he's in Germany. So we'll record that and play that back after everything else is done tomorrow night. So that is the lineup for tomorrow. Cool. So you want to go take your shower? And I'll get to yeah, I think I will, and you can grab something okay. and play it. All right. We'll run the interview first, and then I will, uh, then I will talk to you sometime tomorrow, right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Okay, good night. Ah, well, I'll wait and see okay, who it is. Wait, who is this? No, you're on with Larry. Yeah, hey, hey, Wolven, it's Ralph. How you doing? Hi, Ralph. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Good, good. Heard you up. I heard your little update on, on Patricia. Sounds like she had. We can barely hear Ralph. Okay, I'll turn him up. Go ahead, Ralph. I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm, I'm turning you up. I had you down, so go ahead. Yeah. I'm on a cell phone. I, maybe I haven't got a good connection. No, you do. I just had to turn you up. No, that's okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was listening to your interview that you had. That was really good. Good. So there's two people that Dave can, that, that that's hunting with with Dave and I. That's good. And and I I heard you talking about Patricia. Sounds like she had a pretty rough time. Yeah. Well, you know they thought about moving her out, and then the places they thought about moving her to before the storm were going to be right in the storm. So they decided to ride it out and. So, but, you know, she said she got a bunch of grumpy people around there, but she, you know, Patricia keeping her calm, cool, collective uh, self about it. So, I'm glad about well, that. That's really good to hear. Yeah. So, how are you feeling, Ralph? Everything okay with you? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting over my auto accident, you know, slowly but surely. So, have you had any surgery, or what? What's been the after effect of the ac- of the accident, Ralph? Well, I I, I have a um, what they call a compression fracture. Okay. In my lower spine, Ooh. and it's um, it, it's something they 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 just let it get better. They don't usually do anything about it, from what I understand. But I, I had a um, lot of trouble sleeping couple of months I had a tough time I'm doing better now so would you sleep in a lazy boy chair or anything like that or how, how would you yeah do? okay uh, uh, for a while I had to stay in the chair all the time mm. uh, but now I can sleep in bed maybe half a night and then I go to the chair I just got up out of bed and came in the chair that's sure what dad did, dad, dad did with me you know he was having some of the same issues like you so he's spending half and half, some half in the chair and half in bed, kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's all right once you get used to it. Did Tony did Tony get banged up any in, in the accident? Oh yeah, she got her head split open. She had, uh, but they put staples in the back of her head. She had a pretty good gash. Jeez. Our our truck was. Uh, uh, a little older, it had an airbag on the driver's side, but no airbag on the passenger's side. So did the airbag come out? Mine did, yeah. Okay. I think that it, it, it cut me up pretty good on the arms and the face. But, I, you know, after the accident, I didn't even know it came out until I looked and I saw it in there. 
but it, it scratched me up quite a bit. I heard in some cases they were afraid some of the older airbags might cause a fire, so at least yours worked just fine, you know. Uh, yeah, now, well, Tony thought we had a fire because the thing is packed in some kind of powder. Right. And she thought it was smoking. Yeah. I, so, I, but, you know, mm-hmm. we, we were both very lucky. It could have been a lot worse. So what about the other vehicle? Did they, did they banged up pretty good, too? Oh, yeah. I, I You know, I, I was going down the main highway doing about 55 miles an hour. And this guy came out from a stop sign and pulled right out in front of me. And all I had to do, uh, time to do, I hit the brake and I, I think I said a cuss word. Yep. And that was it. Wow. It was just, and it was a loud, loud crash. But um, he, he walked away from it. Okay. Luckily, I hit him just behind the cab of his truck. If I had hit the cab, I think he would have been hurt bad. Yeah. And, he, you know, I, I talked to the guy. He says, you know, I, I did not see you coming. It, it's like a curve in the road. You come over a bridge, you know. And it was a blind side, a, I guess. I saw a big truck pull out, and I saw, oh, I'm clear. And all of a sudden, there was this pickup in front of me. <laughs> Anyhow, you, you re, when you have a wreck like that, you, you relive it a thousand times. So did the paramedic come? How did they get you guys uh, moved? Did they? Did yeah, it, it, yeah. The ambulance came, okay. and the tow truck came and took my vehicle away and took us to the hospital. And uh, it was it was our good luck that our oldest son was visiting us at the time, mm-hmm. but he had stayed at home. Otherwise, he'd have been in the wreck too. Right. And he stayed here for two weeks and, you know, got us back on our feet. So did they, did they repair the truck or what did they do to the truck? No, it's, it's total. Uh. You know, it, it was a, uh, a 95 truck. Okay. But it only had 97,000 miles on it because all we ever did with it was maybe go to the dump and, and yeah. throw our boat around yeah. occasionally. Uh, I'll never get one like it. It was really a good truck. <laughs> so you think you'll buy a, a replacement vehicle, or, or just? I, I I will eventually. Okay. Uh, right now I'm I'm not really pressured to do that right now. Right, you're not in the gun. So and then uh, oh, big surprise! Day before yesterday, our refrigerator died. Uh-oh. And up where, you know, we live up in the mountains. There's not much up here. The only guy that fixes refrigerators doesn't work on uh, the LG refrigerator, which we have. It's a, a Korean-built refrigerator. Are they, the one nearest... of, are they one of these big, big, big refrigerators? That... Yeah, okay. it, it's huge. Okay. It's so big that to get it in the house, we had to take the doors off the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, I called Redding to to a facility down there that does work on them, and they had a month a month lead time to get up here to fix it. So we just went and bought a new refrigerator. Did you buy a small one, or what did you wind up doing? 
No, we bought another rather large one, but okay. uh, I'm going to take the big one that uh, that got uh, that died on us and put it down in my uh, garage. Okay. And then I'm going to have them come and fix it because it would be a shame to throw it away. Yeah. It's a beautiful refrigerator. And that way you still can have something going in the garage. It's just... Yeah, yeah, and then maybe I can sell it later on. Yeah. But, well, uh... We got two refrigerators in my house. We have one in the house and one in the garage. It's just it's really nice to have the extra space. Yeah, well, you know, I have a refrigerator down in my garage. Okay. It's a Montgomery Ward from about 1947. Wow. And it, it just won't stop running. <laughs> but you go out and you buy a $2,500 refrigerator, and it lasts seven years. You kind of wonder where you're going. I, I know. I mean, Dad and I, my dad, my mom, we're having trouble with our refrigerators. Not, the ice maker's not working right. Some other things are not working right. And we were looking at refrigerators last week, and you could easily go two grand, no problem. I mean, Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just, and, but again, we were debating how long we had this one, and I don't know if we're going to get the same amount of life out of anything new compared to like what we used yeah. to. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of taking a shotgun and shooting mine. If you want me to come down and take a shot at yours, I will. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? You know. I'll tell you. <laughs> it's just one thing after another. You know how life goes. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, the biggest thing you worry about is all the meats and everything we got frozen. So when when a refrigerator goes, it's, we're going to move everything while you're trying to get something repaired. Yeah, well, well, fortunately, we have a, a very large freezer also. Mm -hmm. So we were freezing, you know, gallon jugs of uh, milk jugs full of water and using them to keep the refrigerator cold, and it did help, okay. you know. It's like an old icebox. Sure. Did you, did, did you grow up with iceboxes in New York, Ralph? No, I, 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 I never saw one. Uh, until I saw one in an antique store. We <laughs> we always had uh, indoor plumbing, and we always had uh, we always had refrigerators. So, what is an ice box versus a are they really are they totally different? Yeah, there's, there's no machinery involved. You just take ice and you put it up on the top shelf, and it cools the box. And you have a little a little drain where the where the water goes out when the ice melts, but you know they uh, they work. Mm -hmm. Well, you know I think in some areas they used to have the old where that little shed outside they would have the ice and put what was it uh, sawdust or, or straws on it to try to keep it cool that way you know for yeah 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 you know. yeah my my mom told me that. The, they they used to bury a, a lot of times mm. out out in their garages. They they had a they had a dugout back there, and they used to uh, keep the vegetables in there. That was you know before they had refrigerators, I guess. So when you were growing up in the forties, did they have a freezer separate, or or get the ice the uh they had a, a, a little bit of a freezer unit, just big enough for a couple of ice trays okay. to make cubes. 
that's what we had. Okay. So you would necessarily froze meat or anything up there? Would would not? Be no, you know, fro when I when I was a kid, I don't think frozen foods were uh, were an item at that time. I think Patricia looked for it that um, Swanson turkey frozen dinner didn't really happen until after the war. So I think right, that's right. when I. That's when I think it came in, yeah. A lot of money been made off those. <laughs> did, did you? Did I hear you say that your mom had had a, a surgery? Uh -huh. Had surgery Tuesday. They um they had she they wanted to raise her bladder, so they uh, put a mesh underneath her, and so uh. so she can't really. They don't want her to bend over or anything for six weeks, so. Oh my god. So my. Dad, my brother, and I are sure going to be doing the housekeeping slash cooking slash everything around here for the next six weeks. So I don't know, Ralph. I think we're going to need a lot of luck. We might the three boys have, might be a, a total mess. We'll we'll see how good we are. Yeah, well, you'll find out. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I I never had any surgeries at all until I was in my mid seventies. Well, you're cashing up, aren't you, Ralph? You had a couple. Yeah, of yeah. But you know, the anesthesia, the after effects of the anesthesia, I think bothered me more than the the operation itself. Well, it can happen that way. I always thought when I had I had all these eye surgeries as a little boy, and I really think my sleeping clock wound up being totally different. Uh, that's why I really think I became a night owl after all my eye surgery because all the anesthesia. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I guess it's theory. I don't know if it's true, but I just, I just used to stay up late. I, I keep, I, I keep hearing about this thing. They call it non twenty-four yeah. or something. Yeah. Is that a problem for you? Hey, I don't know if it is or is not. Some people say I could have it, but generally, I'm, I'm pretty good. Uh, my clock is generally pretty good, but I don't have. If I need it, I don't mind going to take a nap, you know, to break the clock. But in my case, I think I'm in pretty decent shape. But I think it can be a problem for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I, I keep hearing about it on television. I had never been aware of it. No, because yeah, the eye, the, the sunlight goes into your retina, and that's supposed to take care of your, your clock. That way you, you know, you're up to, you're awake during the day and sleep at night. But... For a lot of blind people who don't have that retina part, uh -huh. the the whole sleeping clock is, can be off, and sometimes my my sleeping clock can be off, but generally I think it's pretty decent shape. Well, I'm, I'm glad for that. Yeah, yeah. But I will take a nap once in a while, especially when on the weekend when I want to do when I want to stay up a little extra for for, for this radio show. So, so. I have no problem doing that. So have it you sounds like sounds like you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Good luck. Good yeah. luck with all that housework. <laughs> well, mom says she's gonna give us a week off for cleaning house, so I think I caught a break, Ralph. What can I say? <laughs> well, I know I know if anybody can handle it, you can. Well, we're, we're gonna make it work. We're gonna make it work. Yeah, that's what you gotta do. Oh yeah. So you have any company? Have any, any of your family come up to see you here in the last month or so? Or have you guys, have you and Tony been pretty quiet around home? Mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, we 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 just been hanging out around here. Uh, my daughter will probably come around uh, in from Hawaii on uh, on uh, Thanksgiving. Okay. <clears throat> but we're not going to go over there this year. Okay. We just I I think we might be done with that. It's it's a it's a lot of hassle. <laughs> well, you guys are pretty. Have have you guys? What about the drought? Have you guys gotten rid of the drought up there? How, how's the water situation? Yeah, the, the water situation, uh, last year we had a very good rainy season. Yep. All of our uh, reservoirs locally are all full, and uh, the groundwater is very, very good right now. Uh, we're not having any trouble except we ha we're having forest fires. So are you seeing any smoke? Uh People have asked oh. me down here. We're not, but you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, two, two. Uh, the the big fire uh, over twenty thousand acres, less than twenty miles from us. And when the wind's blowing in the right direction, you can't see a hundred yards. <laughs> Pardon me. The smoke comes in pretty heavy. But right now, the wind is blowing northward and taking it up toward the coast. So, uh, do they, uh, they got, still got a lot of firefighters on the line? How do, Oh, yeah, there's tons of guys from all over the state Jeez. and even other states. And they, they have, it's the way they set them up, I'm telling you. They, they set them up in these big camps. Yep. And they have special trucks come in with built-in showers for them to take a shower and they, they treat them as, as much better than they used to be treated, I'll tell you. Well, it used to be pretty rough. I wonder how many volunteer firefighters we have anymore. You know, that was sort of a big thing, small, small, town, small town America, to have volunteer firefighters. I don't even yeah, know. we have a volunteer fire department here, and uh, I don't know. I shouldn't complain, but <laughs> California... California's got so many darn rules that they actually made it harder for the volunteer fire departments. Oh. They, they laid off, they want to put a whole lot of rules and regulations on every little thing, and I don't know. Well, <laughs> I came I came up here to live in the woods. I didn't want to live in the city anymore. <laughs> but they're trying to civilize us. Well, even the bears and coyotes are all going to have to have license to come see you, Ralph. What can I say? I guess it's going to, it's probably going to happen. I'm telling you. So have you had any animals on the, on the property here the last few months or so? Have any bears oh, or coyotes or anything? We, we went to a uh, church picnic this afternoon. When we came home, there were three huge jackrabbits in our yard. Oh, wow. And, uh... We, we have a, a regular population of deer here. Mm -hmm. uh, on the way home, we saw maybe, oh, 10 fawns. You know, they're, 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 uh, they're about half grown right now. And a couple of bucks. They're, they're always around. You have any hunters up there? Or what do they, how do they? Oh, yeah. Okay. We have a bow season, first of all, okay. and then they have a rifle season. But um, 
you know, I, I come from a part of the country where they had what they call white-tailed deer. Yeah. They're pretty big, and they're, and they're, uh, they're really worth hunting. Here we have black-tailed deer, yeah. and they're not very big at all. I mean, you know, yeah. they, they look like regular, regular deer, but they, they just don't sprout out like the white-tails do. I know in the Midwest, deer, the deer population's gotten so big because a lot of the small family farms have been evaporated, and a lot of the deers are just ravishing the small farms throughout the whole Midwest. Oh, yeah. Well, we have a, a growing bear problem also. Mm. Uh, a couple of years ago, they, they passed the law, another law, that the, uh, the hunters that used to hunt with dogs for, for bear yeah. are not allowed to use dogs anymore. So naturally the hunting uh, is not yielding as many bear and the population is growing. So when we put our garbage down by the road to be picked up, we have to put a rag with some ammonia in the garbage can because the, the bear won't go near the ammonia. Well, who would? But, that stuff so smells so bad. Who would bother? Yeah, they they don't they don't like it at all. But if you don't do it, they'll come by and just rip your garbage can open and take it and spread it all over the whole area. <laughs> Bears are funny. They, they they'll grab a bag of garbage and drag it off into the woods, maybe fifty, sixty yards from the garbage can. And while they're dragging it, they're dumping garbage all over the ground. <laughs> so I, 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 I put what I, I call them bear bombs. I just we put a piece of uh, a terry cloth or an old towel or something and put ammonia on it. What what made you think of that idea? Did you read read about that somewhere? Yeah, talking to some people who you know are really native up in this area. Yeah. And they recommended that, and it seems to work. <coughs> does it does it get rid of all other animals too, like coyotes and wolves and stuff like that, or just strictly for? Yeah, them? you know, uh, ever since we had a fire up here, right, right locally, mm-hmm. uh, about 20 years ago, it wiped out almost all of the coyotes. Oh, they're coming back, but slowly. Okay. And then they, they had a parvovirus up here that killed, we had a lot of foxes. And it killed a, a whole lot of foxes. So seeing a fox is kind of rare now, but they, they're still around. And I guess they're coming back. Did you always want to live near the woods? Was that always a, a goal of yours as a yeah. person? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a small town. And I, I always liked small towns. Right. And then I got moved to New York when I was about eight years old. And I stayed there until uh, well, until I was about 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to California. And again, we lived in a city, San Jose. Right. And when I was done working, I said, I want to get out of the city. So we ended up in this little town up here, and we really like it. Did you, so 
did you look at any other places, or did you knew right away this was going to be the place? Well, it's funny. You know, I, I, I used to talk on the CB radio a lot. Right. And I was in San Jose. I pulled in the gas station. It was a guy with a CB antenna. We started to talk, and he told me about this place. We got, there's a nice lake here, a small lake where we catch trout. There's a river running through from my house for salmon. And then there's a big, big bass lake about eight miles away. And we we love to fish. So we came up and looked at it. We had a uh, we had a fifth wheel trailer, and the first the first winter, although we still had a house in San Jose, we we decided to spend the whole winter in our trailer up here, just to see what the winters were like. And it wasn't that bad, so we we finally decided to get out of San Jose. Well, it definitely. It's an interesting part of the California for people who may or may not know. You know, I would say from San Diego up to San Francisco, you know, city after city after city. And then above San Francisco, that's really almost getting to the rural part of the state. You know, it's not a, the population is not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't have a very dense population here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, I kind of like it. And, you know, our whole county, we don't have one traffic light. <laughs> and people say to me, how do you drive? <laughs> so you just got to look where you're going, that's all. So do you have the sheriff or do you have a police? How do, they handle, how do the law handle it? Is it a sheriff? Or is well, it? yeah, we have a, uh, a county sheriff's okay. department. And then we have... Uh, uh, a highway patrol presence up here, which is, they handle uh, most of the big stuff, you know. But the, the sheriff, he, it's a big, big county, and he's only got eight people working for him. So it's tough. But the CHP, they, they have quite a few, uh, they have a big office and quite a few officers. So they handle, they handle the bulk of everything. So have you been able to get your Wi-Fi radio working again, or is it just listening to us on the computer? How, how have you been doing it? Oh, yeah. No, uh, my, uh, my my Wi-Fi radio just, it just died on me. Okay. So uh, I've been doing all kinds of different things, but and then I had some, I had some trouble with my computer. And I'm I'm not a computer ace. Yeah. I have uh, I have the Windows 10 okay. operating system. Yeah. And and you can reset the whole computer without, as I understand, before you had to take it in, had to take it into a shop, and right. they would take everything out of it, and then reinstall Windows. But this new system, it, it, it seems to be able to re- reinstall windows by itself I, uh, I'm getting a little better at it but you know I'm not a computer person well you know I, I, I think they've got new stuff out Amazon got some stuff out everything so there's probably other 
definitely want to get get back to that viewpoint. Um, oh yeah. Amazon Echo I think has a little radio that you can just talk to it and you'll you'll find the station that you want. Well, I have to look into that. Yeah, it's called Amazon Echo. They've sold 10 million copies of these things. So. Really. Yeah. So that might be something you want to look at, Ralph. Yeah, that that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So that might be. So that way you can have it any stations you want. You just say go to Yesterday USA or go to there, and they'll just find it for you. Oh, that, yeah, because that's one thing I I had a lot of trouble with. Yeah. When I got the little Wi-Fi radio, was finding I I found your station. Right. And uh, that was the start of my calling you guys. <laughs> so I figure the next time I get something, it's going to be probably tr be something like that. So I can I got my Wi-Fi, but. Occasionally that Wi-Fi, you know, dies on you. You know, you don't get the signals anymore for a while or whatever. It can be... Yes, yes, it happens. It can be hit and miss, so... Well, it's like, you know, up here, uh, there's no cell phone service in our town. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking to you on a cell phone <laughs> because it's a late model cell phone and it works through the Wi-Fi. Interesting technology. I don't know. Yeah. I'm in favor of progress, but it, it, it changes faster than I can that is think. True. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Well, listen, I don't want to tie you up. All right, Ralph. I'm glad you called. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're on the mend. So. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be all right. And if you, if you do contact Patricia. Yep. Please tell her we said hello. I will. I will. So hopefully she'll be up and running here in a week or two. And then that way we can All be right. back on Saturday. Well, you take care, my friend. Thanks, Ralph. So, you too, pal. Yeah. Be good. Good night. Good night. That is Ralph from Northern California. Almost 11 o'clock. One minute before 11. I think I heard Larry drop out. And so we still got uh, yeah, a radio to play. This past Monday... I talked to the American Songbook Foundation. They have a museum in Indiana, Danville, Indiana, if I'm looking happy. They have four employees. So it's the American Songbook is what we're going to talk about next here on Yesterday USA. Special with Sarah Perkins. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. What this wonderful country that we live in, what the opportunities we have. Look after Patricia, my mom, and everybody who's gone through some serious weakness. Thank you for Dave, from John Luria Home. We ask this in Jesus' Christ's name. Amen. All right, everybody. Here we go. Jaws Professional Saturday Night with the Great American Songbook Foundation edited unloading to camp. Okay, enter Saturday. Hi, everybody. I'm Wong Series, and we have two people from a, a, a place that we're going to learn a lot about today, the Great American Songbook Foundation. And Chris and Rita, welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you. 
Well, first of all, Chris, you want to give your title, and and uh, Lisa, uh, would you follow up with that for Chris? You want you might as well put that down for historical posterity. That way, everybody would know a hundred years from now who you guys are. <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, that's intimidating. <laughs> Well, first of all, let's talk about the foundations. When did it get started, and when did uh, you guys get it going in Indiana? Give us a little background. Sure. So, um, we are a nonprofit organization that was founded by the singer Michael Feinstein. Um, Michael founded the organization in 2007 out of a real concern that the history and um, and and the physical. Uh, materials from what we call the Great American Songbook, the golden age of American popular music, were in danger of being lost. Um, and so he wanted to make sure that um, the materials were preserved, that, that, that were still available and could be preserved, and that, um, and that the music was celebrated today and that young people were taught about uh, the music and its uh, history. Uh, the first couple of years, it was... Um, really just a, a small organization that was run out of a, a home. Um, there was no brick and mortar home. They were busy building support and building a board. Uh, in 2011, uh, in Carmel, Indiana, uh, it, well, the first question we usually get is why Indiana? Uh, and Michael found it. Michael is from uh, the Midwest. His partner, Terrence, is from Indianapolis. And when they founded the nonprofit, they founded it with uh, an attorney and business associate here in Indiana, which is why it was here. Um, and Doris Ann Sadler, the uh, first uh, founder and first executive director, uh, introduced Michael to the mayor of Carmel, Indiana, who was in the process of building this uh, performing arts complex. It's a three-theater complex in the heart of downtown Carmel. And he met Michael and heard what he was doing and heard about the Songbook Foundation and offered Michael a home. We have a gallery space here, we have archive space, and a commitment to building a freestanding Great American Songbook Hall of Fame and museum. And uh, so that's how we ended up here. And so as of 2011, we have a brick and mortar home. Um, I'll let Lisa talk a little more about how we've grown uh, with the collections, but I will tell you that our archive space that we started here with was about 500 square feet. And as of this past December, we had to move to an off-site warehouse of about 3,000 uh, square feet. So we've grown a lot, um, but I'll at least talk about the collections part of it. Sure. Um, yeah, when we started, when I started in 2010, I, I was working on storage unit, and we had just a few collections at the time. Um, we moved into uh, the Palladium here, the Christmas Room, uh, in January 2011 with those just four or five collections. And Lots of songs in the 1920s, making 
rookie. Y'all see him in Greece, and he was really huge. Um, Carolina in the morning. We have um, radio show recordings of Rudy Valley from the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, we have uh, the papers of Hyde Garrett. His name is not real well known. Actually, wrote the lyrics to Unsung Melody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also had a very long career. Uh, he wrote, uh, had a few hits in the 1940s during World War II. Um, he wrote jingles for The Voice of America. He wrote children's educational music. We have all of his papers here. And a couple of years ago, we received um, another large collection those are the papers of Ray Charles, and not the Ray Charles, the singer, but this is Ray Charles, the arranger, who, uh, who whose um, singers backed up Jerry Como on so many LPs. Yeah, I knew, him, I knew him well, so a nice guy. Yeah, yeah so we, uh, we're processing his collection, which includes um, boxes and boxes of binders from all of the special shows that he did over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just um, in a nutshell some of the materials that we have here that are available for researchers um, and that we use in our exhibits. Are you open for more donations? And will you be open to very famous pianos or things like that? Well, actually, we have two pianos now. Uh, We have uh, Johnny Mercer's piano Mm -hmm. that uh, resides in the conductor's room here in the Palladium, and then we have Richard Whiting's Baby Grand Piano as well on display. Yeah, I, I know Tony Dow has Harry Barris piano, so Harry's uh, read the boy, and nothing, he says it's got a good home for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, ha, Lisa, how did you get connected with the foundation back in 2007? Uh, that was a case of being in the right place at the right time. Um, I was uh, finishing grad school, and the executive director was looking for someone to begin uh, processing the collections that we had, and my name was passed along to her, and we met, and she handed me the key to the storage unit. Very nice. Well, how about you, Chris? How did you join the foundation? Uh, well... Sort of the same, uh, same thing, and being in the right place at the right time. I always say I got to create my dream job, and uh, which I feel very fortunate to do. They, uh, I was living in New York City at the time. I, my background is uh, performance. I was a singer. I had gone back to school, got my master's in education, and I was teaching high school. And uh, and I loved this music. I, I knew of Michael Feinstein, our paths crossed in New York um, years before. I was a fan, um, and my wife is from Indiana, and we were following the building of this incredible performing arts center, uh, and we were looking to move closer to family and looking to leave New York City, and I read something about Michael Feinstein uh, having some affiliation with Carmel, Indiana, and I thought, that seems, you know, incredibly odd. Right. <laughs> Why is he in Indiana? And I read about the the foundation he had created, and it was just it was right up my alley. I love this music, I love the history, and um, and but I noticed they they had education in the mission, but no educational programming. Uh, they had started uh, something called the uh, high Great American Songbook High School Vocal Competition, which they had run for a couple of years and then had uh, had gone on hiatus. 
And so I started lobbying for the job, and I had been in a completely different um, situation, had worked with um, the first executive director on another project, and I saw that she, her involvement, and I just called her and I said, hey, you know, I love what you're doing. I think you need an education program. And so, you know, I'm a singer and I'm a history teacher, and so I started sending, you know, ideas and mm -hmm. uh, plans, and so eventually they were able to hire some additional staff, and they brought me on as the director of that program, the high school local competition, with a charge to revive the program and expand it. Uh, and we did. We expanded nationally. The program has gone from a one-day local event to uh, a seven-day program in the summer. We bring 40 students from across the country here uh, for a full week of master classes and workshops with um, Michael Feinstein, of course, but then other uh, music industry uh, leaders and Grammy winners and Tony winners and uh, college professors from the top arts programs in the country, and it's a it's grown into you know a comprehensive performance intensive, but all rooted in the Great American Songbook. Uh, so this will be I just had my sixth anniversary here, and I think I've had four titles since then. <laughs> so I went on from director of the competition to director of education to director of programs, uh, and now executive director. Before we get too much further, do you have a website? Work, if people are in Indiana, where can they find you guys? Give us a little geographic. Sure. So we do have a website. It's uh, thesongbook.org. So it's pretty easy uh, to remember, thesongbook.org. You can learn all about us there. You can access um, finding aids for many items in our collection. You can see some of our past exhibits in a virtual gallery. So there's a lot of... Uh, content for people that aren't here in Indiana, uh, but if you are, uh, we are located in the Palladium, which is a magnificent concert hall, 600-seat concert hall on the campus of the Center for the Performing Arts in Carmel, Indiana, uh, which is right outside of Indianapolis. We, are, uh, we have a, a gallery exhibit space. It's a free exhibit. It's open Monday through Friday, 10 to 4, and then before some of our uh, songbook and jazz series shows here at the Palladium. Our current exhibit is on Ella Fitzgerald celebrating her centennial, and um, it's just a, a beautiful exhibit celebrating uh, the career, life and career of, um, of the great Ella Fitzgerald. But uh, we've had people here, we've had researchers uh, come here from as far away as uh, Brazil and the UK, and, um, and, then, and we've had people travel uh, from across the country who learned about us online and who wanted to learn more about the foundation, so we welcome anyone to to visit us online or in person. Lisa, Chris, how could we define a great American songbook? Do we do by just by time, or do we do it by style? How would you define it? That is a great question, <laughs> and I'll tell you our answer, because okay. one thing I have learned in this position is that uh, that is a, continues to be a hotly debated topic, um, even among our volunteers and uh, and um, supporters here. Uh, really, the term, uh, I'm not sure anyone can, I know there, I've read different ideas, but I've not read a definitive um, explanation of where that term comes from. Um, what it means to us is it's, it's a term that refers to music that lasts beyond the time that it was written. So, 
by that definition, the Great American Songbook is still being written. There are people today writing music that will last. Um, we won't know for another 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, but there certainly are people um, that already belong in that, um, with that distinction, like Barry Manilow and Billy Joel and Carol King and Marilyn and Alan Bergman and um, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. So, I mean, there are people who have written songs that will last, have lasted, for our purposes, and um, and really the reason Michael founded the organization was to he was concerned about a specific um, time period, and that's really the 20s or so through about the 60s, um, the golden age of American popular music, uh, and that's what we focus on in terms of the preservation efforts and our education efforts because um, you know there are many reasons why. Um, collections the papers physically aren't here i mean we've got a we've got a poster from the jazz singer an original uh one sheet from the jazz singer there are only three known to be in existence mm. um the reason is the, the, you know during the war effort there were paper drives and things and so the movie houses once the films were shown would donate uh the movie posters for recycling and so there was a, a sense that you know that there's a reason many of those items didn't exist Michael tells a story of um, when they were building the freeway system in L.A., they needed landfill, and some of the studios opened their vaults and dumped uh, the original orchestrations and, and manuscripts of some of the greatest musicals of our time, like Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain, um, because I guess there was no thought that there would be value or importance to those materials once the films had been released. So. You know, that was his, and of course he got his start working for Ira Gershwin, right. who was his hero, um, but also working with him to see, and he got to meet some of the great songwriters who were still living at that time, and and to know that their names weren't remembered uh, anymore, and uh, sometimes their papers were in boxes in a basement thinking nobody wanted them, and so um, there was a real sense that that history was in danger of being lost, so that's why we focus on that particular era, but our, our parameters will change, I mean, we will have to start thinking about expanding those parameters as time goes on. So you so are you interested, like in the movies, that you mentioned that you have the best kind of paper, for instance, the famous George Day movie, I'll see you in a dream with Dutch. Have you ever, would you branch out into other media platforms? Um, yes, we do have about a thousand you guys decide on the which way? Do you have some that are like a permanent which way and some that are, like you mentioned by Ella, it's rotating? How do you guys figure that part of it out? Uh, we do about one exhibit a year and um, generally um, most of them I come up with a theme. Ella, we decide it in her expense mm -hmm. uh, since we're still so considerate to do that exhibit. Um, we try to focus celebrating that, so we focused on um, Indiana singers and songwriters, not 
Have you think you guys are still looking for like photographs or are there are there some things that you're always on the lookout for? Definitely songwriters whose materials we'd like to have here in our collection um, to make available to researchers. But I will say, within that, yes, photos. Uh, what Lisa always focuses on when people approach us for uh, to donate a collection or something is what else do you have to tell the story? Sometimes mm -hmm. they're focused on the papers and right. don't realize yeah. that you know the photos would help us tell the story. You know, Maris Wilson is a great example. He kept everything. Mm -hmm. We could tell his life story in pictures, their home videos, their scrapbooks, their clippings, their letters, correspondence. So what we want is anything mm -hmm. that will help us tell someone's story, whether they're known or not. I mean, right. we've got other collections of uh, people who had mass, you know, extensive pieces of collections and things, but still we want to tell their story. So, um, so I just wanted to you know, say that. Uh -huh. keep, so when somebody walks in, what do, do they see a lot of sheet music when they walk through the uh, museum? Give me an idea of when a, when a donor walks in. What, what's some of the things I'm looking for besides the Hillel uh, collection from Maine? ahead to make an appointment, and they have to have a good reason to want to go um, into the archives or to, you know, see materials from the archives, mm -hmm. um, but we do get quite a few requests for sheet music, um, teachers who are putting together musicals, um, just a wide variety of requests. Somebody, you know, performers can't always find it. Um, you're probably familiar with Robert Grimes' collection. Yeah. He was longtime San Francisco resident. So we have um, his collection of sheet music and books and DVDs, the large collection of DVDs that we have currently here. So um, we can, we will share, you know, sheet music with people who request it via email as well. And then each exhibit features uh, artifacts, sometimes from our archives, sometimes on loan. Our current exhibit, um, Manella, was uh, partially sponsored by the Ella Fitzgerald Charitable Foundation, and so they provided some photos from Ella's personal collection, some handwritten manuscripts arranged in Beringa, which you know, she recorded. Uh, and then we have an interactive touchscreen dis display exhibit where I think they have several hours and hundreds of songs on there anyway. Some are video clips, some are rare recordings. Uh, each one has information on the songwriters, the lyricists, uh, and wherever the performance came from. But that's uh, a really fun part of the exhibit that uh, is enjoyed by people of all ages. Kids, of course, are comfortable with technology and can come in and, um, and utilize it right away. Um, older guests come in, it takes a minute for them to figure it out, and they'll pull up a chair and sit and uh, can be entertained for hours. But we've got that, and then we have a section, uh, 
those are things you can do when you come into these galleries. Are there fundraising opportunities that people can support you guys? Can they become a member of the museum? Do you guys have big, big annual events throughout the year? How do you guys make sure you keep the doors so open? We don't have a membership program yet, but we are talking uh, about that. You know, our long-term, or we've always said our long-term plan is to build an actual freestanding uh, Hall of Fame and museum. Um, it's not so long-term anymore. We're beginning the process of doing some feasibility studies now to, um, to really see what that would look like and how, um, how that can come about. But absolutely, we have fundraising events all over the country. Uh, you can give uh, to our website, uh, through our website, the songbook.org. Um, we have folks that are interested specifically in the preservation efforts, and so we've gotten some grants from family foundations and some um, individual donors who've supported some digitization projects and other preservation efforts. Folks who are passionate about education um, could give to our Songbook Academy program. Um, this program involves a fee, and so sometimes we have scholarships for the program fees, uh, but also just to, to maintain the program because the program fee only covers a, a small portion of what it costs to bring a student here for uh, a week, and we bring 40 students, house them, feed them, and provide um, the instruction by world-class mentors. Um, the gallery exhibits are always um, in need of sponsorships, and uh, so there are any number of ways, and then we do host um, special events. We have a national board, so we have representatives and ambassadors that live all over the country, and so um, we've got events in different parts of the country throughout the year, um, but the best place to start would be the songbook.org. Well, how do you pick the 40 kids who come? Do they send audition tapes? How do they walk through that process? Sure. So it's um, they submit video auditions. We use a, a, an online application platform. It's all very simple. Um, the video auditions can be as simple as recording from a phone uh, to a professional video, it, it ranges, but uh, really all we care about is seeing the student and hearing, um, you know, hearing their performance. We have a panel of screeners uh, that are made, it's, uh, which is made up of music educators and professional uh, singers who evaluate each application. I think one thing that makes our program unique is that every student who applies gets written feedback on their audition from our panel of screeners. Um, so we provide um, written evaluations to every student who applies to the program. Uh, the screening process is in three phases. Um, the screeners listen, they evaluate, there's a numerical rating system. Um, once they whittle that down, they do the process again. And so um, the third time we arrive at the top 40 students. And then, um, and then they're invited to join us here in Carmel. Lisa, talk a little bit about your work. I, I, I've done a lot of archival work. Is it mostly inventory for you right now? Is it trying to make sure you got everything cataloged? What, what's sort of your normal day-to-day -day operation? We are very fortunate to have several volunteers who are working on our collections now. Um, we actually do a lot of processing, um, creating the fine remains, surveying, getting inventories created, as you said. Yes, we have done some of this. Um, and um, so those, those are a lot of the papers, um, but we're also cataloging a lot of the commercial items like the L6 and the DVDs. Um, you can uh, find our collections on WorldCat, as well as if you go to our website, you can see our library of collections there as well. Um, you can see a listing of all of the publications. 
just use an old, you know, find an old song off of their catalog. I am not a musician. I don't, I don't read um, music that I say I'm in good company because my life isn't good enough. <laughs> but um, a lot of our volunteers are very knowledgeable, uh, have um, extensive backgrounds with music, and so um, several of them are assigned to deal with, with um, those types of collections. Go into the trap where other parts of different collections, for example, I'm thinking of Meredith Walter, there's radio collections out here specific pioneer broadcasters and a lot of the music sheets that he wrote for the radio shows. Do you guys try to keep tab where different things are so when you need to put together an exhibit, you sure know who to ask? Yes, we do. Um, and it can be quite difficult at times um, because. You know, artists will donate things to local universities and colleges and give things to friends. And so that's um, one of the challenges that I have is trying to track things down that we can borrow. We're, we're fortunate with the Wilson Collection in that um, his written music went to Juilliard and many of the three-dimensional items um, went to his boyhood home in Mason City, Iowa. And with Meredith Wilson, we have a reciprocity agreement between um, with the other two organizations so that we can borrow those things. But with some of the others, it can be difficult to track down those materials. How did you wind up with the guest con collection? That's an interesting, that must be an interesting story. They came with somebody's collection, or did that come from a different place? Uh, Bobby Kahn, um, who's a would-be Gus's son's widow, mm -hmm. um, the widow of Donald Kahn. Um, he had these materials, and so she donated them to us. Um, there are other materials that belong to him that are at UCLA, is that right, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I think they have about the same amount that we do. Um, we, have, um, we have a lot of great um, personal photos, vacation photos, beautiful letters that were written, a, a great Christmas card from Al Jolson with his wife and, and young child, so lots of neat personal items that mm -hmm. came from that collection. Right now, are you guys uh, working with space limitations, and that's why you're hoping to get the uh, standalone stand uh, museum up and running as soon as possible? I mentioned the other day, or, or earlier in the conversation, we, we've grown from 500 square feet of archive space to 3,500 square feet, and we're in, in talks um, to acquire a couple of collections that could significantly increase that footprint. So we are um, always growing. Yeah. Anything else you two that we should mention before I let you have the rest of your afternoon? Sure. Um, we did just uh, have some exciting news just uh, a few weeks ago. We were named uh, a cultural affiliate of the Grammy Museum. Nice. Um, we're one of only five institutions in the world with that distinction, and so we are thrilled about that because it will help get the word out about us uh, on a larger scale, much more, more so than you know we'd be able to do for some time. And so we, we, um, we're proud of that distinction. We've worked with the, the Grammy Foundation various projects, some digitization projects and things over the years, but we're excited about that uh, distinction of being a cultural affiliate. That's a very nice accomplishment. 
Alicia, any idea what you're going to have on display for next year? Or you, is it too far to think ahead for 2018? Uh, Meredith Wilson opens November 13th and uh, will be up for most of 2018. And um, I have some ideas in mind for um, late 2018, but I haven't decided on them. So we have the we have the ability to make up our minds at the last minute here. We're not so large. We only have a staff of four, so that helps. Um, we can be pretty light on our feet. Long <laughs> quick just to know just, just before you open that that's that's he he'll be happy with that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So where's the website address? Is the best place maybe to. Uh, people come in through town, through uh, lodging. Give me, so, you know, for people who are not familiar with your part of Indiana, give me a little more background. Sure. So, Carmel, Indiana is on the north side of Indianapolis. Um, we are um, a, one of the fastest growing communities, cities in Indiana right now, but um, I think we're currently about 100,000 uh, residents. Um, but it's a real, it's a very unique community in that there is a real focus on the arts here, uh, and the mayor is a real visionary who looks at the arts as an economic driver for the community. And so, over the last 10 to 15 years, they they have been working on where we currently reside, the Center for the Performing Arts, which, like I said, is in the center of town, and it's uh, a three-theater complex. We're right in the arts and design district. Uh, here in Carmel where there are uh, galleries and, um, you know, there's always live music and it's, uh, so it's a very, it's a very interesting community. There are um, hotels nearby. Uh, we are a concert venue, so there are always shows. We've got six resident companies here, theater companies, dance companies, and then we present um, over 50 shows a year here in the concert hall of all genres. So there's a lot to do here. Uh, it's a wonderful place to visit. It's definitely worth worth a vacation, and uh, we'll keep you entertained. And you can visit the Songbook Gallery and Archive. And the address is? We're at 1 Center Green, Carmel, Indiana, 46032. And if people want to contact you through your website, what's the best way to do that? Sure. You can uh, visit us at www.thesongbook.com. Dot org, and you can find our contact information there, and you can uh, explore the website and see the collections and exhibits and a lot more. So if somebody coming out of town, is it, is it a good thing maybe to call ahead just to make sure you have things open that day or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. If you're if you're planning a visit, and it would be great to give us a call because we can give you a little more guidance. You know, like I said, we do have shows, so sometimes you can time your visit to see a a concert or another event when you're here it just makes it that much more uh, enjoyable but certainly if we have a heads up um, we are open Monday through Fridays 10 to 4 but we're always uh, happy to meet anyone and show anyone the gallery when they're here so the, the more notice we have the better but otherwise you're coming through here you're free to to walk in and explore the gallery any of those times. And do a mission fee for, to get in? Nope, it's a free uh, free exhibit, free visit. Well, Chris and Lisa, thank you for giving me your time today. I wish 
nothing but the best for you this year and next year. So thank you for doing this for me today. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much. We've enjoyed it. We played some of the uh, Larry King. We have Marvin Miller, uh, B and Andre on. So we're going to pick up and hear more of that. So stand by as I fast forward to the Larry King show here on Yesterday USA. Jaws Professional Saturday Night Live Show for Larry King that most people didn't know about. And thank you, Uniden. Uniden, or quick. Frank Sinatra came on, and that thing... And he said, get that man was so nervous. There's as they are to radar. Use of these products may not be lawful in some... There is... Only as directed. So you can get a... And I missed Andre. By that time I was... Time. I don't know, I guess... So how could I be alcoholic? I thought only losers became alcoholics. A noted Alcoholism is a disease. And my wife convinced me that drinking for me was like committing suicide. I got the facts and got into a program to stop drinking and I don't drink anymore. Now I really know what success is all about. Not just with my career, but with my wife, my children, and my life. Get help like Jason Robards got. If you or someone you love has a drinking problem, call the National Council on Alcoholism in your area. I'm living proof you don't have to die for a drink. A public service message in cooperation with the Advertising Council. Live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles for the radio convention and programming conference, it's The Larry King Show, America's favorite talk program. The Larry King Show comes to you via the Mutual Radio Network. And now radio's most talked about interviewer and the host of the show, Larry King. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're back. 
Another hour on this special Sunday night edition of the Larry King Show. A salute to radio. It is a Mutual's 50th anniversary, this major conference, a combined conference of the National Radio Broadcasters Association and the National Association of Broadcasters Programming Conference. As we said, we will be here through Friday night. Three nights here at the Bonaventure tonight, Monday and Tuesday, and then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at the studios of KPRZ. Our guests earlier tonight were Gary Owens and Marvin Miller. We welcome now to our microphones an extraordinary couple in this business. One of the great announcers and great band singers, and they've been together for 46 years in marriage. Still, still actively performing with a syndicated uh, radio show featuring old-time hits and a whole bunch of other things. Andre Barusha, great name in American radio, the announcer on the hit parade, The Shadow, and so many other shows. Even did Dodger baseball once back in Brooklyn. And B. Wayne who sang with Larry Clinton's orchestra, had a great hit recording of Deep Purple. They have been Andre Baruch and B. Wayne for 46 years, and no. I thank you both for coming. B. Wayne and Andre Baruch. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure to be here. So, Reddy, it's her name first, right? Yeah, it's got to be B. Uh, B. Wayne first. I'm guessing that you two met that Andre did a remote of the Larry Clinton orchestra from high atop the Edison Hotel overlooking You're downtown. You're absolutely and you wrong. <laughs> uh, How did you meet Andre? Well... I was announcing a program called uh, Fred Waring. And Fred called me in one day and said, listen, I've got a group of seven boys and a girl, an octet I want you to listen to. And uh, the girl was B. And I want you to know that she did the show with these seven boys and they were wonderful, the first swing octet. And I never talked to her. But I did meet her officially on the Kate Smith show. And I tried to get her to go out with me. And she wouldn't go out because there were two shows, one at 8 o'clock and one at 11. Yeah, and it repeated for the West yes, Coast. Yes, for the West Coast. And her father would not let her go out, this young kid of 16 or 17 at that time, uh, after midnight. So that settled that until one night Benny Goodman opened at the Pennsylvania Hotel. And there was a special show. And it was emceed by Henny Youngman. And Henny was introducing all the celebrities. And finally he said... And now one of the top announcers in the business the, announces the Kate Smith Show, Your Hit Parade, uh, Wife's Other, jo John's Other Wife. Here he is, Andre Baruch and his lovely wife, B. Wayne. This is our first date, and I've wanted to kill him ever since. <laughs> no, it really actually. happened. First yes, date. first date. It really happened. Did you like Andre, even though you weren't allowed to go out with him? Oh, I dug him. I mean, he was the playboy of the Western world. <laughs> so even though his image of a girl chaser and a wild man with women plodding at his feet because of his announcing prowess, yeah. that didn't deter you? It didn't deter me. I, I, I was a little girl in the chorus, and he was a big star announcer. And I really did, did dig him. And I got him. You sure did. <laughs> Explain before we get into all the other things. Longevity. How have you been able to do it, both in the business, 46 years? Perseverance. <laughs> Say Is something there, else, please. I don't know. I guess it's compromise. You know, people who are married for a long time uh, have to give way. You can't always be right. And even if you're wrong, you know, you have to admit it. Of course, I'm never wrong. Everybody knows that. But uh, actually, uh, B and I very seldom have discussions or serious discussions about big problems. Only about very little problems. That's where we get into arguments. Little things. Little things. As I told you before, B is a great Larry Kingophile. 
and she every single night that you're on she must listen to you and I'm trying to read a book and the radio is blaring so funny she takes the little plug and puts it in her ear and eventually she falls asleep with the plug in her ear and I'm still reading the book and the plug falls away from her ear and for some un unaccountable reason ends up in her navel and so in the middle of the night while I'm asleep, I suddenly hear, I wonder where it's coming from. And I slowly pull down the, pull down the, the uh, bedclothes, and I see that it's now, that little thing is now in her navel. Now I have to turn off Larry King, which is very difficult at 3 o'clock in the morning when it's pitch dark. And so, you see, she may be your biggest fan, but as for myself... Yes, Andre. <laughs> listen, on the subject of laughs, <laughs> I must tell you, that I announced the shadow. I heard you talking with Gary Oban. Yeah, Owens. he had the wrong opening. The opening was, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. The shadow knows. <laughs> that was the opening. I thought he said that. He didn't say that. No, he said something about... Uh, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Yes. That's what the shadow said. The shadow said the, the opening, too, that I just gave you. He said that, too? Yes. Have you, you've always, throughout this marriage, continued a singing career? Most always. Except we, when we the children. We raised the family, yes. And uh, I did a lot of singing. I always sang. I did the radio shows. When I first met Andre, I was doing group singing, which is where I learned everything. I actually started, though, before any of these old radio people. I was on the air every week when I was five years old. What show? On WJZ. It was a children's hour. In Detroit? In New York. Oh, that's right. WJZ's now, but then it was a New York station. I'm a New Yorker. I was a New Yorker. And I used to stand on a little box and sing my song and get $2, literally. Horn and Hardart? No, that was before Horn and Hardart. Horn and Hardart was CBS later on with Milton Cross. Milton Cross, great opera announcer, He too. was the announcer. And then I sang after school. I, I, all, all my life. When I was in high school, I did a commercial show on a local radio station in New York. I carried my books to the studio, and I did my show, and I got $10 a week. And then I went, then I went on NEW, WNEW in New York, with Frank Sinatra and Dinah Shaw. We were all on staff. Maybe we all came with our books, and we all know each other ever since. Frank came from Hoboken. Right. The uh, Larry Clinton Orchestra. Right. Great band to work with. Yeah. Yeah, not so great to work with. Yeah, it was okay. I was lonely. By that time, I was married. And we used to go on the road. And I missed Andre. And it was hard. It was Andre hard. was always based in New York, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do Deep Purple with Clinton? Oh, yes. Yeah. That was a tremendous hit, right? That was a big hit, and my reverie was equally big. It was also a classic by Debussy. And an interesting thing that... Um, this afternoon, we were together with a lot of the girl singers. We get together occasionally. Helen O'Connell and Kitty Callan and Jerry Vale. And Patty Andrews. Patty Andrews. And we were talking. And, you know, when we made these records with the bands, everybody says, oh, boy, you must be getting residuals like crazy. I got $30 for Deep Purple and three other sides. That's right. The band made the money, not the singer, right? The singer was just another member of the band. But... I can't get angry because when I went on the road after I left the band and went out on my own as a star, quote unquote, that's when I made the money because of Deep yeah. Purple. And my so one hand fed the other. Of course. Our guests are Andre Baruch and B. Wayne.
They do a wonderful syndicated show. We'll talk about that. Want to talk with Andre about the secrets of what made him such a great radio announcer. B. Wayne, one of the great singers. Andre Baruch and B. Wayne. This is Larry King in Los Angeles. Back after these messages. D-R-O-W-S-Y. For occasional sleeplessness, you may want help feeling drowsy. D-R-O-W-S-O-M-P-O-Z. Try Compose. C-O-M-P-O-Z. Just one maximum strength Compose can help you feel drowsy, so you can get a good night's sleep and wake up ready to go. Use only as directed. Compose. C-O-M-P-O-Z. Mary Lou, does Topol Smoker's Tooth Polish really work? Yes, it does. I use all kinds of things to try and brighten up my teeth, and I figured there was just no hope for it. Uh, That's when I turned to Topol. Uh, with what results? There was a remarkable difference. My teeth lost that yellow stain color, and the last time I went to the dentist, he remarked how much cleaner they looked, and he asked me if I'd stop smoking, and I said no, and I was very surprised. And I don't feel people are looking at me and saying, well, she's a smoker. Topol Smoker's Tooth Polish. For whiter looking, brighter teeth. Hello, and welcome to the Radar Detector Bowl, where Uniden, thank you, Uniden, Uniden, a world leader in electronics, takes on tough competition, the Escort. <laughs> thank you, Escort. Question one Which unit has the latest superheterodyne technology available? Ooh, a tie. Which has a filtering system to eliminate ghost or false radar signals? Another tie. Okay, which visor unit has an easy-to-read color-coded light bar showing signal strength instead of an old-fashioned meter? Ooh, sorry, Escort. Unit N pulls ahead. Now, which is the only one immediately available in stores? Unit N again. Now, here's the big question. Which unit costs less? Hey, hey, Unit N upsets Escort. The Unit N 55 and 95 models at up to $55 less than Escort. They're as sensitive to your wallet as they are to radar. Use of these products may not be lawful in some states. You're listening to The Larry King Show, live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. Here again, Larry King. Thank you very much. With Andre Baruch and B. Wayne, who host their own syndicated show. It's heard uh, weekly on geez, tons of radio stations across the United States. Uh, and we'll discuss that in just a moment. Uh, B. was mentioning something while the commercial was on, which is very true. In those days, the announcer, the announcer of a program like the Hit Parade or uh, soap operas or anything, they got famous. Jack Benny Show, Don Wilson. People became famous. Harry Von Zell names him. Why, Andre? Why were announcers... Because I mean, all they, they, gave, they gave their names frequently. You know, as, as Marvin Miller explained, we did a lot of programs. For instance, I did a lot of soap operas, such as uh, Just Plain Bill, Wife's Other John, John's Other Wife, uh, Second Husband with Helen Menken, uh, Exploring the Unknown. And you'd always say Andre Baruch speaking. Well, at the end, you'd say that you're announcer Andre Baruch. But the very first network program that I did was with a fellow named David Ross. David Ross had the most marvelous vocal organ you have ever heard in your life. And he used to do poems such as, O wilderness of drifting sands, O lonely caravan, The desert's heart is set apart unknown to any man. Now, David and I did the first CBS uh, Coast to Coast Network show. 
And I came on first after the, the big fanfare and said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, here is David Ross. Thank you, Andre Baruch. Don't mention it, David Ross. <laughs> You're welcome, Andre Baruch. And it went back and forth. <laughs> well, at the end, if you're doing 10 or 15 <laughs> shows a week, and I, we probably did more than that, I'm sure, your name is at the end of each show. That's not true today. No. No, so we, you know, that, that's what happened. We just now kept you on... Were, you worked on the hit parade together, right? Yes. You were with them how long? I was with the hit parade four years. And you were the announcer how long? 22 years. That was the one. Remember how that how that show began? Remember, Lucky Strike presents your hit parade, right? Yeah, Lucky Strike presents your hit parade. Still the number one announcement. He, he still gives me chills when he does that. I tell you how that happened. You're I, I number one. Number one this week. No, it's how did that happen? Now, number one, the song that I forgot the song that's in first place on your hit parade, Goody Goody. <laughs> no, whatever, whatever the song was. But uh, I auditioned for that program, and I came in 73rd. But the day of the show itself, the announcer they had hired was rather nervous, because George Washington Hill, the tycoon who was president of the American Tobacco Company, was listening at home, uh, not at home, at his office uh, on Fifth Avenue. And the man was so nervous during the rehearsal that the papers were rattling. And he said, get that bleep out of there. They now called the announcer room, and they said, uh, who's this? I said, Baruch, come right up to Studio One. I said, not me, I'm on my lunch hour. She said, you're going to be on a permanent lunch hour if you don't come up right away. I came upstairs, and there in this big studio was a tremendous orchestra, and all the agency people and CBS people and the people from American Tobacco pounced on me and said, here's the copy, read it, give it plenty of punch and a lot of drive, and that night I did the show. And you could have heard me in Chicago from New York without a microphone. I, I was screaming that loud. At the end of the show, I was a mass of perspiration and exhausted. Tuesday morning, I got my script back. And on it was a little notation that said, Announcing good, a little more punch, George Washington Hill. And I was practically dead. <laughs> and I, I never met George Washington Hill. Never did? No, never did. None of us who ever worked on the show ever met him. You came to the show then much after Andre was oh, here. Oh, much, much, much. Was yes, that I, I started with Marconi, as everybody knows. Was that a fun show to do? Oh, sure. I started, I left the Larry Clinton band and got on the hit parade. And I sang, at that time, Barry Wood was on. And then Frank Sinatra came on. And that was fun because Frank had the girls going, you know, crazy. And the boys resented it a little the young fellows in the audience. So they gave it to me, you see. So it was very good for my morale. Frank sang Put Your Dreams Away for Another Day on that show, didn't That he? was his theme, but no. not on that show. Not on that show? No. Was we he, were just singers on that show. Was he fun to work with? Was Frank good to work with in those days? Yes, I did a program with him called... I wasn't on the show at that time. I was winning the war single-handed. Uh, and I was overseas. Read about it in the papers. Yes, I'm sure. Uh, I did a show after the war with him called Light Up Time. Light up time. Yeah. Also sponsored by uh, LS, MFT, Let's Stand, My Fanny's Tired. <laughs> all those, you know, great things. Uh, but I, I, Frank and I got along very well, and to this day, we're very good friends. Did you enjoy singing with him? Oh, sure. He's a very generous. The only problem about Frank was he was always surrounded by people. By people. And he was very hard to get to. And he wanted to be, you know, gotten to. No. Write, that, write that down. 
but uh, they protected him. Now you're well. doing the hit parade again, right? We've recreated the authentic Your Hit Parade. Tell me about it. Well, we take shows. Can't have Lucky Strike as a sponsor anymore. No. 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 So but what do you do? Andre and I go into the studio every week, and we do. We take one night, let's say one Saturday night, March fifth, nineteen forty-five, and we do the authentic show that was on that night. But we play records of the artists who made the songs famous. The original records. And we do... What, you, you do the countdown, 10? Oh, nine, yes. Oh, we don't do the countdown from 10. We mix it up to make it a good program. Only the last three. Three, two, one. Three, two, and one is countdown. Do you have a lucky strike extra? We have an extra, yeah, not a lucky cool. strike extra. And is this separately syndicated from the other show you do? Well, no, no, this is this the is, show this we did. This is the show, your hit parade. It is now your hit parade, because yes. I heard you when you were doing the show, and it wasn't your hit parade. Oh, that was when we were doing a talk show. Yeah. We were doing a talk show, too. Now, your hit parade is on once a week? It's on uh, once a week, sometimes twice a week, depending on what the station wants to do. In, uh, in Baltimore, <coughs> excuse me, in Baltimore, they play it uh, five nights a week. On WITH, on right. what we're heard right now. Right. Yeah. How many stations are you on? Oh, 70-some-odd. Yeah. Whose idea was this? Uh, let's see, it was a man in Philadelphia by the name of David Custis who came to us as we were leaving Florida. And he was a tremendous library and asked us if we'd be interested. And we said yes. And he could not uh, do anything with it. So we went to a syndicator here in L.A., Radio Arts, and they grabbed it. All right, now, who do, does anyone still own the rights to your hit parade? Yes. American brands. Still do? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They covered that. So you had to pay them? Yes. Was that painful, Andre? No, because I don't pay it. <laughs> <laughs> the syndicator pays it. This David Custis, who wanted us to do the show, <clears throat> it was he who got permission to do it. And now, he pays it. Are there, recording, are there records of the, or scripts from those 1945 shows? No, I write the scripts. I, I rewrite everything and tell stories about the music, about the artists, unusual stories. Uh, the singers, the composers. I mean, we've been there, you know. We knew That's them right. all. We were with them. It was part of our life. And uh, the show is accurate. If you're telling me it's March 7, 1945, absolutely, it's authentic. absolutely accurate. Now, where do you get that from? We have the list. Of, we have every single song that was ever played on your hit parade, when oh. it was played. And it has mm. to be accurate because we have listeners that know every single one. It's amazing how this show had a following. It meant a great deal to many people. But they knew exactly what the songs were, and if we ever make a mistake, they'll call us on it. Do you still have the same little little theme before number one? Yeah. That they used to play fanfare. on that show? Well, there's a fanfare. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the beginning has a, an opening fanfare, you know, ba 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 one of these big things. Welcome to your hit parade, one of those. And they, then they play Lucky Day. And then what we do, we talk about things that happened during that period. There's a little almanac in there. I mean, if, uh, if, we, if it was during the war or what, but specific things maybe, and what was on Broadway, and what, was the, um, what were the Academy Award winners. It's, it's historical radio. Do you do them once a week or you tape more than that? We usually tape twice, one, two in one week. We but do the two writing the takes a long time. Andre does the writing, he's very good. And now, both of you have had full and long and wonderful careers. Right. And one does not imagine <coughs> that we will have to throw a benefit 
for either of you. So one might would say, be nice. All right. <laughs> one might say, why, why do you work? Why you, not? You, both, you live in Beverly Hills. Life is nice. What else would I do? I can't play golf five, six days a week. He had a hole-in-one two weeks ago. It's nothing. It's my usual hole-in-one. Every 17 years, I get a <laughs> hole-in-one. But uh, with the same question was asked of Bob Hope. You know, he said, what, what else would I do? And uh, we're very busy, both of us. As a matter of uh, fact, we have a new act. An act? An in-person act. I do a lot of singing. I have a lot of good special material. And Andre is part of it. And it's been very successful. We just returned from a cruise. We went to Alaska on the Nordam, and we did our show. And it's fun. Oh, that must have been nice. Yeah. It was wonderful. And uh, you were talking with Marvin Miller about some of the things that happened in the old days of radio when it was live. You know, today they have blooper shows. But in the days when I first started, uh, nothing was taped. Uh, you, you know, if you made a mistake, there you were with your bare face hanging out before millions of people and mistakes were bound to occur. I opened a program once with Good Ladies, Evening, and Gentlemen of the Audio Radiance, which is a nice way to start. <laughs> then I closed a program once, which was sponsored by uh, Bond Bread. Frank Crummett and Julius Sanderson. That goes back God knows how many years. And the director knew the show was running over, gave me the speed-up signal, and I closed it with a commercial which went so, friends, get the Preston bed, use bronze bed. I did that with a Prager Brothers bread, and, and, and I call it the Preston bread because their theme was best in bread. That can throw you, but one thing that made you unusual always as listening to you when I heard you on radio, nobody had a voice like you. It was not a big, deep, belt-them-out-of-the-world voice, but you had tones. You had a very unusual voice at that I time. have the same thing that Gary Owens has. Which this is. is not my real voice. My real voice is entirely different. The one that... We will find that out following the news headlines. This is the Larry King Show with Andre Baruch and B. Wayne. And they are heard weekly on many radio stations across this country with a, the reborn Your Hit Parade, which I think was one of broadcasting's finest moments. Uh, this is the Larry King Show in Los Angeles for this Sunday night special. We're going to pause for news headlines and be right back with Andre Baruch and B. Wayne. This is the Mutual Radio Network. Hello, I'm Henry Morgan for radio. Speaking of radio, I have some statistics here. Boring, boring statistics, so I'll make it quick as possible. A recent survey shows that working women spend more time listening to radio than they spend watching TV or reading newspapers and magazines. Hmm. And that same statistic holds true for professional and managerial types, and college grads, and people with high incomes. Now, I'm not suggesting that these people spend most of their time listening to the radio. What I said was they spend more of the time they have left for the media with radio. I have no statistics on what they do with the rest of their days and nights, but sure hope it's fun. Boring statistics, but if I were an advertiser, I wouldn't be bored. I jump up and call this radio station or the Radio Advertising Bureau and ask for more statistics about Red Hot Radio. Like how much and how soon? Because customers are never boring. From 11.50 on your AM radio dial, this is KPRZ in Los Angeles.
No deal yet for most of the workers on strike against General Motors, but those talks are continuing. On Monday morning in Detroit, the United Auto Workers Union has told workers at one plant in Van Nuys, California, to go back to work on Monday because the matter has been settled at that one plant, but 12 more GM plants are still under a strike. Walter Mondale announced on Sunday that he'll be meeting on September 27th with Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko. That's one day before Gromyko will meet at the White House with President Reagan. But Mondale said he was not trying to upstage Mr. Reagan in doing that. Vice President George Bush has conceded the Republican ticket this year has not done as well as reaching out to American blacks as it has to other ethnic groups. But Bush said black leaders and black churches have obscured President Reagan's record. Pope John Paul has moved his campaign to Edmonton, Alberta, his 12-day visit in uh, Canada. Dave Chester, Mutual News. Everyone is concerned with taxes, and the tax preparation field is growing every year. That's why more and more men and women are preparing for a new career in the tax consulting field at National Tax Training School. You don't need accounting or bookkeeping background to learn the skills of tax preparation. National Tax Training School has trained thousands over the past 25 years with a short, inexpensive home study course. You probably can save enough on your own tax returns to pay for the course. With a tax consultant career, you can work all year round or just during the tax season. Get all the facts from National Tax Training, accredited by the National Home Study Council and approved for veterans training. For free information, address a card to TAX, P.O. Box 3810, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, 10163. There's no obligation and no salesman will call. That's TAX, P.O. Box 3810, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, 10163. This is the Mutual Radio Network. Live from the Bonaventure Hotel for the Radio Convention and Programmers Conference, this is the Larry King Show. Portions are played back in the Pacific Time Zone. Here again, Larry King. Thank you, group. Uh, later on in the evening, they could cue it back at the network. You don't have to pick them up the phone. Tell me I don't want to bother you. We're going to play Sinatra's L.A. as my lady. It's a great tribute to this wonderful city, excluding this particular hotel. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, you could say that, gee, if you say that, Larry, the hotel may really screw things up for you. How? They can't do any worse. Uh, <laughs> Andre Baruch and B. Wayne are our guests. They host weekly the syndicated Your Hit Parade. They are two great performers and wonderful people. B. Wayne, one of the top singers, and Andre Baruch, of course, I guess one of the radio world's all-time great announcers. I want to skirt and talk about many things with both of you. I would love to ask you, Andre, and so I will, how you got to do the Dodgers for a while. Uh... Let me go back. Oh, I know. The, the actual story was I was doing the hit parade, which was sponsored by Lucky Strike. And uh, Red Barber moved from the Dodgers to the Yankees. And Walter O'Malley thought it would be very funny to have a Frenchman, because I was born in France, be a play-by-play -play announcer for the Dodgers. And he called me in. And he said, do you know anything about baseball? I said, of course. He said, well, how much do you know? 
I said, when I first came to this country and I was 13 years old, a truck driver, whom I didn't know, asked me what the score was as I was looking up at the scoreboard, and I didn't know what baseball was then, and he says, hey, kid, what's the score? And I said, of what? He says, of the baseball game. What is the baseball game? You know, I had this French accent. And he said, come with me, and I'll take his to Abbott's Field. And he took me to Abbott's Field, and I saw my first game with the Dodgers. And from then on, I was an avowed Dodger fan. I followed them day and night. And if he, when he asked me if I knew anything about it, I said, sure. In the very early days, as a staff announcer on CBS, I once in a while spelled Ted Husing, who was doing the Yankees. So I knew how to do a little play-by-play. -play. And he said, all right, you're hired. Now, the, the Dodgers, the team hires the announcers. And I worked with Vince Scully, who was just the best, a man named Connie Desmond, later followed by Al Helfer. And until they went out to the coast. How many years did you do? A couple of years. Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. I just adored it. I loved baseball. I loved the Dodgers. And uh, I was as avid a baseball fan as you'd ever find around. And you were still doing all your other things? You were doing oh, yes. I was doing the hit parade, United States Steel Hour. I was the voice of Pathé News, uh, the voice of Doom, and uh, <laughs> a lot of other shows. So I had to run back and forth when they I'll were on the forget. road. I'll never forget. There was one July 4th when they were playing a doubleheader. And at that time, we lived in Westchester County in New York. And he had to leave very early in order to get to Brooklyn for two games. And I looked at him, and it was hot, and everybody was going to go swimming, and the kids were playing. I said, why can't you grow old gracefully like everybody else? <laughs> <laughs> it was true, because in those days, you broadcast in a tin booth. And when it was hot, which it was usually on the 4th of July, the heat was almost unbearable. And you sat there in your shirt sleeves, sweating it out, and doing the game. You knew then Scully would turn out as good as he did? Oh, yes. That was Vince's early years. Vince studied under Red Barber. The master. Who was the master. And then surpassed him, in a way, because of Vince's vivid imagination, his great control of the English language, his ability to paint the baseball picture accurately, and to do his homework. Boy, did he. Oh, Does yes. He? And uh, I consider him... Uh, the dean of all sportscasters today. As a radio announcer, you look at your own uniqueness. What do you think? Do you agree with me that one of the things that made you unique was the kind of soft tones that you weren't the big voice? I think the reason I was successful was because of the fact that uh, I spoke to one person who was listening to the radio and the fact that I tried to be as intelligent as possible insofar as the copy was concerned. Sometimes this was not always possible. I did a program called uh, The American Album of Familiar Music, sponsored by Bayer Aspirin. And I, during the rehearsal one day, I read a paragraph that had no verbs in it. And I came back after the rehearsal and said to the director, uh, you know, there are no verbs in this commercial, in this paragraph. He said, let me see that. He said, you're absolutely right. I said, well, uh, shall I change it? He said, oh, no, this has been looked over by the, by the uh, attorneys. You cannot change one word. I said, oh, well, what do I do? He said, just read the words Bayer Aspirin clearly and distinctly. And I did, and nobody ever knew the difference, which just proves that an announcer is seldom seen, frequently heard, but never listened to. <laughs> I understand that. I don't. 
<laughs> Did being married hurt your singing career? No. No, not at all. Uh, everybody knew we were married. There was no secret about it. No, I mean, in time and then giving up time. I mean, no. did you give up part of your career for Andre? No. No. I did when I started to have babies, but I went right back. Did you encourage her singing? Oh, yes. I think she's just the best darn singer around. Uh, B sings pure. <laughs> she has marvelous taste and marvelous phrasing, and today I think she sings as well or better. Her range is, is uh, larger than it was, and she just sings sexy songs. We're very proud of each other, Larry. We really are. I could tell. And in our business, there are husbands and wives who are jealous of each other. And this has never happened with us. I mean, they really are jealous of the other's success. And if Andre does very well at something, it, it pleases me, you know, and, and vice versa. I, I meant it not so much from a singing ability, but that era had most men didn't want their wives to work. Oh, I mean, I that want, was an era when wives work. didn't work. No, I wanted B to work. I mean, after all, if I was making 500 a week or whatever it was, she was making 5,000. How bad can that be? Gonna discourage this? Did she out-earn you many years? Yes. It wasn't discouraging to me. I applauded her. Make money. Great. Very proud of her. He carried uh, my bags. I used to carry her bags into the Paramount Theater. And the, the guy at the stage door would say, wait a minute, Bob, who are you? I said, I'm, uh, uh, I'm Miss Wayne's husband. Oh, come right in, Mr. Wayne. And uh, <laughs> I'd carry the luggage. Take, take the bag. Bring the bags in here, buddy. It was one of those things. But I didn't care. I was proud of her. And I'd do whatever she wanted. Major goofs on the air. Major goofs. Well, let's see. I did a program called Exploring the Unknown. Exploring the Unknown. Science fiction program. Opened... Unmutual. On Mutual. Oh, yes. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents Exploring. Exploring the Unknown. And the opening announcement was in an echo chamber. Now, back in those days, the electronic effect was not uh, in evidence. Today, if you want an echo chamber, you punch a button and boom, you have a reverberative effect. In those days, they took another mic and they put it in the men's room. And the tiles in the men's room gave you that reverberation and that echo effect. Or sometimes we got some extraneous sounds which we didn't need, but uh, <laughs> in any case, this was the opening announcement one night. And now, exploring the unknown, brought to you by Revere, makers of quality products in copper, brass, aluminum, and stool. <laughs> Andre Baruch and B. Wayne will be back after these messages. Here's a few million dollars to help you start a business, son. Gee, thanks, Dad. Let's face it, most people who'd like to start their own part-time business don't have a wealthy relative. Hi, this is Bob speaking for Amway Hope. You know what makes Amway such a great business opportunity? It doesn't cost an arm and a leg to get started. With Amway, you can earn extra income part-time while still keeping your present job. Discover today's Amway better than ever. My husband will either say that he likes it or he doesn't. I can't speak for him. Frida Formica asked her husband to compare Ragu homestyle spaghetti sauce to her own homemade. This is good, because it tastes like my wife, so it's got to be Italian. Ragu homestyle, homemade taste with nothing artificial and no sugar added. You didn't know the difference between my sauce and the Ragu sauce? Truthfully? Mm. No. 
24 years of my sauce, you didn't know the difference. Ragu home-style spaghetti sauce. That's Italian. I would really like to send him home to his mother. <laughs> Once again, it's back to school for the youngsters. And for many of you mothers, this means sandwich making morning after morning. So, a reminder that Farmer John has exceptional sliced luncheon meats for your children's lunchbox sandwiches. And what makes them exceptional? Truly exceptional? It's their exceptional freshness and fresh flavor. For in preparing his sliced luncheon meats, Farmer John, and only he, uses strictly fresh eastern corn-fed pork that's dressed fresh locally. Pork shipped in frozen or cold storage isn't fresh enough for Farmer John. And all his beef is juicy, fresh domestic beef, not the foreign kind. Then to complement the exceptionally fresh goodness of his sliced luncheon meats, Farmer John seasons them exclusively with choice natural herbs and spices. Sliced cooked ham, both meat and beef bologna, Italian cotto salami, pickle and pimento loaf, and more. Plan on Farmer John's exceptional sliced luncheon meats regularly for your children's sandwiches. Farmer John fine products are featured this week at all your favorite markets. to the Larry King Show, live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. Here again, Larry King. Thank you very much. Uh, following the uh, 4 o'clock news, Eastern Time, we're going to play that record in its entirety with Quincy Jones, L.A. is my lady, and that's where we are in Los Angeles at the Bonaventure with uh, Andre Baruch and B. Wayne. There's something we didn't, were not able to complete before because it is a phenomena that we're learning here tonight that a lot of people in radio whose voices have become famous are not their real voices. As Gary Owens tonight displayed for you his real voice and how difficult it is for him to go into the fake voice which America knows. And now we learn, much to our horror, that Andre Baruch's voice that you've been hearing for the past uh, 45 minutes is not his voice, correct? This is not your voice. When it's you absolutely true. This, is, this real is my real voice, the one with the perfect diction and the perfect pronunciation and all that sort of stuff. And how do you change it? Well, I change it by, first of all, I'm a lecturer. <laughs> you lecture? I lecture. I talk about how to talk to plants. Very few people know how to talk to plants. For instance, you walk into a store and you want to buy a plant. You just don't buy the plant like that. You walk in, you're introduced. Larry, this is Begonia. Begonia, this is Larry. Now you take the plant home, and you put the plant down. And you must be careful what you say to that plant. Why? You cannot talk baseball to a Begonia. You could talk football. 
lacrosse, table tennis, <laughs> but you cannot Exalted. talk baseball. Now, this was your natural voice. This which, is the natural which voice which that I Which never would have made you an announcer. No. So how did you learn the other voice? I went to school. And they taught you to change your voice? Yes, manual training high school in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Told you to change a lot of things. Did you go to manual training? Yes, I did. Oh my oh, God! Oh, I gotta tell you, manual fun. training was a tough school. Oh, you better believe it. Oh, let me tell you, manual training. Not only that, but the way I got into radio was such a became an announcer was so ridiculous. I wanted to be a studio pianist, and I sent a letter to CBS applying for a job as a studio pianist. Now, when I got there, they they answered me and said, "Come on a particular date." And when I got there, there were two lines. One for announcers and one for studio pianists. And I'm no dope. I got on the shorter of the two lines, which was the announcer's line. When it came to me, they gave me a piece of paper with a lot of uh, statements in, in uh, French, in, in Spanish, in Italian. And since I was born on the other side, in Paris, I speak several languages. So I thought this was an intelligence test. And I read it, and they said, we'll let you know. About a week later, they called me and they said, you've got the job. I said, great, do I bring my own music or do you have a library here or what? And the production chief was a little stunned by this statement and he said, look, we have a lot of competent musicians here. You stick to announcing because that's what you're being paid to do. And that was the first time I found out I was an announcer. Nothing's changed, Andre. It's still oh, the same. Still <laughs> the what was same the first thing. Uh, thing you had to do for them? Morning Melodies. Morning melody. Yes. Actually, the first, no, the first thing I did was I announced the, sta the uh, station's call letters. In those days, it was the Atlantic Broadcasting Company. CBS was ABC. And uh, I'd wait till they say, this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. And then I'd punch a button after 15 seconds, put my hand behind my ear and say, WABC, New York. Punch the button, boom. And I'd wait. This went on for several weeks, and finally a young fellow came in, and he said, what do you do here? I said, I make station breaks. He says, what's your name? I said, Andre Barouche. He said, wouldn't you like to be on the regular staff? I said, I certainly would. You know anybody on the 20th floor? He said, I'll see what I can do for you. A week later, I'm on the regular staff announcing morning melodies. And one day, I'm in an elevator with uh, Harry Von Zell and David Ross, and this young fellow walked in. And I said, hey, bud, I'm on the regular staff. I want to thank you very much. That's real nice of you. He said, anytime. He said, I'm delighted that you're happy. He gets off at the 20th floor. The doors close. Von Zell turns to me and says, you know that fellow? I said, yeah, he's an old buddy of mine. He said, Bill Paley is an old buddy of yours? William S. Paley? I said, who he? He says, he owns the place. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> You were a child singer. I was a child singer. Singing at five on the radio. At five, not only on the radio, I did club dates and uh, personal appearances. How did you discover this talent tour? I mean, were you, were you singing like you're three, four I years? I sang before I could talk. I really, I, my, when my mother pushed me in my carriage, I was singing popular songs. And everybody said, isn't that adorable? <laughs> so they put lipstick on me and sent me out on club dates. Was it tough kind of having a, you know, a career of fame that young? I mean, going on the radio was a big deal. I didn't know any better. I really didn't. And then when I went to high school, when I went to grade school, uh, we had shows in school, and I was, you know, I was always in them. Then I went to high school, and I did radio shows after school. As I say, this was, this was the life. Was a natural, were, were your parents show business pushers? Oh, no. No, no, no. 
My mother was encouraging. My father just stood back and let it happen. And, uh, you know, I, I, did, I did these shows in the afternoon after school and got a lot of fan mail and got money. So that wasn't bad. But your mother had to take you down to oh, the sure. she you took had audition me down. to the. And she didn't know how to put lipstick on me. <laughs> it was all over my face. It never affected you, though, because a lot of kids, a lot of people get affected later. I don't think after so. they've had attention as a youngster. I don't think so. And my mother was never a stage mother. She was just a, a wonderful, ordinary lady, and everybody had great respect for her, and for me because of that. Andre mentioned that your range is better now. Than it was. How can you can you explain that? Because most people's I range is not when they get older. Oh, I think that's untrue. I think as we get older, our voices do mature. My voice is deeper, and uh, that that stretches it. Yeah, but it, it would uh, take away from the high tones. No, the high tones are still there. Through your own endeavors, or that's natural. Everything is natural, Larry. I never studied singing. I didn't want anybody to teach me how to sing. I studied dancing. I studied elocution. I studied everything, but not singing. Hypnosis. <laughs> now, in the act that you do on the, on, like on this recent cruise, right? You sing. I sing. What do you do? I tell stories, uh, tell them about the old days of radio, and lead into uh, comedy routines uh, and some jokes. I do a thing in which Andre interrupts. I do. Remember the song, I'm old-fashioned, Jerome that. Kern, beautiful song. Oh, great. Well, I do it this way, I'm old-fashioned, I love the big bands, I love the memories they bring. And I go into a shtick about Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman and Harry James, and then I say, this all rhymes, of course, and I especially used to love to listen to the bands when I heard the voice of my favorite announcer. And then Andre comes in and does, here we are. Well, we greet you now from the Palladium in Hollywood, California, for the music of that great trumpet man, Mr. Harry James. And then I do, And we announce from the Glen Island Casino, the music of Glenn Miller and his orchestra. And I do Chattanooga Choo Choo. And it all combines, and it's nice. And we're giving away our whole act. No. They don't write songs like that anymore. There were some nice songs. Not like those. Oh, yes. We'll, we'll be back with our remaining moments. Well, well only Duran Duran. We'll be back with our <laughs> remaining moments with Andre Baruch and B. Wayne after this message. Seatbelts help save lives. General Motors is sure of it. So now, when you buy any new GM car or light truck from an authorized dealer in the U.S., you'll get a one-year insurance certificate at no extra cost. If any occupant has a fatal accident while wearing a GM seatbelt, MIC General, the insurance people at GM, will pay the estate $10,000. We're that sure seatbelts work. So buckle your seatbelt. Make that your life belt. What could be better than a perfect summer evening? A perfect summer evening with Almond and Golden Chablis. That's the new white wine, so different. It tastes delicious all by itself. Or add a little ice and some juice or soda, and you've got a golden wine cooler. Ah, Almond and Golden Chablis. Can't you just taste it? Almond and Golden, Golden Chablis. Almond and Vineyard, San Jose, California. You're listening to The Larry King Show, live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles.
Here again, Larry King. With, I'm going to get this right now. With B. Wayne and Andre Baruch. All yes. night I've been saying Andre Baruch first. Yes, I was, I was just saying, uh, you're in on a trial separation if that keeps up. <laughs> B. Wayne must get first billing. Absolutely. The way a man has to suffer when he's married to boy. <laughs> what are you, uh, tell me what your children are doing. Well, they're grown up. They're married. They live out here. Our daughter is a vice president of an advertising agency, and her husband is also a vice president of a different advertising agency. Our son is in syndicating and satellite Satellite communications. And his wife is pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> will, will this be the first grandchild? Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Uh, we're too young otherwise, you know. <laughs> That's why we waited so long. How do you feel about that, approaching grandfatherhood? Oh, I, I, I can't wait. I was hoping the pregnancy could be cut down to four and a half months, but I can't work it out. Mm. But you'd like to. Oh, yes. I now, wait. you're still doing singing, you're still working all the time, and you're still doing announcing, huh? Yes, I do a lot of commercials. I do all the Robinsons commercials, for those who uh, are in the, the, the area, area. they would know it, yes. And uh, <coughs> I do... Uh, Oh, banks and insurance companies and the usual thing, you know, and I'm busy. I'm very busy. Is it still fun? Oh, it's always fun. It's always excitement. First of all, out here in L.A., it's different than in New York or Chicago. Here, when you go for an audition, and we all audition. Still audition. Oh, yes, you're up against big stars, great feature players. And it's exciting to, you know, to work against a big name. And it's fun, and it's, a, it's like a big family. Nobody hates anybody. Everybody talks to each other, and it's, it's wonderful. Now wait a minute, I'm shocked. You still have to audition for a spot? Once in a while, yes. They all do, Larry. They all do. There isn't a, a big name out here that isn't asked to actors audition. Actors, too? Actors, especially. We're all actors. I, did a, I, I do a program called Heartbeat Theater for the Salvation Army, and it's a dramatic show. And I pulled a beauty one day. I played the part of a doctor. And I said, nurse, hand me the hypodemic nurdle. <laughs> <laughs> but is it uh, sometimes, do you feel a little bugged when you walk in, the famous actors competing against you, feeling that they have the edge? They don't have the edge. First of all, we're not called announcers when we go in. We're called actors. And uh, they don't have the edge over anybody. A good commercial announcer usually has the edge. Because he knows what copy means, and he, he absorbs it very quickly. The actor is still acting it out in his mind. I'm saying this because there are a lot of good actors yeah. who are good commercial announcers. But I think the, the, the man who's been doing it all his life has a little bit of the edge. This Ken Nardine, who's a great announcer, told me once he went on an audition, and there was about 12 people sitting around. Orson Welles walked in, sure. and they all walked out. <laughs> I wouldn't walk out. You'd hang right in there. I sure you? would. It has been a delight being with both of you. And uh, last time I was with you, you were hosting your own program in... WPBR in Palm Beach. WPBR, where they're listening right now, in Palm Beach, Florida. Yes. The radio station that, if it tipples a little to the left, is in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is right on the ocean. That's we were right. there when we had a hurricane, so we remember that Wonderful well. station and wonderful people Wonderful people. It. You yes. people, therefore, have lived for most of your life in Scarsdale, New York, Palm oh, Beach, Florida, and Beverly Hills, California. That's Terrible. pretty chic, don't you think? Yeah. We're so happy to devote this hour Thank to the ghetto. Much. It's so nice. <laughs> I think we devote that time to it. 
Thank you, you Larry. Thank you. Andre Baruch and B. Wayne, they are heard uh, <laughs> weekly on many stations with uh, Your Hit Parade, a program that in its heyday when it was live uh, featured both Miss Wayne for four years and Mr. Baruch as its announcer in the old days with Frank Sinatra when it was sponsored by Lucky Strike. Earlier, Gary Owens and Marvin Miller, and uh, in the past hour, Andre Baruch and B. Wayne. I should say B. Wayne and Andre <laughs> Baruch. We're going to pause for news on the hour, a word from your local stations, and when we come back, normally we'd have Open Phone America, but we're going to spend some time with another great name in old-time American radio. He is Glenn Hall Taylor. He began in radio in 1922, which is really unusual, since radio didn't begin until 1923. <laughs> he began by broadcasting to himself. And he directed such shows as the Silver Theater, Dorothy Lamour, Frank Moore, Burns and Alan Ozzy, and Harriet Eddie Cantor, Jack Benny, and 23 scripts of Rod Serling's old Zero Hour. Glenn Hall Taylor, and then later Open Phone America. We're at the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. We'll be here again tomorrow and Tuesday night in the cabaret room, and then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from the studios of our affiliates, KPRZ at Sunset and Vine. I'm Larry King, and we'll be back on the Mutual Radio Network. Hello, I'm Henry Morgan. The other day, I saw a television commercial that was so pretty. There was a young man and his girl and in the background, you got a glimpse of Rome, and then it shifted to Venice, and then to Florence. The real stuff. I suppose when you count the airfares, the hotels, the food, the salaries for the actors, the director, the art director, the camera crew, the producer and their assistants, and the airtime, the bill came to an arm and a leg, and part of the other arm. I don't even know what they were selling. I do know one thing. They have to sell an awful lot of it to cover all that. Now, I know another advertiser who uses radio, just radio. He sells a lot, too, and he still has two arms and two legs. If you have something to sell, remember Red Hot Radio. It sells and it sells and helps to keep your body intact. Word of mouth, you know. Greatest sales force on earth. Call this station or the Radio Advertising Bureau. They can prove it. From 1150 on your AM radio dial... This is KPRZ in Los Angeles. Mutual news via satellite. I'm Dave Chester. The waiting game continues in Detroit where negotiators for the United Auto Workers Union and General Motors remain locked in bargaining trying to end a strike which has thus far affected 13 GM plants. No word yet on progress with bargainers told reporters outside they wouldn't recommend anyone going home to catch some sleep. Walter Mondale said Sunday he's not trying to upstage President Reagan by meeting with Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko one day before Reagan does. Mutual's Paul Henderson reports Mondale may get some political mileage out of it. While Mondale's stated aim in the meeting is to strengthen President Reagan's negotiating position, Mondale takes on the mantle of statesman by doing so. And the fact that the Soviets initiated the Mondale meeting shows that at least the Soviets believe that he's a force to be reckoned with. Mondale says he will not allow Gromyko to fool him or to use him to embarrass President Reagan. In Mondale's words, I've been around that track. This will be Mondale's fourth meeting with Gromyko. Paul Henderson, Mutual News, with the Mondale campaign in Washington. This is Mutual News. Do you count calories? How many are in one teaspoon of sugar? 
One teaspoon of pure natural sugar has only 16 calories and no warning labels. Is it worth a few calories to use equal with NutraSweet or Sweeten Low? They're made with artificial ingredients like aspartame or saccharin. Now, do you still want to use artificial sweeteners instead of real sugar? Think about it. Sponsored by the Sugar Association Incorporated. Bob, hmm? we have to talk. About what? Your cologne. Uh, but I've been using this old spiced brand for ages. That's why we have to talk. Oh. I think it's time for you to jump ship. But Jane, I thought you liked the spiced scent. I do. That's why I got you this. Oh, new English leather spiced. Mmm, there's nothing old about this spice. I like it. I love it. I can't believe I'm actually changing Shh. brands. Do we have to talk? New English leather spiced cologne. It's time to jump ship. In what could be a serious blow to El Salvador's U.S.-backed government army, Honduras may refuse to let Salvadoran troops train at U.S. bases in its Salvadoran, in Honduran territory, that is, because El Salvador has been slow to settle border disputes between those two nations. Honduras has also dropped a controversial plan to relocate 20,000 Salvadoran refugees inside its borders, and instead, as Mutual's Paul Glippen reports, Honduras wants those Salvadorans to go home. Honduras says it will encourage the refugees to return to El Salvador. The Salvadoran government has promised safe treatment for all who return. The United States also supports repatriation, largely because it believes the refugees have been helping the Salvadoran guerrillas. But the refugees will probably refuse to go back to El Salvador. Most of them fled the country because of government attacks, and they aren't likely to believe it's now safe to return. If repatriation doesn't work, Honduras may be forced to either let the refugees stay where they are or forcibly send them back to El Salvador. Paul Glickman, Mutual News, Tegucigalpa, Honduras. 56-year-old Joe Kittinger may make history on Monday morning by landing his 10-story tall balloon of peas in the south of France. If so, he'll become the first person to make a solo flight across the Atlantic in a helium balloon. Iranian jets hit two foreign oil tankers Sunday in the Persian Gulf near the oil state of Qatar. The ships from Sri Lanka and Liberia were not seriously damaged. The attacks come after a week of Iraqi attacks on shipping in Iranian waters. You're listening to Mutual News. If you're a businessman or woman with the brains, drive, and desire to run a growing company, you should be reading Inc. magazine. That's I-N-C, period. Inc. is the only major publication that goes beyond the business news and concentrates on how to run a business, how to manage cash flow to make the most of your money, how to deal out the paychecks and perks to keep yourself and your key people happy. How to find a smart tax lawyer, open new markets, bring your pricing structure up to date. You'll get practical, proven ideas like these every month when you subscribe to Inc. And right now, if you call 800-228-1010 and order a full year of Inc., you'll also get free Inc.'s Guide to Small Business Success with over 100 proven techniques to help your business grow. So call now, 800-228-1010 for 12 issues of Inc. at just $18. You'll save 25% off the regular subscription price. Plus, get Inc.'s Guide to Small Business Success free, 800-228-1010. Toll free, 800-228-1010. Two Army Reserve medical evacuation helicopters collided in midair Sunday near the airport of Columbus, Indiana, killing two pilots and injuring 15 other reservists. Ironically, the choppers had just taken part in a mock air disaster exercise and crashed as horrified community emergency workers looked on. Five persons were killed, a six seriously injured in the crash of a small private plane late Sunday night in Linden, New Jersey. This is Dave Chester, Mutual News. Hi, this is Mariette Hartley. 
As the election season heats up, the League of Women Voters is pleased to offer you a free, easy-to-use guide for evaluating candidates in 1984. The guide, called Pick a Candidate, can help you assess candidates, their issues, and campaign tactics. In 1984, candidates will bombard you with packaged political ads, campaign promises, charges, and countercharges. The League of Women Voters has 60 years' experience in providing nonpartisan candidate debates and information on issues. The League can help you cut through the political smoke. Their Pick a Candidate Guide is full of practical advice on getting at the issues and evaluating the candidates. Become a demanding voter. For your free copy of Pick a Candidate, write the League of Women Voters, Post Office Box 2141, Washington, D.C., 20013. That address is League of Women Voters, Box 2141, Washington, D.C., 20013. Live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles for the Radio Convention and Programming Conference, it's the Larry King Show, America's favorite talk program. The Larry King Show comes to you via the Mutual Radio Network. And now radio's most talked about interviewer and the host of the show, Larry King. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Larry King Show. Welcome to the program. If you're just joining us in some areas of the Pacific time zone, our guests, the first three hours on this special one time only, I repeat that, the benefit of any of the executives who think we're a hit tonight. This is a one-time only Sunday night, Monday morning presentation. In fact, in an hour from now, we're really going to have an interesting discovery to make because we have no idea who may be listening. So, I mean, we have no idea. And uh, some stations may have carried, some may not. Maybe other stations dropped in and picked it up. So we'll be taking calls later and to see if anybody's there since we've never been on on Sunday night. In fact, this is historic breaking. It's the first time Mutual's been on. Sunday night with news and everything. So we hope you're out there. If we've been talking to ourselves, there's still a lot of laughs. Anyway, this is a, here comes a note correcting what I said. We always do this with him. All right, what does it say? I'll read it right as it reads. Premiere of America in the Morning will occur this morning at 5 a.m. That's another edition. And okay, thank you. Back. <laughs> and uh, we also have uh, uh, another new feature this week, Jim Bohannon's Saturday Night Show. The Jim Bohannon will be Saturday Night Live, and Best of King will air on Sunday nights. And the reason we're doing this Sunday night show is in conjunction for a couple reasons. One, Mutual Broadcasting is celebrating 50 years on the air, which is kind of amazing because our next guest was on the air long before Mutual was on the air. Uh, and <laughs> that's old. <laughs> and also, we will have, uh, th there's a combined uh, convention going on here about which I'll talk later. The National Radio Broadcast Association and the National Association of Broadcasts, I had the honor of being the MC today at the opening session in which I made comments not so much about the combined conventions, which should be an enormous success, but about the place they're holding them, the Bonaventure Hotel and the Biltmore Hotels in downtown Los Angeles, California. And we want to thank Leonore Kingman, Lenore, King, uh, Lenore Kingston, rather, of Pacific Pioneers, who made possible this kind of salute to radio tonight. Our earlier guests were Gary Owens, Marvin Miller, Andre Baruch, and B. Wayne. Tomorrow night, the guests will be Dick Clark, who will be here, the only man in America getting younger. <laughs> Dick Clark, growing younger, will be here tomorrow night. 
Also, Carol Lawrence, the great original star West Side Story, great singer and dancer. And Ken Kercheval, who plays Cliff on CBS's Dallas. Tuesday night, Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin together here at the Cabaret Room at the Bonaventure. And by the way, we're carried live now starting at 9 o'clock on KPRZ here in Los Angeles. And Roy Firestone of KNX, one of the most popular figures since he guested with us a couple of years ago. He's a very funny man about sports. Wednesday night, we'll come to you from the studios of KPRZ. The guests will include Jennifer O'Neill, Super Agent Jay Bernstein, the greatest football player who ever played, Jimmy Brown, and uh, Dick, Ram Dick Rambo of All My Children. And on Thursday night, Michael Damien of The Young and the Restless, the great director Jerry Paris, who's got Happy Days, and actor Mel Farrar, and Ballard Smith, the president of the San Diego Padres. We welcome to our microphones Glenn Hall-Taylor. He has been in radio 62 years. He uh, was in production and management uh, agencies, directed such programs as the Silver Theater, Dorothy Lamour, Frank Moore, Burns and Allen, Ozzie and Harrod, Eddie Cantor, Jack Benny, Rod Serling, Zero Hour. Glenn Hall-Taylor, an honor to meet you. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Where, what was on in 1922? I was. <laughs> Where? KZY in Berkeley, California. It was a small station in the upper floor of an old residence. And they'd uh, put up this panel, and uh, there were three of us who'd heard about radio, and of course we could hardly wait to find out what it was all about. No, no pay, of course. I played piano, there was a violinist and a banjo player, and uh, the microphones were just ordinary candlestick telephone mouthpieces, those rubber mouthpieces and each one was stuck in a square wooden box. One was on the piano, one was in front of the fiddle, and one was in front of the banjo. And uh, we knocked this off, and, and it, it, it uh, was a program that had sort of variety in it, and one of the, uh, well, the star of the program was really David Starr Jordan, who was the first president emeritus of Stanford University. Were you a student at Berkeley? No, no, I was starting to play piano professionally, just out of high school. And uh, to show you how big we went over and, and put over radio in the early days, the reviewers the next day told how great Davis Starr Jordan was and forgot to mention us. Did you know then you wanted to stay in that business? Yeah, it was fascinating, because I was already playing in dance bands. Yeah. That, that's the thing. When, though, did you start to make it a full-time career? About uh, 19... 24, I guess. I was playing in dance bands up to then. 60 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, of course, in the meantime, uh, in the dance bands, we used to play the remotes, as they used to do in radio. And we had these little combos, and, and uh, uh, I remember we, <laughs> we used to do a thing where the drummer would take some soft mallets and, and uh, play a chorus with, with them. And I'd do whatever melody was <laughs> being played <laughs> at the time. <laughs> And then did you wander down to Los Angeles? Was your whole career on the West Coast? Uh, I started in San Francisco. I had the first dance band uh, of N on NBC here. Uh, there was no transcontinental, net uh, transcontinental network. Uh, the first time they had seven stations hooked up on the Pacific Coast, it was called the Orange Network. In other words, you couldn't pick up shows from New York? No. Uh-uh. And... Uh, this was a, a Yale Round the World Banquet in which, at the same time, in several cities around the world, that is, 
different time zones, but the same, the same time on the clocks, uh, had these banquets. Uh, Ju Chief Justice Howard Taft was one of the guest speakers on it. And uh, I had this dance band, and they wanted to do a, have it sound like college. And I, I had 10 pieces, including one banjo. This was before the guitar days. And they gave me two extra banjos to make it sound like a college band. <laughs> and uh, so I, I was there for several weeks. And uh, finally, an executive came out from New York and spoke to the uh, uh, director, Mac Max Dolan, who was the musical director of NBC at that time, and said, why have you got these, this 10-piece dance band? You've got a 40-piece orchestra, and all you have to do is hire a banjo and three saxes. So I was out of a job. <laughs> How did you get into directing? Well, that, uh, you, you get into those things by osmosis, because in those days we did everything. Uh, I announced, I hooked up the microphones with the batteries, they were battery operated in those days, hooked up the microphones, uh, operated the teletype, swept out the studio if it got a little messy. There weren't many stations around then, were there? Uh, there aren't many stations in this country 60 years old. No, I don't think so, but there, there were probably six or eight around San Francisco. There uh, were that many? Oh, yeah. There was a KGO, KPO, one was the red, one was the blue network of NBC. There was KTAB, uh, which was my station, and there's now, uh, KTAB is now KSFO in San Francisco. Uh, there was KFI, that was operating at that time. In San Francisco or Los Angeles? No, Los Angeles. Well, I, Let's see, uh, KFRC in San Francisco. The KFI was in, in uh, Los Angeles. KFRC in San Francisco. It was rather crude, right? Big pardon? The program was rather crude. Uh, yeah, because we were just learning. Now, now, that had to be great fun. Yeah, it was. That you were part of something so new that you would learn yeah. by trial and error every day. Yeah, and in addition to doing all this stuff and uh, finally directing the orchestra there, and uh, being program director, got so we wrote sketches, and I was acting and announcing, and <laughs> we were developing sound effects. I remember one time, the, the studio was in a hotel in San Francisco, the old Pickwick Hotel, and uh, we had a, a detective drama on, and we opened a window in the light well to, to fire the blank out of, and scared half the guests to death in the, in the <laughs> hotel. But I tell you, another funny thing in those days, these sound effect records were just coming out. Jeanette made a lot of them. And uh, sirens, machine guns, horses hoofs, all this kind of stuff. And I ran a program there, I was MC on it, uh, 11 at night until 1 in the morning, had the great original title of the Night Owls. And uh, people used to call in for requests, we want to hear the fire engines. Let us hear the machine guns. And we used they to request sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the phenomena of uh, just a new media. Yeah, that's right. How, what were radios costing then? Oh my goodness, I don't, I, I don't remember. I, I, I bet I, they were expensive. Uh, comparatively, yeah. I, not I, every home had a radio. No, uh, I had one of those old Atwater Kents. You used to have to uh, change four dials to get your station, you know. And then I had a big uh, goose loop antenna. Yeah. Our guest is. We are really going back with Glenn. How old are you, Glenn? I am 81. We're really going back with uh, <laughs> Glenn Hall Taylor. We'll talk more about early, early radio after these messages.
Terry, can I charter your plane to Palm Springs? Sure, Bob. I'm headed there anyway. I'm delivering some Amway products to some of my customers. You're an Amway distributor? Sure. But I'm not flying. My wife and I are building financial independence as part-time Amway distributors. And with over 350 different Amway products to choose from, my customers can really shop without going shopping. Sounds like you're really flying with Amway. Discover today's Amway better than ever. Seatbelts help save lives. General Motors is sure of it. So now, when you buy any new GM car or light truck from an authorized dealer in the U.S., you'll get a one-year insurance certificate at no extra cost. If any occupant has a fatal accident while wearing a GM seatbelt, MIC General, the insurance people at GM, will pay the estate $10,000. We're that sure seatbelts work. So buckle your seatbelt. Make that your life belt. D-R-O-W-S-Y. For occasional sleeplessness, you may want help feeling drowsy. D-R-O-W-S-C-O-M-P-O-Z. Try Compose. C-O-M-P-O-Z. Just one maximum strength Compose can help you feel drowsy, so you can get a good night's sleep and wake up ready to go. Use only as directed. Compose. C-O-M-P-O-Z. Mary Lou, does Topol Smoker's Tooth Polish really work? Yes, it does. I use all kinds of things to try and brighten up my teeth, and I figured there was just no hope for it. Huh. That's when I turned to Topol. Uh -huh. With what results? There was a remarkable difference. My teeth lost that yellow stain color, and the last time I went to the dentist, he remarked how much cleaner they looked, and he asked me if I'd stop smoking, and I said no, and I was very surprised. And I don't feel people are looking at me and saying, well, she's a smoker. Topol Smoker's Tooth Polish for whiter-looking, brighter teeth. You're listening to The Larry King Show, live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. Here again, Larry King. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Our guest is uh, 81 years young, Glenn Hall <laughs> Taylor, who's been in this business 62 years uh, with a long and distinguished career. When was the first... I guess we call it transcontinental broadcast, where someone could broadcast in New York and be heard in California. Well, I'll tell you, I, I made some notes on dates because the Geritol set doesn't remember dates very well. Uh, I have a scrapbook at home with these newspaper clippings in it, which is verified in uh, 1926. There were 38 stations hooked up across the country. This was a one-shot for the Radio Industries Banquet. Now, this was still no regular broadcasting. Now, in November 1926, the first regular broadcast was announced by NBC, and it was once a week from 8 to 9 on Friday nights. That was it? That was it, and it was opera. Opera? Yeah. Now, by early 1927, just a few months later, Amos and Andy was on 10 minutes a night, Monday through Friday. So it, it really took off. Sarnoff at NBC then was the pioneer, right? Well, yeah, of uh, big I, time I, radio. I would say so, yeah. And of course, you know that uh, NBC was, uh, they used to call it a service of the Radio Corporation of America. Didn't know that. Yeah. RCA, his mm -hmm. master's voice. When did you come to L.A.? I came to L.A. in 1934. Oh, right, you'd been in San Francisco up to that yeah. time. And the reason they came down was because 
Uh, well, there were two reasons. Number one, the San Francisco Musicians Union was a very tough union, and the radio stations couldn't get uh, concessions from them. Uh, in addition to which, uh, all the big American advertising agencies had their headquarters in San Francisco. The transcontinental telephone lines terminated in San Francisco. There was nothing down in Los Angeles. But eventually, between the unions and the pull of the Hollywood talent, it started to move down here. And uh, So you were one of the first down here? Uh, no, not really. But uh, I, I guess I was one of the first from the, from the big move from San Francisco. See, we had people up there like Meredith Wilson was at NBC and uh, Hal Perry, who later did the great Gildersleeve. Yeah. He was a baritone at the station then. And uh, uh, eventually it came down here. Now, Don Lee, who was the uh, uh, KHJ station here where I, where I came to work in 1934, uh, Don Lee figured he could have a 40-piece orchestra for the price of a 20-piece orchestra in San Francisco. And he took a conductor by the name of Raymond Page down there, who later wound up in, in uh, sure. Radio City, as you know. So that, that was pretty much the, the Wh move there. What station did you go to work for here? I went to work for KHJ, which was then a Columbia affiliate, and later became Mutual. Became Mutual around 1936. And what kind of jobs did you do? Well, I started in doing as we all did, just the handyman around the place. I did announcing, I did acting, Played a little piano, wrote scripts, comedy scripts, commercials, and that sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> interesting, uh, a little bit of trivia. Uh, do you know who Selma Diamond is? Sure. <laughs> she was at KHJ then, and she came to me with a big stack of hectographs. You remember the purple ink on the duplicators before mimeograph? It was done uh -huh, on, on yeah. a gelatin. She had a whole stack of these things, and she says, I've got a joke dictionary. Do you think it will go? Now, she was a gag writer then. And then she went back to New York, and, and, and now she's on TV as the, as the policewoman on Night Court. That's right. <laughs> when did Hollywood stars start to do radio? Was uh, it the mid-30s? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact... Didn't uh, they resist it at first? Uh, no. As a matter of fact, when I went to work for uh, KTM down here, which was the Pickwick Broadcasting Company that owned KTAB in San Francisco, when I came down here, uh, talkies were just starting. And we used to have a program, a dramatic program, once a week where the actors worked free to get the experience. Now, among those people were Charlie Chase, Bobby Vernon, uh, George Renovant, Flora Finch, a lot of these old-timers, the names aren't familiar to the, to the present generation, but they would come down and work for nothing to learn how to talk to a microphone. And Did radio people start to become celebrities then? Oh, there were, there, yes, indeed, there, there, were, there were some. There was Graham McNamee, the sports announcer. There was Tony Wands, who used to read the poetry with an organ background. And, uh, of course, in, in as early as that, there was the Texaco Hour with uh, Ed Wynn. Boss, you there, Charlie? Yeah.
Uh, by today's standards, it would be weird to listen to any of those show shows now, wouldn't it? I think it would be. I, I have some uh, old records of Silver Theater that I that I did in there. And then you began directing a lot of this, right? Yeah. And you directed Silver Theater, Dorothy L'Amour, Burns and Allen, Ozzie and Harriet. Yeah, I directed those. Uh, I, by the way, I did not, you mentioned Jack Benny and Eddie Cantor. As head of the Los Angeles office of Young and Rubicum, I was the supervisor on the Cantor and Benny show. I never actually directed them, but the others, others you mentioned I did direct. You headed the Los Angeles office of Young and Rubicum? Yeah, I was there for over nine years. You left radio to go to an agency? Yeah, I was working at CBS at the time. I went Why? from KHJ to, to, CBS, to KNX when CBS bought it. And that, when CBS bought that, KHJ became mutual. And I went with CBS and later went with Young and Rubicum. Supervising radio accounts? Well, no, I, I was in the production end of it. YNR hired me as a producer for Silver Theater. I see. And from there, uh, there on, uh, you take over supervisory duties, and eventually, as a producer, you have client contacts, and they, they ship you east for meetings and sponsor meetings, and, and eventually they made me head of the office and finally a vice president. Their sponsors then participated in these programs? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was the Silver Theater? That I don't remember. You don't. Well... Uh, it was one of the, I say this modestly, quoting reviews, it was one of the best dramatic programs of the era. It was second to Lux Theater, but it was, uh, it didn't get the ratings because it was on a Sunday afternoon and it was a half hour instead of being on a full hour for a Monday night. It was the top rating Sunday show in Canada, for example. Uh, Conrad Nagel was the master of ceremonies. He was billed as director. I was actually the director, but this was the front man on it and we had uh, guest stars each week we had uh, the, t the top of the line we had Clark Gable William Powell Myrna Loy Carol Lombard original uh, scripts ori uh, yeah uh, once in a while we do an adaptation from a magazine story or something we had uh, a writer who was very versatile As a matter of fact he, he became motion pictures and the television too fellow the name of True Boardman and uh, uh, he was he was the real war horse that really got him out every week. Why was it called Silver Theater? Uh, it was sponsored by International Silver Company. Good thinking. Yeah, wasn't it though? <laughs> were these uh, Hollywood actors pretty well, like was Gable good on radio? Uh, he was good. He required work. Uh, the radio actor is a guy that can pick up a script and act. Right. Uh, the best quick study among any of our guest stars is Brian Ahern. He, he could pick it up like a radio actor and act it the first time. Uh, Ginger Rogers, Clark Gable, a lot of these people uh, could read the lines okay. They, they, they did a good job, but they succeeded in getting the good ratings because people knew them and could visualize them as they spoke. Yeah. But you take somebody like Betty Davis, she was great. And uh, Silver Theater, Sunday afternoon. Yeah. We'll talk about some I, of I the was other. on it for four years, by the way, and then it, it continued on two or three years after that. Our guest is Glenn Hall Taylor. He is 81 years young. And uh, <laughs> I, is, is anybody older than you still around <laughs> from the early days? Uh, yeah, there's, there's Ken Carpenter. Uh, Ken is still alive? Yeah, unfortunately, he's quite ill. Ken is 
85. I talked to him on the phone yesterday. We're going to pause for news headlines and a word from your local stations on this special Sunday night, Monday morning edition of the Larry King Show. We'll have open phone America later and resume again here tomorrow night at the Bonaventure. I'm Larry King, and this is the Mutual Radio Network. music's hottest night of the year is back on the Mutual Radio Network. It's the 18th Annual Country Music Association Awards simulcast in stereo. This is Lee Arnold, and I'll be your host for Mutual's three-hour CMA special. To all the girls I've loved before. First, it's our half-hour awards preview show, reviewing all of the artists and songs nominated this year. Then Mutual brings you the 90-minute award simulcast in stereo. Immediately following the awards ceremony, we'll take it to the Grand Ballroom of the Opryland Hotel for the post-awards party. The most delightful, the most beautiful lady could be standing in front of me is the not-new female vocalist of the year because it's her second year in a row, Janie Fricky. Join us for country's hottest night of the year, Monday night, October 8th at 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock Central Time, over many of these mutual stations. From 11.50 on your AM radio dial, this is KPRZ in Los Angeles. Mutual News via satellite, I'm Dave Chester. Walter Mondale Sunday announced he'll be meeting with Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko on September 27th, one day before Gromyko meets with President Reagan at the White House. Mondale said he's not trying to upstage Reagan. Workers at the General Motors plant in Van Nuys, California, will be going back to work on Monday today. Their strike against GM tentatively settled over the weekend, but local strikes continue at 12 other GM plants, and the United Auto Workers Union and General Motors negotiators are still trying in Detroit to come up with a new national contract. Pope John Paul II has made as many as half a dozen appearances daily in the past eight days while touring Canada, but on today, he's going to be taking some time off in the Northern Rockies to visit a ski resort and get in some rest. Congress today will be heading back for the final three weeks of its session. This is Dave Chester, Mutual News. Get a pencil ready because there's a special number to call for all those who think home improvement jobs are too tough for them. Now you can do it yourself, like a pro, and save money too. How? With the best set of tools you'll ever own. Home repair and improvement books from Time Life. Carpentry, plumbing, wiring, masonry. You'll learn the shortcuts the experts use in step-by-step -step pictures. Minor repairs or major renovations, indoors and out. Nobody explains things as clearly as Time Life books. Now here's that number. Call toll-free 1-800-453-1800 to examine your first book, Kitchens and Bathrooms, free for 15 days. If you keep it, pay just $9.95, plus shipping and handling. That's less than the price of a good hammer. Other volumes will come about every other month on the same free examination basis. Keep those you want, cancel anytime. Call now and get an additional 64-page home toolkit booklet free with your first book. Call 1-800-453-1800 now and get the home improvement help you've always wanted. This is the Mutual Radio Network. Bonaventure 
Adventure Hotel for the Radio Convention and Programmers Conference, this is The Larry King Show. Portions are played back in the Pacific Time Zone. Here again, Larry King. Thank you, thank you. All right, hold it down, hold it down, hold it down. <laughs> Welcome back to more of The Larry King Show. By the way, Scott Meyer was, came over to say hello. Scott is general manager of KSTP Radio, serving Minneapolis and St. Paul. And we will start back again on KSTP tomorrow night. We've made a note, Tammy will remind me, and we will welcome them all week. This is a special Sunday night edition of the Larry King Show, a kind of salute to radio. Our guests earlier were Gary Owens, Marvin Miller, Andre Baruch, and B. Wayne. All of that repeated an hour and a half from now in some areas of the Pacific time zone. And with us now is another uh, veteran of radio, Glenn Hall Taylor. What did Dorothy Lamour do on radio? Uh, we had her on a variety show. It began one summer as a summer replacement and uh, was sponsored by the United States Army Recruiting Service. It was called Front and Center, the program. Before World War II. Uh, no, it was after World War II. This was around 1947, 48. And uh, it was successful during the summer and the Army Recruiting Service dropped it, and Seal Test Dairies picked it up. It was called the Seal Test Variety Theater. What, what was the Frank Moore show? Uh, Frank Morgan. Uh, it was uh, the fabulous Dr. Tweedy. And, uh, Frank Morgan of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that was quite an adventure, too, because uh, Frank liked to tipple, you know. And, uh, he drank. Yeah. <laughs> moving a little. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, the only time I ever heard him boo-boo was when we had a late dress rehearsal and he didn't have a chance to run across the street and get a drink. This is the first mistake I ever heard him made in the script. <laughs> Burns and Allen. Burns and Allen. Uh, I, I started that in 1941 after four years on Silver Theater. That was Burns and Allen and uh, Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. That was some show. Yeah, it was a good show. I was on That was funny. Oh, oh, well, yeah. George, George is a funny man. Although he always says that uh, Gracie is the comedian and he's the straight man, but he's a very funny straight man. <laughs> or was he funny? That was a very funny show. Yeah. Gracie was very much not funny off the air, right? No, she was very, very quiet. George, yeah, George did all that. the guiding. and, and George uh, ran that, right? Oh, definitely, yeah. And uh, uh, af after the Burns and Allen show, I was on that for over a year, then they... In 1942, they put me on the uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes show with Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone. I was on that for two years. They did a radio show, too, huh? Yeah, on Mutual. Sherlock Holmes was on Mutual? Yes, indeed. With Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce? Yes, for Petri Wines. I Petri didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, 42, 1942. Did radio change much during the war years? Uh, I would say the biggest change was uh, uh, expansion of hot news broadcasts and the fact that an awful lot of the variety shows and musical shows and comedy shows uh, played the military bases. I, I was out with the Benny show, I was with the Cantor show, the Tommy Riggs show, and uh, Burns and Allen show. We played uh, naval bases, marine camps all the way up to Sacramento and back to Paris Island. Bob Hope wasn't the only one then? Oh, no, not during the war. They were all doing it, really. And according to William Shira's book, and he was with CBS, yeah. 
World War II made network news, right? I think it did. Edward yeah. Morrow in Ed London, Morrow Gabriel Heater, and yes, yes, Gabriel Heater said it's good news tonight. Then you had to wait to hear it, and sometimes you didn't. <laughs> but there was less concentration on news before that, right? It was much more on entertainment. Yeah, there, I, I, I don't even remember important national news broadcasts un, until until the war. Yeah, I, I just thought about that now. That's probably true. Yeah. Those were the days, though, where the, the East Coast show would repeat the show for the West Coast, right? Oh, yes, we did. Because you had no way of taping it. No, uh, we did two shows every night, uh, three hours apart. I must tell you a funny one about uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, after, the, after the program was dropped, uh, I went to another agency for another sponsor. Uh, we had an audition with Nigel, with Nigel Bruce about a, a Scot Scotland Yard detective who comes to America and his wife, wife marries a, an American detective. It was called Godfrey Oakes, Esquire. Now, Nigel Bruce was always in another world for some reason, you know. He's all beautiful. Dr. Watson. <laughs> yes. Matter of fact, they said to him one time, I said, Willie, I said, I can't understand what you're saying. And she says, oh, dear boy, she says, that's part of the character. And I said, yeah, but this is the plot line. They won't know what the play's about. Oh, oh, dear fellow. <laughs> but at any rate, we, we did this half-hour show with an audition with him. We made an audition record. And at the end of the record, the announcer said, this is the mutual broadcasting system. Cut. Nigel Bruce turns to me and says, dear boy, what is the mutual broadcasting system? <laughs> He'd been on it for four years. <laughs> Never heard the announcer give the cue. <laughs> a true flake. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there was a director by the name of Tom McKnight who, who did the show several years before I did. And his great saying was that Nigel Bruce was Great Britain's answer to Bunker Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Now you were involved. You were involved with a show. Uh, I had the honor of interviewing a number of times the late Rod Serling. Oh yeah. And Rod always told me that there was uh, nothing compared to uh, radio for horror or scaring people or innovation because you had the tremendous advantage of imagination. Oh, no doubt in the world and about that it. While radio scripts weren't superior to television scripts, they weren't that much better. No, they were so. about the same. They yeah. could scare you more, or frighten so. you more, or make you cry more, or yeah. anything it wanted to do more, because it took you into your mm -hmm. own head. I remember some of the mystery shows used to advise everybody to turn out the lights while they listened. <laughs> Arch Obler's Lights Out. Yeah. Said, turn your lights out. Yeah. What was Zero Hour? Zero Hour uh, was a radio show in 1974, I believe. Uh, I didn't direct that. I was writing scripts for it. I did 23 scripts for it. It was five times a week. There were two other writers on it. And uh, it was uh, just general mystery. Some of it was suspense, some of it was detective. It wasn't like Twilight Zone. There was suspense and detective. But Serling was involved? I, he was involved only as MC on it and, and uh, got paid for the use of his name and the title and so forth. He used to tape the introductions and, and, and send them voice. in, you know. Yeah. So you wrote scripts, too? Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, when I went to work at YNR in 1937, uh, any guy that was hired for a director had to bring in scripts. So the director had to know how to write. 
Yeah. That would throw half the guys in the business out today. No, well, it did during the war. You know, because a lot of the guys were were, were drafted or enlisted, mm -hmm. and, and uh, finally we just had to take guys who could direct. As you, you know, you're 81 years old, Glenn. As you look back, do you, do you uh, miss it? Uh, yeah, I do. Boy, there had to be great days. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the last uh, TV shows, uh, radio shows I wrote were in, uh, for uh, Edwin Mulher and Ben Wright. They planned a Sherlock Holmes series. I did a series of scripts on that. That was in 1977. And uh, So you wrote scripts as little as seven years ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've I've done other things. I've I've written I've written TV scripts, but I, I don't do it anymore because everybody I know in the TV business is dead or retired, so <laughs> they don't know me else, anymore. <laughs> everybody else who live with you is dead at the present time. Uh, we're going to ask Glenn Hall Taylor about the Radio Pioneers, what they do here. They're a big organization in Los Angeles, and more about the old days of radio and then Open Phone America. This is Larry King at the Bonaventure Hotel at this combined radio programming conference. We'll explain it all to you later. We're going to ask you to take notes. We will ask questions. <laughs> and we'll be back after these messages. Gary Slumka is practicing his tuba, while unbeknownst to him. His microwave oven is cooking the outside of his lasagna rock hard, while the inside remains stone cold. Too bad Gary doesn't have a Whirlpool microwave oven. Our balanced wave cooking system distributes the microwave so food cooks evenly without constant turning. A Whirlpool microwave oven, like all our appliances, can make his world a little easier. Poor Gary. He really blew it this time. My husband would never, never eat anything out of a jar. <laughs> he doesn't even like me using canned tomatoes. We gave Carol Ofrino a jar of all-natural ragu home-style spaghetti sauce to see how it compared to her homemade. It's 100% natural, no preservatives, which is great. You can see the oregano and basil in it and the little bits of tomato. It looks homemade. Ragu home style, homemade taste with nothing artificial and no sugar added. They might even like it better than mine. <laughs> Ragu home style spaghetti sauce, that's Italian. You know, it's pretty near impossible to find a giant panda. You know, there are less than 1,000 giant pandas in the whole world. Almost all of them in China. But if you want to see a giant panda, and I'm not talking about any cuddly stuffed bear or anything, I'm talking about the real thing. If you want to see one, you just head out to our Los Angeles Zoo. They got two giant pandas, and the best time to see them is in the morning, especially weekdays. But you can see two giant pandas just about any time. There's Ying Zin, that means welcoming the new, and Yun Yun, that means forever and ever. Now, Ying Zin and Yang Yang are just visiting, thanks to the kindness of the People's Republic of China, and they're both going home this fall. So I wouldn't waste any time. I'd just go and see him today. Of course, the L.A. Zoo still doesn't have any pukas, does it, Harvey? Well, it's, uh, but it does have giant pandas. The Los Angeles Zoo is wilder than ever. You're listening to The Larry King Show, live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. Here again, Larry King. With Glenn Hall Taylor. <coughs> A true radio pioneer. He is 81 years young, and he has been in this business for 62 years. We're going to talk about Jimmy Durante in a couple moments. But first, what do the radio pioneers do? It's an organization that was founded in 1963, if I remember correctly. I, I was a charter member. 
And we have about, well, nearly a thousand members. Uh, we have uh, built up a considerable uh, collection of scripts, books, transcriptions, tapes from a lot of the old shows. As a matter of fact, I think it's the largest in the, in the country right now. Do you have a building here or an office? Uh, we have uh, club rooms and uh, the storage for the uh, archives in the Homes uh, Savings of America building at the corner of Sunset and Vine, where the old NBC building used to be years We're ago. We're going to be broadcasting the KPRZ is there, Sunset and Vine. Well, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday in a tall building. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, do you have regular meetings? Do all of you get together? Yes, we have uh, uh, meetings about five times a year, luncheon meetings, uh, at the Sportsman's Lodge. And uh, we usually have a turnout of between 700 and 800 people every luncheon. And what do you do, have speakers? And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, well, what we do is we honor certain guests. Now, uh, on the 21st of this month, we're, uh, we're honoring uh, Dennis Weaver. Somebody's reading my mail. <laughs> and that must be a lot of fun. Do you also is. reminisce a lot and play old tapes? And uh, only in connection with the guests. For instance, when the Mills Brothers were honored, we'd, we'd played a lot of their records. And uh, 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 Pat Buttram is our principal roaster at these uh, affairs. We have a dais with uh, a lot of people who have worked with, this, with the star. And... Uh, uh, it, it's quite active, and, and uh, some of the people do work for the blind. Uh, we make our material available to college students or high school students who uh, want to know about the history of radio. Uh, I think one reason it's been such a tremendous success is the fact that we have no causes. You know, we don't get that intramural arguing with politics or this kind of stuff. We have nothing to do except honor the people in radio and uh, uh, ma make the uh, educational material available. Are there a lot of old-timers living out here? Oh, yes. There's a lot of them. Uh, we mentioned Ken Carbon a little while ago. Uh, Jim Jordan, who was Fibra McGee, he, he's, he's still yeah, around. He's still alive, Jim He's Jordan. still alive. He's, he, he's about 86, 87 years old now. And uh, uh, Would he be the last of those great on-the-air shows well, George Burns is still alive. George Burns is very much alive. <laughs> Does George ever come to any of these meetings? We honored him uh, several years ago. And uh, we did one on Benny, we did one on, uh, on Hope, one on Liberace, one on... Television will never have any of these people. They don't have shows like that on television. No, Tell no. Me couldn't honor. Now, tell, you were telling me during the break, and this may be a first, folks, uh, everyone who knows and loved uh, Jimmy Durante knows that he ended every show he ever did, television or radio, with Good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. And you say you know yes. who she was. Well, it, it's not a first. As a matter of fact, it's in my book. Now, that, that's not a plug because the book's out of print. But I have this story in my book, and I think that's the first time it was published. Uh, when I was at NW Air, as head of the office, I was the supervisor on the Durante Moore show. The Durante did a show with Gary Moore. With Gary Moore, right. And the director was Phil Cohan, uh, who put the two men together and developed the whole show. Uh, Jimmy Durante came to Phil one day and he said, you know, he said, every time he's on the broadcast, he says, John Charles Thomas says, good night, brother. He says, I'd like to say something like that. 
Well, Phil kicked it around with the writers, and of course they knew he couldn't say goodnight, mother, and couldn't do the same thing, so they decided on a funny name, and they kicked it around. They said, Mrs. Terwilliger, goodnight, Mrs. Uh, Fenerbahce, goodnight, Mrs. So-and-so, and they kicked it around and around and around. Phil was smoking a calabash pipe. And he took a drag on it, and for no reason at all, he looked at the pipe, he says, Good night, Mrs. Calabash. And the writers started to kick this around, and they said, That's it. And that's how the whole thing came about. And J Jimmy got so that he thought she was a real person. You ask him who it was, and he'd say, Well, just my old school teacher. And then he looked at that's Phil. That's what he told me, it was a school teacher. Yeah, and then he, he was doing this in an interview one time, and he turned to Phil, and he says, Look who I'm kidding. <laughs> So it was a pipe mixture. No, it was the calabash pipe, you know, like... The actual the, pipe. The, the gourd, yeah. yeah. The, the gourd pipe. You've destroyed my whole image of that. <laughs> there was no... Jimmy was one of the great people of all time, though, wasn't he? As oh, a yes, human being. Yes. By the way, they sent out cards. Anybody wrote in and asked about Mrs. Calabash. They had, a, had postcards that said something like, thank you for your inquiry about Mrs. Calabash. Calabash. There are some things the gentleman just doesn't talk about. <laughs> Jimmy. Jimmy was a special person. Very special. We'll be back with our remaining moments with Glenn Hall Taylor and then Open Phone America and the revival of our producer following this message. <laughs> For fast, fast hemorrhoid relief... I'm a believer in the rapid reliever, Tronolane. For fast-acting, hospital-used medicine... I'm a believer in the rapid reliever, Tronolane for the swelling, itching, and soreness of hemorrhoids. I'm a believer in the rapid reliever. The hospital-used medicine in Tronolane goes to work on your hemorrhoid symptoms immediately. That's why I'm a believer in the rapid reliever, Tronolane. Non-greasy, non-staining formula Tronolane in cream or suppositories. Use only as directed. Seat belts help save lives. General Motors is sure of it. So now, when you buy any new GM car or light truck from an authorized dealer in the U.S., you'll get a one-year insurance certificate at no extra cost. If any occupant has a fatal accident while wearing a GM seatbelt, MIC General, the insurance people at GM, will pay the estate $10,000. We're that sure seatbelts work. So buckle your seatbelt. Make that your life belt. You're listening to The Larry King Show, live from the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. Here again, Larry King. Thank you very much. Our guest is uh, Glenn Hall Taylor, 62 years in this business in both uh, radio, production, management. Worked with some of the great agencies in this country. And uh, was involved in such productions as Silver Theater, Dorothy L'Amour, Frank Morgan, Burns and Allen, Ozzie and Harriet. A young and Rubicum's involvement with Eddie Cantor, Jack Benny, wrote 23 scripts for Rod Serling's Zero Hour. Is one of the pioneer members of the Pioneers, an organization that celebrates a look at Mac and a look at uh, an age that is gone. Uh, with uh, Glenn Hall Taylor, who keeps on... You look in very good condition, by the way. I feel fine. <laughs> Want to get back into business? <laughs> I'd love to. But I can't take those 80-hour weeks anymore. <laughs> Why not be a general manager? Work three. Uh, <laughs> uh, you were, yeah, were going to tell us about somebody just fell down in the lobby, and in this lobby, no one will find him for two days. Uh, <laughs> You're not kidding. I'm going to talk about more. <laughs> this is some place, the Bonaventure. It sure is. Were you here when they built it? No. But uh, I forgot to bring my white cane tonight. Yeah. Something's buried here. 
I got a feeling that someone's going to find it someday. You were involved in the last, what, microwave broadcast? Uh, this is kind of interesting because this was the end of network radio as the big home entertainment medium. When I was at NW Air, uh, I produced the Western origination of the first use of the microwave for commercial radio. Uh, it had been uh, uh, coaxial cable up to then, but this is so much more expensive that they never got it going all the way across the country. And it was a matter of pennies. It was under a dollar a mile, something like that, for the microwave as compared to several dollars a, a mile for the other. So they had these uh, relays every 30 miles apart. And uh, the telephone hour in New York with Don Voorhees Orchestra and Nelson Eddy uh, announced the use of the first use of the, of the microwave for commercial broadcasting. And they kicked it over to us, and we were on the Coit Tower in San Francisco up there in the fog blowing all around us. Uh. And the announcer, Gain Whitman, uh, made the commercial announcement about the use of the microwave. Uh, it was so effective that it, you couldn't tell it moved from the New York studio to Coit Tower in San Francisco. It was so perfect. But I think this is especially interesting because that was on August 17, 1951. On September 4th, the first television use of the microwave was President Truman at the Japanese Peace Treaty Conference in San Francisco. Now that was September 4th. On September 28th, the first commercial TV transcontinental, All-Star Theater, and on 29th, the next day, Colgate Comedy Hour, and that was it. The king is dead, long live the king. That was the end of the radio that as we know it then. Yes, right. How do you feel about radio now? Well, it's it's an entirely different medium. I, I think it's I think it's done uh, a, a, a better job on news than we used to do because a lot of all news stations, which were not in existence in those days, I think they've done uh, a better job of uh, uh, classical music program. I think they've done a better job of of real jazz programming. I think they've done a better job of uh, treating minorities fairly. Uh, I would say for what they do, it's better than it used to be, but the drama and the suspense outside of sports, the drama and the comedy and that stuff has pretty much gone out of it. Yeah, sad. Yeah, it is, yeah. Well, radio had a long way to go with minorities, didn't it? it yes, did it not, did. Uh, yeah. That was not an easy field to enter. No. We used to have uh, black actors and, and uh, oriental actors occasionally on, on the radio if the, if the parts called for them, but they didn't very often call for them. There's one quick thing I, I should mention about radio being so wonderful in its own way. It was a friend of mine had a, a young son who had the measles. And, of course, they pulled the blinds down for several yeah. days, as they do. And this boy was brought up on television. He could, could not look at television. He listened to radio. And one day he said to his dad, he says, you know, the games are better on radio. And his father says, you think so? He says, yeah, the pictures are better. Yeah, he makes them his own. Yeah. Boy, you must have great memories. I do. And you drive around, listen to radio now, and think that you were there yeah. in 1922? Yeah, and not only that, but in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, we got paid for having fun. We'd have done it for nothing <laughs> if they'd only known. That's right. You would have, because it was that, that was the kind of thing it was. Yeah. And it was so... 
glamorous, too, in a way. Oh, I mean, yeah. Radio people were... Yeah. I don't think anybody... Someone told me that no one in the history of American broadcasting of any kind has ever equaled Amos and Andy. No uh, television I, show has ever equaled the popularity of Amos and Andy. I don't think so, either. I, I think it's a pretty funny. Movie statement. theaters would interrupt the film, right? Oh, yes. Uh, otherwise, people would stay away from the movie theater. And they'd play Amos and Andy in the theater. Yeah, over the loudspeaker for ten minutes. I remember being in a drugstore one evening at, at uh, about five minutes after ten, and the druggist said, I can't understand it. He said, nobody's in here at, at ten o'clock at night anymore. And I said, well, they're listening to Amos and Andy. And if you walk down the street with the windows, with the windows open on a summer night, everybody was... Pardon me. Everybody had Amos and Andy on. Unbelievable. Great pleasure meeting you, Glenn. Thank Larry, you for this hour. Thank you for a wonderful evening. I enjoyed it. Glenn Hall Taylor. Our guests earlier were Gary Owens, Marvin Miller, Andre Baruch, and B. Wayne, and all of that will be repeated an hour from now in many areas of the Pacific Time Zone. I want to give you a couple of notes and catch up on things, and when we come back after the news, we'll have a little... Sinatra tribute to this great city, and then an hour of open phone America. If you are uh, twirling across the dials and wondering what the hell is he doing here tonight, he is wondering the same thing. What the hell am I doing here tonight? But uh, this was the result of a network executive meeting. What happened was six mutual executives got in the room at the same time. When this occurs in any network, a decision must be made, or else it appears like all we had was corn muffins. So uh, someone said... We're going out to the radio programming conference. It's in Los Angeles, and the program conference opens on Sunday, and Larry will do his show Monday and Tuesday. And then one of the people said, well, what about Sunday night? So someone said, oh, okay. And then they told us about it last Thursday and said, get a room. And then uh, we used an organization here that was arranging the getting of rooms, and so they had us a wonderful room. It was really nice. It would have been a wonderful show, but it was in Juarez, Mexico. Uh, it's another great organization that handled the setup of this convention. So anyway, uh, we used a little pull, and uh, Tammy fooled around with the manager hotel, and we got this room. And uh, we are here at the Cabaret Room. And if you are listening in the Los Angeles area, we are on at uh, 9 o'clock on KPRZ now, and you're welcome to come over tomorrow night when our guests will be uh, Dick Clark, uh, who, is set, who will, by the way, offer free tomorrow night his uh, acne uh, ointment. And... Uh, Carol Lawrence, and uh, Ken Kercheval, who I think is one of the great characters on Dallas. One of the only human characters on Dallas. They're all sort of animated characters. He's not. Uh, we'll be back with uh, Frank's tribute to Los Angeles and Open Phone America. I'm Larry King, and this is the Mutual Radio Network. It's Robinson's semi-annual mattress pad and pillow sale. For one week only, you'll save 25 to 60% and more on every mattress pad and every pillow in our collection. Featuring our feather and down pillow, all sizes, just $14.99. And our quilted wraparound mattress pad, all sizes, just $14.99. Save 25 to 60% and more on every mattress pad and pillow. Now at Robinson's. AM 1150 and the music of your life present Rosemary Clooney. The dreams we share, we'll always remember, remember with the music of your life. AM 1150 KPRZ.
1150 on your AM radio dial, this is KPRZ in Los Angeles. Jaws Professional 1. Larry King 840923 Marvin Miller under Saturday Night Lift Alt Tab. Alt Tab. Sound Forge Pro 11.7. Sound 